episode one of the Consistent Calvinism podcast. I have wanted to start this sort of thing for years and years and just too busy and lazy to, to do it. Finally decided, you know what, let's just do it and see what happens. I figure what better place to start than the idea of free will. It's one of the most hotly debated topics in Christian circles. And that brings me to my first quick point, a couple quick points here. Number one, this is a Christian discussion. It's an in-house Christian debate, right? The two camps would more, more commonly be called Calvinism and Arminianism. They're both Christian. It's not a salvific issue. Neither side should be throwing each other in hell for not believing it. This is an in-house Christian debate. That does not mean, however, that other theistic systems won't find this interesting. Maybe even atheists would be interested to know that there are Christians like myself who deny that we have free will, deny that God gave us free will. We believe that God determined all things, so on and so forth. Um, you might find that very interesting. So this should appeal to a wide range of, uh, of people. Um, this episode ended up a lot longer than I thought. You know, entire books have been written on the idea of free will. This ended up being over four hours long. Sure, it could have been even longer, but, you know, let's let's just be real. We, we need to we need to cut it off at some point. Um, I covered as many things I thought were as important, a bunch of angles that I thought were important. I not only lay the Calvinistic position out as a foundation, I then ju- jump into questions for the free will position to show you that you are not sitting in a very pretty position. A lot of people think that free will is a magic wand, that they just wave over everything and make everything go away, all the problems. There are lots and lots of questions that all Christians on both sides need to answer, and it is my opinion that Calvinists have the sufficient foundation, both scripturally and logically, to give those answers. I do believe that there are answers to all those questions, and you don't need to appeal to mystery, but free will is stuck, almost always appealing to mystery, as you're going to see throughout this episode. And if you think not, give give this episode a chance. Listen through it. Listen to the questions. This is, this is one of the most important points and purposes of this episode is to get free will proponents to think critically about their own position, to ask themselves questions, to give answers to those questions, to notice how is, is it possible to hold to free will and remain logically consistent in terms of a Christian worldview. These are, these are the things that are going to unfold throughout this episode. I would also highly recommend that you listen to this episode at 1.5 times speed. You can change the playback speed in your podcasting app or even on YouTube, and this will allow you to finish the episode 30% faster. And I just want to say very quickly, if you want to make responses, I openly welcome and hope for responses to the arguments that I make in this episode. Feel free, it's, it's four hours, feel free to cut it up into pieces. I trust you to take things into context. I don't expect you to make a minute-by-minute, minute, you know, point-by-point point response. If you want to do that, great, go for it. But I, I, I'm being realistic. It's four hours long, I don't expect it. So feel free to cut it up, make your points, just... Take things into a context, and um, I'll trust you to take that from there. So with that, all that being said, let's jump into why it is uh, impossible, logically impossible, for God to give you this thing called free will. So let's get started by defining what free will is. Um, there's quite a, a lot of different quote-unquote definitions that people will use, ways to phrase it. They'll say from something as simple as, well, we make choices, which is, as you'll see, um, far too basic um, all the way up through power of contrary choice, um, doing what you want, not being forced, on and on and on. But what ultimately matters when you're talking about free will or freedom of any kind is properly defining the reference point. And in the theological discussion on whether or not we have free will, the only reference point that matters is God. Are you free from God or not? That is the, that is the only question that matters. And it's not that talking about what what often happens in these discussions is people move the reference point around. They'll start talking about your nature and your circumstances and past experiences and all the way down the line. And it's not that those things don't have a proper discussion or a place in the discussion. 
as you're going to see in a little bit here, I'm going to talk about those things. Um, but that is an understanding of the outplay of whether or not we have free will. That is not how you prove whether or not we have free will ultimately. Because even if you could prove that your will is free from your nature, free from the circumstances involved, free from past experience, free from your current state of mind, your will is free from all those things, you still haven't ultimately proven whether or not your will is free from God. And whether or not those things are determinative of your choices doesn't necessarily uh, prove whether or not God is determinative of your choices. Right? So ultimately speaking, the only reference point that matters is God, and that is the reference point we will be using for this particular episode. And um, so if you disagree with that reference point, um, you'll see by the end of this episode why you've already lost the debate if you disagree with that reference point. Because you can, you can prove you're free from all those other things, but if I can prove that you're not free from God, you don't have free will in any meaningful sense, in any sense that anybody cares about. When we start talking about making choices eternal destinies, so on and so forth. So with that in mind, keep it in mind the reference point for freedom needs to be God. Are you or are you not free from God is the ultimate question. And I just want to point out really quickly that a, a denial of free will on my part is not a denial that we have a will. It is not a denial that we make choices. It is not a denial that we do things that we want to do. All of those things are true, whether or not we have this free will, as you're going to see throughout this episode. We're going to talk about why we make choices, how we make choices, what is the nature of choice in a finite realm. We're going to talk about all these things. We're going to talk about how God can be in control of everything you do, including the fact that you want to do it, and therefore this idea that God is somehow forcing you to do things is also false. All of these um, false conclusions that people jump to as soon as someone mentions the denial of free will uh, are going to be exposed in this episode. The most important point I want to get across from the start is that ultimately speaking, once again, why you're doing what you're doing, whether or not you want to do what you're doing. Those are all important discussions, but ultimately, is God in control of it all or not? Yes or no? God is the reference point for free will, and that is how we're going to proceed. And with that idea of free will in mind, I'd like to launch straight into the three foundational Bible verses that I will be using in this episode. Um, I consider these verses to be the three most important verses you could find in the entire Bible, on this particular topic, because what we need to be addressing is what is God's metaphysical relationship to the things he has created? That's what ultimately matters. What is God's metaphysical relationship to us? And these are these three verses are all verses that we have heard before, we've read before, we've considered in a very fleeting amount, fleeting moment. They've passed through our heads. But have we really stopped to be honest enough to realize the full and broad implications of what these verses are teaching. And I don't think that many of us have. So with that in mind, um, let's jump into these verses here. And again, it's important to point out the context of each of these three is creation, as you'll see. So it's, it's explaining creation and God's continued um, relationship to what he's created. So in Hebrews chapter one, the end of verse two, through whom he also created the world, there's your context, and it's talking about Jesus, and it says in verse, the next verse, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, so he upholds the universe by his power. He hasn't just created the universe, he continues to uphold the universe by his power. So what are the implications here? First of all, is this verse always true? Of course it is. The implications here are that God is creating, and not just creating, but the things that he has created rely upon his power for their continued existence. Because if you think about it, they have to be. They're inferior to him. They are not eternal. They are not self-sustained. They are not self 
determined, self-caused. They are reliant upon his power for continued existence. That is the nature of what it means to be finite, right? So with that in mind, that, that central concept in mind, let's check out the other two verses, and you'll notice they're saying the exact same thing, just in different phraseology. So in Colossians chapter 1, we all know the context here. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, creation there, heaven and earth. And in 17, in him all things hold together. Okay, just another way of saying what we said in the past previous verse. He upholds the universe by his power. In him all things hold together. This verse is always true. It is explaining God's metaphysical relationship to the things he's created. All of existence relies upon his power, moment by moment by moment. And the third verse comes out of Acts 17. In verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. There's your creation context. And 28 concludes, for in him we live and move and have our being. Right? So if you were tempted to limit those past two verses to just animals or the weather or the stars or volcanoes or whatever, says no, the, the point here is no, everything that God has created, including us, we live and move and have our being in God. And again, is this verse always true? Of course it is. So my first major question for the free will position before I sort of start fleshing these verses out, just on the face of it. How do you logically reconcile any form or any degree of freedom from God with these verses, which literally teach, in the most explicit possible terms, that you are never free from God? Now, just a quick note, the reason I consider these three verses far more important and foundational than any other verse that you could, quote-unquote, Calvinistic verse that you could pull up, you know, God works all things, he directs people's hearts, he hardens hearts, he softens hearts, um, whether it's controlling weather, the animals, or anything like that, um, the reason these foundational verses are so much more important is people will find a way with those other verses to point out limitations and say that, well, those are just special cases. Um, or they'll change the way in, God, in which God is working things. So instead of him actually working all things, metaphysically speaking, like I believe these verses prove as a foundation, they'll change the foundation to, oh, God is reacting and just making the best out of things, and it's that way in which... It, that sense in which God can be said to be working all things. It doesn't actually mean he's causing things, uh, so on and so forth. So that is the reason I consider these verses far more important as a foundation. It's not that I don't use those other verses. I will be using those other verses in my episode where I more firmly defend my position. But if you don't have the foundation right, then those all those other verses um, don't have any root or grounding um, in a proper concept. And so they can be sort of... Uh, for lack of a better word, twisted into to meaning what they're not really meaning. The question is, what is the consistent biblical application of those verses? When it says that God works all things, what does that mean metaphysically, right? That's, that's the question here. And these verses leave us without a shadow of a doubt of the metaphysical nature of what is going on. Because God has not just created all things, he continuously upholds them moment by moment by moment. Now, I want to really quickly point out how important these three foundational verses are, and this entire concept is, in properly understanding God's metaphysical relationship to the things he's created. Because these three verses completely exclude the possibility of an ancient heresy known as deism. Now, deism can come in many different forms, and there's an entire spectrum down the line of, of different forms of deism, but the, the central concept shared by all of them is addressing what is God's level of interaction with the things he's created. So when you start on the extreme end, you have full deism, which would teach that God never interacts with what he's created. 
And so by defin he's going by definition he's going to be metaphysically hands off. And so full deism teaches this idea that God created the universe and set it up with natural laws and it runs like a machine. So that the things contained, the things that he's created, are self-sustained. And full deism would exclude, since there's no interaction on God's part, it would exclude divine revelation, miracles, interaction in our lives, filling people with the Spirit, all those things completely excluded by full deism. That does not mean, however, that that central concept of deism cannot permeate. And for lack of a better term, I'll, I'll, I'll be throwing out the term semi-deism a lot in this episode, and that is not meant as an attack or anything. This is just, if you can think of a better term, let me know. I'm just trying to be descriptive of this concept, that there is even one thing that God can create that is self-sustained. Because if we're honest with ourselves, myself included for many years, uh, it seems like most theistic systems and the vast majority of Christians included have a semi-deistic view of the world. And uh, this isn't something we're taught. Um, This is something that we sort of assume from the start, and that is that God has set up the world. He's set it up with natural laws. He's created things that are systems, weather, gravity, chemistry, our bodies. Um, And while we might like to tip our hat to the fact that God created those things, um, there there comes points where we start drawing lines and not ascribing the function of those things to God and his power. And so you can still tell that the vast majority of Christians, and I'm just asking you to be honest about it, uh, have have a semi-deistic view of God's relationship to the world. After all, we believe He created all, He created us, obviously, and we believe He's watching us, um, and we believe He knows the future and can plan ahead and can direct us down paths. And every once in a while, when we look in the Bible, we see Him poking around and zapping some miracles here and there. But this is a very semi-deistic viewpoint which does not have God being hands-on all the time, does not have God exerting power over his creation all the time, but only some of the time. And so this is, this is the central idea of why hopefully these verses are going to begin to radically change the way that you view God's metaphysical relationship to the things he's created, including ourselves. Um, because a false view of metaphysics, false view of God's relationship to you and to the universe, is going to poison the rest of your entire worldview. And this is why I consider it such a foundational issue, especially with regards to the idea of free will, because when you start to introduce the idea that you can be a self-sustained, self-caused, self-determined entity that God is hands off of, you are teaching a form of semi-deism, however minute uh, minute degree it might be, you're teaching a form of dualism, that there are more than one power at work in the universe, ultimately. And it just brings up, as we're going to see in this episode, a very long line of, of, of important questions that need to be asked and answered if you're going to hold to this idea of free will. And so if, if the idea of deism is to be denied in all of its forms, then what we're left with is what I believe to be a far more biblical understanding of God's relationship to the things he's created, metaphysics, And these three verses become much more um, understandable. If God is always upholding the existence of things he's created, then it follows that um, when we look out into the world and we make scientific observations and, and start seeing things like gravity and chemistry and our bodies functioning, cells and life and all these things, 
we see the weather, the animals, we see the stars and the planets, we see everything happening the way it's happening. You can either understand that in a deistic sense, that those are self-sustained systems that God created and are running like machines, or you can understand that biblically speaking, God is always at work exerting power over his creation, and any interaction that that creation has with itself is caused by God, right? The idea of determinism, causes and effects, one thing leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing, the way things interact, you can either understand those as self-sustained entities clashing around and interacting, as a semi-deistic viewpoint would, and most people unfortunately do, or you can recognize that God is always exerting power over his creation, and that the, therefore the natural laws and all the scientific things we view and observe are merely observations and, and descriptions of the way that God regularly uh, exerts his power. They are the ways that God regularly runs the universe. They are the way that God regularly um, works all things and exerts power over his creation. And so I say regularly because there is this thing called miracles, obviously, and this goes to demonstrate my point precisely because people have a false assumption about what miracles are. Since they have a semi-deistic view of the world, that most of the time God is hands-off, then miracles become examples of when God is hands-on. Miracles become examples of when God is finally exerting power. Oh, look over there, God exerted power. This is a false understanding, biblically speaking, of what is going on, of what a miracle is. A miracle is not an example of God exerting power, where otherwise he wasn't. A miracle is an example of God exerting his power differently than he normally does. So, for example, when God parted the Red Sea, it is not as though the water molecules of the Red Sea were bopping along by themselves with gravity and chemistry and all the, all of the particles interacting. And then God comes along and decides, you know what, I need to violate these natural laws I've created, so I'm going to exert power where I otherwise wasn't, and cause the Red Sea to part, right? So he'd have to violate gravity, he'd have to violate, I assume, lots of other natural, quote-unquote, natural laws. This is the way that most people think, and I'm just asking you guys to be honest with yourselves and realize that this is the way that most people think. Most Christians, in fact, when they read their Bibles and see, read about miracles or even God interacting at all, they view God's interaction as this idea that he needs to come along and and exert power over something that he was not already exerting power over to get it to do the things he wants it to do. This is a false view. Instead, when God parted the Red Sea, prior to that, his power was in and through every molecule of the Red Sea from, from the start. It was his very power that was making it function the way it normally does to begin with. And this is the entire point. Without God's power... Nothing could or would be happening. It's not as though if God wasn't exerting power, things would be happening differently. That's a false assumption. The truth is that nothing would be, happen, be happening if God was not exerting power. And so when the miracle happens, uh, God just simply deviates from the way he normally exercises his power over creation, and the, that is what a miracle is, in fact is. And so you can begin to see how this drastically changes your entire worldview, and it's going to change the way you view uh, free will as well. 
So one of the best ways to visualize the overall concept that I'm trying to get across when we're talking about metaphysics, God causing things, God controlling things, his relationship to the things he's created, a good way to visualize that is to visualize two, two lines running in parallel. On top you have a dotted line, okay, and each of the dots represents a moment of time. So the dotted line is creation, it's moment by moment by moment. Um, you could understand it as causes and effects, you know, one cause and effect to the next to the next. However you want to understand that dotted line, it is creation unfolding. Underlying that dotted line is a, is a, is a solid line of God's sustaining power. And so the point is that it is God's power which gives existence to the dots above it. It is God's power which connects the dots above it. And so God's power is is what vertically, like there's a difference between the horizontal relationship of one dot to the next dot and a vertical relationship of God to all the dots. There's a difference in that relationship, right? And, and it's not that causes and effects don't exist. The dots exist. We aren't pantheists, right? God is not the things he created. They are separate from him. However, um, those things exist. We experience them. The point is that none of them would be, none of them would exist, continue to exist, or be functioning the way that they're functioning apart from the power of God, which gives relationship to and meaning to the functioning of those things. So that is the primary point I'm trying to get across is understand the difference between the horizontal relationship in time of when I do something, I'm causing something. That's technically true. You can view me as a cause and something else as an effect, and you can start looking at dots in relationship to one another in creation and say, well, if, if that hadn't happened, this would have happened, or if that would have happened, this wouldn't have happened. And we do that all the time. And it's not that that is not a valid, a valid thing to talk about. But when you're going to zoom out and understand what is God's relationship to all those things, God is not one of the dots. God does not fly in out of nowhere every once in a while to start meddling around in the dots. God is always working in, in, in keeping the dots in existence. He is always working out the way the dots are connected and interacting. And um, that is the primary point I'm trying to get across. Here. And so this is why when Calvinists like myself come along and say, uh, that every dust particle travels its course through the universe from start to finish by the power of God and under the complete control of God. People scoff at that and laugh at that, not realizing that what's the alternative? Just, just step back and ask yourself the question, if God's not controlling those dust particles, who or what is, right? And you'll notice that you've only got two choices. Either there's a different God out there, which is obviously not true, or you're going to try to say a semi-deistic viewpoint and prove my point that you are assuming semi-deism in your worldview. And you would say that, well, it's by the power that God gave the dust particles when he created them as a self-sustained thing. And since that point, it's not by God's power. So you have to choose which view you're going to take. There's only two options. Either God is always exerting power over everything he's created. He is always in control of everything he's created, even every last tiny little dust particle, or you can take a semi-deistic view where God created all things, sure, but ever since then, he chooses when or when not to be in control. He chooses when or when not to exert power, and this is precisely where free will comes flying in, because in order to hold to free will, you have to adopt a form of deism, even the slightest little form, 
and say that you, with your free will, are a self-sustained entity, you can give God all the credit you want. You could say he's the one that made you like that, but you're still disconnecting yourself from God. Metaphysically, you are no longer, you are no longer a dot being upheld in that dotted line, being upheld by the power of God. You are your own you are your own solid line of power now creating and causing your own little dots. And this is, this is heresy, guys. This is, uh, this is not biblical. You don't find this concept presented, even hinted at. Instead, the Bible teaches just the opposite. The three verses I've quoted completely exclude any form of deism. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. In him we live and move and have our being. In him all things consist. These verses are always true. And free will is never true. Now, of course, I will be accused of reading Calvinism into these verses, even though these verses so clearly uh, forcefully necessitate, on a logical basis, necessitate uh, the, the viewpoint I've put forth of God's total control of all things. You cannot read these verses without understanding that. I'm sorry. It is, imp it is logically impossible for you to say that God is always exerting power over everything he's created, but... At the same time, he's not in control of it or any part of it. It's just, it's logically impossible for you to say that. You can say that and then appeal to mystery so that you can continue to hold on to your heretical uh, views because you, they make you feel better. But don't pretend like you're engaging in a logical, serious discussion or that you're taking, for example, these verses seriously. Because now we're going to get it down into the nitty gritty of, what it, of the idea of evil. And it's funny how people only want to take these verses so far. They want to, they'll, they'll sound like good little Christians when they say things like every breath I, that I take comes from God and every beat of my heart comes from God and, oh, we thank God for our food and, and our jobs and where we're born and, and, and our, the people we meet. And you want to you ascribe credit to God for various little things, which if you break any of those things down, it, this is what's funny, if you break any of those things down, the, everything I've said as a foundation here, is necessitated. In other words, every breed of your heart comes from God. Well, yeah, it does, but how do you understand that? Have you thought it through? It only makes sense if what I've said is true, that every function of your heart, the, the electrical current, the blood cells, the muscle, um, causes and effects involved in, the, in your heart, pumping blood through your body, moment by moment by moment, is by the power of God. Right? It's the only way it makes sense. Otherwise, you're, you're going to say that your heart is a self-sustained, um, self-powered thing that is operating under natural laws, and the only thing you're then thanking God for is setting your heart up from the beginning, I guess. But after that, it's your heart doing it. Why are you thanking God? Same thing goes for breath. Why do you thank God for your food? Have you stopped to think about that? He didn't. He didn't airdrop it down out of heaven, right, to your doorstep. Why are you thanking God for your food? You're the one that bought the food with the money that you worked for at your job that you also worked for to get, that you drove to in the car that you bought with the same money. You're the one that went down to the store, got the food, brought it home, prepared it, cooked it in the in the kitchen that you pay rent for. And then you're going to sit down and eat it. Why are you thanking God for that food? Maybe it's because God is in control of all the things that went into that food being on the plate in front of you, right? I'm not being, I'm not reading Calvinism into any of that. I'm not being unchristian or unbiblical in any of that. That is all completely obvious to any Christian. Why is it then that when, and these verses, these verses make that obvious, 
right? In him we live and move and have our being. He upholds all things. This is how we understand our view. This is a Christian understanding uh, or an outlook of, of the viewpoint. When we thank God for our food or to ask him to bless it to our bodies. The only way our bodies can digest food and, 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 and supply it to our body is also by, again, the power of God. Making those things happen. So why then do we draw a line when we get down to the nitty gritty and start talking about evil? All of a sudden these verses are no longer brought up. I guess, are these verses true when you're sinning? Does God uphold your existence while you're sinning? How can God uphold your existence while you're sinning and not be a sinner himself? How can God uphold your existence while you're sinning and not be an accomplice to your crimes? These are questions you need to answer. Because if you're just going to peel a mystery and you're going you're gonna to see no moral problem, the Bible teaches God upholds your existence even while you're sinning, and yet you're still responsible, God's not a sinner, Everything's hunky, everything's wonderfully fine. There's no moral problem at all with any of that. Upon what possible basis could you object to a Calvinist then? I mean, most Calvinists don't come out and say what I'm saying. Most Calvinists just say, oh, well, God set up some dominoes and he determined that someday down the line there's going to be some sin and he, he did it for a good purpose. And, and Arminians, free will people, flip out. How could you say such a thing? That would make God evil. God couldn't hold them responsible. God would be an accomplice to their crimes. What's the point of this? What's the point of that? If God determined this or that. That's just, that's an indirect, very soft way of saying God determined something. I'm coming out and saying, he upholds your existence while you sin. Deal with that. And if you have no moral problem with that, you can't be objecting to Calvinists. And you need to provide answers to these questions, which we're about to do uh, when we start talking about the idea of evil. So this is why the foundation of understanding metaphysics and the idea of what a semi-deistic viewpoint looks like, contrasting that with what I believe a biblical viewpoint looks like, God is always in control, he's always exerting power. This is why I consider these three foundational verses to be far more important than any other quote-unquote Calvinistic verse that you could bring up. All the, all the verses we're familiar with, right? Whether it's God-hardening hearts um, or... The common ones are God, Ephesians 1, God works all things under the counsel of his will. The problem is if you don't have a proper understanding, foundation in place, then you can just get out of those verses by saying, oh, God doesn't actually work all things metaphysically. That's not what that verse is saying. What God does is he takes things and works them. Which is laughable because if, if God's taking something he didn't work and working it, then he's not working all things by definition. So... You don't, you're not even through the first phrase of your argument and you already face-planted. But back to the point, if God is taking something he didn't work and working it, you are a semi-deist. I mean, I hope it's clear by now after laying these things out. If God is taking something he didn't work and working it, which is what the vast majority of Christians believe and the way the vast majority of Christians would try to read Ephesians 1, God working all things, he's taking things he didn't work that apparently... I guess we worked with our free will. He's taking things that he didn't work and working them. That's some ideism. Plain and simple. Because it means that there are that you are a self-sustained entity that is causing your own effects, causes and effects, um, and God is taking what you worked and working it. Problem is you don't find that anywhere in the Bible. You have to assume free will into the Bible to even begin to think about a semi-deistic viewpoint. Instead, what you find with the three verses I've quoted the necessary answer, it's not me reading Calvinist into the verses, Calvinism into the verses. 
God works all things after the counsel of his will. If you understand that in light of God upholds the universe by the word of his power, there's no confusion. What I've said about metaphysics, God being the metaphysical cause of whatever comes to pass, is, is, is so clearly true. And I'm not reading anything into those verses at all. I'd also like to address the idea of um, a lot of misconceptions that can come up just by me simply stating that Calvinists believe that God is in control of all things, that is, he's always exerting power over things. When you start with a semi-deistic worldview, which unfortunately most people have, where you are just bopping along, right, with this thing called free will, when I say that God is exerting power over you, you get this misconception that you are minding your own business, and along comes God, and he interferes or meddles in your affairs and exerts power over you so that you'll do something he wants you to do. And so he is controlling you, right? This is very common. This is what this is what brings about um, misrepresentations and false assumptions such as, oh, we're puppets, we're robots, God is forcing us to do stuff, um, so on and so forth. And what I'd like to do is just stop for a moment and ask you to realize that in light of what I've laid out as a foundation, um, to just be a little more fair with what's being said, what I am saying is, God is not choosing to exert or not exert power over you. God's exerting power over you at all times is a necessary consequence of your existence as a finite created thing. Since Hebrews 1.3 is true, since God is always exerting power and upholding your existence, um, it is a necessary consequence that he is exerting power over you at all times and is in control of you at all times, right? It is not a, a switch that is flipped on and off. Sometimes he's controlling you, sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's exerting power over you, sometimes he's not. He is always in control. He is always exerting power from start to finish, and it can't be any other way. Right? This is my logical claim. This, this follows up the idea of it is impossible for God to give you free will. It is impossible for God to metaphysically disconnect himself from you. Now, when I say that God can't choose to do it, he could choose to stop exerting the power, right? But you cease to exist. Okay, so don't misunderstand me. I am not taking away from the freedom of God by saying he must control you and he must exert power over you. What I'm saying is if God chooses that you shall exist, and if God chooses that you shall continue to exist, and that's his freedom to choose that, if he chooses that you should continue to exist, then the necessary consequence of that relationship of creator to creation is he is exerting power over you at all times, and he is in control of you at all times. That's my claim. Uh, Hebrews 1.3, I do not see any possible logical way out of that. And again, if you're just going to appeal to mystery and tell me my imagination isn't big enough, we're not going to get anywhere and we're wasting time. I am talking to people who take these issues seriously enough to, while you might not agree with what I'm saying, at least understand the logical angle that I'm coming from. Okay, so I'm setting this up because I'm going to address the false assumptions of robots and puppets and, and these sorts of things in a minute. But just understand that when I say that God exerts power over you, it is not this, this forceful, um, he could or couldn't be, flip the switch on and off type of exerting of power. The only reason you exist or continue to exist is because he is exerting power in the first place. That's my claim. It is always true. He is always in control from start to finish. It is the necessary metaphysical relationship of God to what he has created. And this is biblical. This is not me ranting on about Calvinism. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by his power. Acts 27, 
In him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1, in him all things consist. These verses are always true. It is a biblical understanding of the, the existence of things and the relationship between the creator and the creation. Okay? And so to clear up a, a quick misunderstanding that might arise from what I'm, what I'm saying then is you might be asking, well, if God is metaphysically in control of all things, if he's metaphysically the quote-unquote cause of all things, if he's quote-unquote working all things, then what is the point of, of God ever interacting with creation? I mean, after all, if he just wants it to happen the way he wants it to happen, why does he ever need to do anything? Why does he ever need to speak to anybody or give commands or send a gospel or do any of these things? Enter creation, become one of the dots in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Why would God need to do any of that if he is just... Um, if he's in control of all things, can't he just snap his fingers and have things done the way that he wants them to be done? Don't we need some sort of semi-deistic view where God is hands off of what he's created and, and therefore he needs to do these interactions so that he can get things to happen the way that he wants, so on and so forth, which is the vast majority of the way the vast majority of Christians believe. The point is, guys, of course God could snap his fingers and have anything done any way he wants to. The question is, how does God want things done? So, God could have created the universe in a perfect state without the possibility of a fall, and everybody lives happily ever after. He could have done that. I, <laughs> obviously, I'm not saying he couldn't have done that. There are people on the free will side who would say he could not have done that. Not all of them, but some of them. But certainly, Calvinists would say God could have done, he could have made creation and determined creation and done creation any way he saw fit. The question is, how has he done things, and why has he done things that way? And this is what gives rise to various unpopular views, and that is to say that God could have created the world perfectly and never had a fall, but he chose that there would be a fall, determined that there would be a fall, because he wanted to demonstrate his wrath against sin and his mercy in the salvation of sinners. So sin and evil is part of God's plan. He didn't have to make it that way, but he chose to. And this goes for any other interaction along, down along the line. If you look at any interaction that God has with somebody in the Bible, you can view that in two ways. You can view that semi-deistically, the way most people do, and that is that, well, God had to come along and, and interact with somebody because they just weren't, things just weren't going the way he wanted them to. So he had to, he had to speak up, or he had to take action to get things flowing the way he wants them to, because you have a semi-deistic view where God is not always in control, and so he needs to exert power here and there to make sure he's in control. The other way to understand that, in light of what I've been saying, that God is in absolute control of everything, is that when God interacts with various things, that's all part of what he has planned and determined. Okay? So, so for example, when it comes to the gospel, preaching, people getting saved, God could just snap his fingers and regenerate everybody and have everybody be saved. He could supernaturally upload matrix style knowledge into people's brains of, of the gospel and have everybody but everybody be saved is anybody going to deny that the god of the universe could do that i would hope not so he could do that but he has chosen not to he has chosen to use various means to accomplish various ends and so in these discussions you'll often hear calvinists talk about means to ends means to ends uh, is just a way of understanding when we say God has determined all things, we really mean all things. We don't just mean that somebody will be saved someday. We also mean everything that leads up to and involves how that person ends up being saved. So, once again, I say all this so that you do not get the misunderstanding 
that 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 this worldview where God is in control of all things does not account for or have room for God interacting. It is actually the only way that that makes sense of God's interaction and, and in light of God being in control of all things in the first place. In other words, why would God have to interact if he could just determine things to be the way that he wanted them to? Well, it's because he has chosen to include his own interaction as the means by which various things that he's determined are accomplished. And I'll get more into means and ends and in, in my in my defense video, but but very quickly, um, means and ends just depends on where you're assigning the reference point. So if you look at that dotted line and you zoom in and zero in on a particular dot and say, that's going to be the end I'm going to consider, how then did we get to that end? And you start tracing things back, all the things that you trace back would be the means to that end. And all we're saying is God is in control of all things, and so every absolutely everything in that dotted line has a particular purpose. Absolutely everything in that dotted line. There are no dead ends. There are no, well, that could have gone better for God, or God would have had it his way, it would have gone this way or that way, and so he was just scrambling to do the best he could. No, every dot along the way had a particular plan, a particular purpose, a particular place, a particular determinative reason for being there to bring about the next dot, the next dot, the next dot. Everything that comes to pass is part of God's plan and creative plan and that includes his own interaction with um, that very creation. So do not think that uh, because God has determined all things that his interactions are somehow unnecessary. Uh, his interactions are the ways he, he has chosen, or one of the ways he has chosen to bring about the various things he has determined. Now as we build upon this idea of uh, God's relationship to the things he's created, one, one of the most important points that can be um, that needs to be firmly established is properly understanding God's relationship in terms of being transcendent, right? Everybody says it, but what does it actually mean? Because a lot of false um, understandings and misrepresentations against the Calvinistic position uh, stem from a, a failure to recognize that God is standing in a transcendent position when it comes to his relationship to what he's created. So, so what do I mean by that specifically? Uh, Calvinists often like to use the idea of authorship. God is the divine author of creation. And what we mean by that is, in the same way that you or I would author a story, right? We would think up the story. We would plan the story. Every last detail of the story, including characters, uh, the types of characters they are, what things they will do, characteristics, personalities, so on and so forth. This is all going to be planned by, by the author of the story. And yet... It's not a contradiction to then say that the author is choosing what the characters will choose to do, and yet as that story unfolds, the characters are making those choices, which were planned and determined by the author nonetheless, but they are making those choices as the story unfolds. And this is one of the best ways to, to understand what is going on with God and creation. God planned out creation prior to creating it, and he determined everything about it, including us and our choices, right? So it can, in a certain sense, be said God chose our choices. But the reason that's not a contradiction is when you properly understand that God is the author, he is determining and planning and purposing everything that happens, including our choices, and yet that creation, that story, still plays out. It unfolds in time. So we make choices in time, right? That's a fact. But God also chose the way in which we would make choices, it's not a contradiction. It would only be a contradiction if you try to lower God down 
uh, to and, and be on par with you and say that, well, when it comes to making choices, it's either you or God. Well, since God is transcendent, it can actually be both. Ultimately, God is the one who chooses what happens, including your choices, right? Ultimately. But on the storyline level, you are making those choices, and you are choosing them. You're doing what you want, so on and so forth. And so it's both, right? It's not either you making choices or God making choices. And if God wants to determine what you'll choose, he has to force you. That's a misrepresentation. When you properly understand God's transcendent position as the divine author, um, it's both. It is God choosing and you choosing. It's just understanding that one is the result of the other, right? They are not on the same level. And so when we provide this proper context to the idea of God's standing or relationship to the universe as being transcendent, and he is in the ultimate position as the divine author, then a lot of future um, misrepresentations, which we're going to cover as this episode unfolds, become much more apparent. It's also extremely important to understand that God is not just the author who makes a story up and then sets it in motion and stands by. God has chosen to write himself into the story. He has chosen to become one of the dots in that dotted line at various times, various points, obviously in the incarnation, but even in any other way that God would interact, whether it's giving commands or saying, if you do this, I'll do that, the way, all of the ways that you can point to in the Bible and say, see, look there, God interacted with us, right? All of that was part of what God planned and purposed, all of it. So God didn't just plan the story, he wrote himself into the story, but it's important to note that God did not do that reactively. Right? The free will side would say that even in eternity past, when God planned creation, he, reactive, he, he reacted to you in his own mind, somehow. You were on par with him when it came to making choices, ultimately, so that he looked into the future, saw what you would do, and then planned accordingly. And then what you see playing out in creation is just the outplay of, of that, of God reacting to you and what you would do. But Calvinists say no. What happens is, God's the divine author. He actively plans everything about creation, including his own interactions. And so it can be said that God planned actively that you would do what you would do so that he could do what he was going to do in time and in creation. But you need to understand the difference between God being transcendent when we talk about him uh, making choices in eternity past versus the choices he makes in time. He actively in eternity past planned the choices that he would reactively make in time. And it all unfolds the way that he had planned it to unfold. And, and that is the summary of the, of the major difference between the two positions. The free will side would say that God planned what he would do because of what you would do, whereas Calvinists would say God planned what you would do so that he could do what he would do. And I understand this is complicated, but you'll see this begin to play out as we begin considering these things more fully. I'd now like to take a hopefully very brief uh, moment to really drive home these three foundational verses. I've mentioned them briefly, and I hope that the logical uh, conclusions that I've been drawing from them are, are apparent and obvious. When we have verses that say God upholds the universe by his power, and it's always true, moment by moment by moment, that in God all things consist, have their being, and that in God we live and move and have our being. These three foundational verses, um, I believe, are um, unavoidable, and so what, what often happens when these verses are brought up, people will somehow appeal to mystery and just say, yeah, okay, those are true, but we still have free will, and, and just sort of dismiss them. What I'd like to do is mention something that digs below this, that surface level, and really drives home the point. 
So, and the, the, the main point that I want to drive home is that if God is upholding the universe moment by moment by moment, we need to ask the question, which comes first logically, okay? Logically speaking, does God have to exert the power to uphold the universe so that the next moment of time can come to pass? Or, or does the next moment of time come to pass before God upholds it, right? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. I shouldn't even have to ask that question. But the answer to that question, which is obvious, that God must exert power prior to something coming to pass, is actually, in my opinion, the greatest refutation of the idea of free will that, that, that could ever be brought up. I know that's a big claim, but let's just examine this for a moment. If every moment of time that comes to pass must first be brought to pass by God's exerting of power, then how can you ever say that you are making a choice that is independent of God? Okay, And this ties into the foreknowledge of God as well. So how can you say, how can God foreknow what you're going to do if God has to uphold your existence before you can do it? Right? So I'm not talking about what's coming to pass actually in time. I'm talking about God in his mind foreknowing the future, the future state of his creation. Moment by moment by moment. How can God foreknow what the future moment will be unless he first foreknows the way in which he's going to exert power over that moment to uphold it? Because his upholding power must come first. Right? So I think that when you stop to consider this, that a free will position must actually, not temporally, but logically reverse those two things. And say that God can somehow, again, this is a mystery, and it's magical, according to the free will view, but God must somehow be able to foreknow a future state of his universe before he foreknows and chooses to uphold that moment, that state of the universe, that future moment, which doesn't make any sense at all, right? If every moment that comes to pass is dependent upon God first choosing to exert the power, you're basically saying, well... God looks into the future somehow, a future that he's not already considered upholding, and he sees what you're going to do, sees your free will choice, and then makes the choice that at that moment in time in the future, he will exert the, the sustaining power necessary for you to make that choice. But that's backwards. That's illogical. That doesn't make any sense. Because according to Hebrews 1.3, God upholds the universe by his power. Um, God's power comes first whether it's temporally or logically, we're talking logically here, logically prior to God foreknowing the next moment of time, he must first foreknow that he's going to exert power to uphold that moment of time. And obviously he's going to know exactly the way in which he's going to exert that power in upholding that moment of time. And so this supports the idea that Calvinists say God foreknows the future because he's determined it. God foreknows the future state of his universe because he first foreknows the way in which he's going to exert power over that future moment of the universe in his sustainment of that of that future moment, and the same thing happen, uh, the same thing goes for you making choices. God foreknows what you'll do tomorrow, not because he looked into the magical future and mysteriously foreknew it. He foreknows what you're going to do tomorrow because he foreknows the way in which he's going to uphold your existence tomorrow. This is an extremely important point. Just wanted to take that time to drive these three verses home and show that you cannot just dismiss them. You cannot just say. Yeah, those verses are true. God upholds the universe, but I also have free will. I make choices independent of him, and it's just a mystery, right? That is a sign that you are not willing to logically um, criticize your, your viewpoint and, and answer questions. You just want to believe what you want to believe because it makes you feel good and appeal to mystery when you're presented with problems. 
This is once again what I consider these three verses to be the most important foundational verses in the entire Bible when it comes to the idea of God's metaphysical relationship to what he has created. So let's lay another important foundation here and talk about the omni-attributes of God. This is something, after reading these verses, you know, the reason I love these three verses so much is it, it, it just causes all aspects of your worldview to be seen in a new light and things start popping out. And one of the things that popped out to me in light of these three verses is understanding the omni-attributes of God. Of course, understanding the eternal nature of God, we can't directly relate to it, uh, but we can still conceptually understand aspects of it. And for most people, and for myself, I think I'm speaking for most people when I say that it, the omni-attributes just sort of seemed a little spooky. Oh, God's all places at all times? He's omnipresent? Well, that's a little, that's a little creepy, right? Not quite sure how that works, but I guess he's God, so he can do it. Or the idea of him knowing the future, right? We, we jokingly say looking down the quarters of time or using a crystal ball or, you know, this idea of God knowing the future seems a little spooky and we don't quite understand it, but I guess it's he's God so he can do it, right? Well, when you take these three verses and start understanding the omni-attributes of God in light of these verses, everything becomes much more clear. So I'll start with omnipresence. God is it, all places at all times. He's everywhere. Well... If he is always upholding the existence of everything he's created, then he must be present with the thing he's upholding, right? So it turns from something spooky into a logical necessity. It's a no-brainer. Of course God's omnipresent. He hasn't just created everything and let go of it. He is always upholding it and therefore always must be present with it. Omnipresence is obvious. It's blatantly, it's obvious, right? So how about omniscience? God knows the future. I know this gets a little tricky because there are Christians who would deny that God knows the future. And we'll get into the idea of open theism in, in future future episodes. But in this episode, I'm going to assume that as Christians, we all agree God knows all things, including the future. Well, if God is present with and upholding all things, then he would know everything in the past, obviously. He would know everything at present, obviously. And he would know everything in the future, obviously, because he would have to foreknow how he himself is going to exert his power in the future. This is very important. And my favorite topic is the foreknowledge of God. And... To try to bring up an important point, um, when Calvinists say that God knows the future because he determined it, that's true, but we're not just saying that because it's fun. We're saying that because there's a completely valid logical reason behind it, right? God knows the future because he determined it is nothing more than saying God knows the future because he knows how he himself is going to act in the future. God knows the future because the three verses I read are true. God upholds your existence moment by moment by moment, and so he also foreknows the way you're going to exist in the future because he foreknows the way that he himself is going to exert his power over your existence in the future, right? This is consistent. It's very, it's very simple, very consistent. It's rock solid, right? So God's omniscience becomes less spooky. Of course God knows the future and knows all things because he's present with all things. Nothing can come to pass except by his power to begin with, and it just... Very clear, very solid. And lastly, om omnipotence. God is all-powerful, the biggest no-brainer of all. If God is always exerting power over everything, he is always all-powerful. He is always in control of all things. But this is where things get interesting. Because people like to say, when they're going to fit free will into the picture, they'll say, you know what? God, omnipotence doesn't mean that God is always exerting power over you. What it means is that God could exert power over you if he wanted to, but he can choose not to exert power over you so that you can have free will. 
Now that sounds great on the fly, but I want you to take that uh, modification is what I'm going to call it, modification to the idea of omnipotence and apply that modification to the other two omni attributes and see if it makes any sense at all. If I were to say, hey, guess what? Omnipresence doesn't actually mean that God is all places at all times. What omnipresence means is God could be all places at all times if he wants to. But what he can choose to do is to not be present in your bathroom because he's a nice guy who respects your privacy. But I'm still going to say that God is omnipresent because I don't want to deny the attribute. This is absurd. You would all laugh. You would all say that's ridiculous. God doesn't get to choose whether or not to be omnipresent, right? It's not up to him. It is a, it is a logically necessary aspect of his nature. The relationship of what he's created to himself is constant reliance upon his power and so the idea that God could not be present with something would mean he would not be upholding it by his power would violate the whole the whole concept here and so the same thing goes for the omniscience of God if I were to go full Jehovah's Witness and say that God could know that omniscience doesn't mean that God does know the future or know all things it just means that if God wanted to, he could know all things, but it just so happens that God can choose to blind himself to various aspects of the future to provide room for your free will, so on and so forth. Sounds nice on the fly, but again, I'm violating what it means to be omniscient, right? You don't get to modify the term and turn it from an absolute essential part of God's nature into something that he could or could not be. Well, the same thing holds true for omnipotence. Why do you find it acceptable then? If it's not up to God whether or not he's omnipresent, if he must be omnipresent, if it's not up to God whether or not he knows all things, he must know all things by nature, why is it when it comes to the idea of God's omnipotence, suddenly he could or could not be omnipotent or could or could not exert power over you at all times, and suddenly it becomes his choice? If your entire existence relies upon his power, he must be exerting power over you at all times. It's not up to him, right? It's up to him to exert or not exert the power, but if he's not exerting the power over you, you would you would cease to exist, right? So I just find it very funny when we talk about the army attributes of God, and the reason it's important is not only do they become much more understandable, they they, they fall in line with these three verses beautifully, right? Omni omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. In light of God always upholding the universe, they just fit perfectly, but it addresses a very important common uh free will uh, argument, and that is that God can choose to not exert power over you and not control you so that you can have free will. Well, I'm here to tell you, no, he cannot. He cannot choose to do that. If God chooses to not exert power over you, you cease to exist. You cannot exist in a semi-deistic state of self-existence, self-causation, self-sustainment, self um, so on and so forth. It is impossible for God to give you free will. I'm sorry. This is your wake-up call. You do not get to claim attributes of God for yourself, right? This is a wake-up call. You got, it is impossible for God to create you with free will. Now, as soon as I say that it is impossible for God to give you free will, um, what comes out of most people's mouths at that point are just very simple comments like, well, uh, how dare you limit God? God's God so he can do it. Um, your imagination just isn't big enough, so on and so forth. Now, first of all, you are correct, my imagination is not big enough to hold to logically contradictory things. There is a big difference between a mystery and a logical contradiction. A mystery is when you do not fully understand something. Nevertheless, what you do understand about it is still perfectly logically valid. Okay? That is a mystery. There are plenty of mysteries. Right? A mystery is not what many Christians, unfortunately, th try to uh, throw into the mystery 
pool, which is taking logically contradictory beliefs, and instead of abandoning abandoning those logically contradictory beliefs, they want to continue to hold on to them, so they chuck it into the mystery pool and hope that it just all gets covered up and forgot forgotten about. Okay? You should not be proud of holding to logically contradictory things. This is not a good thing, right? If something is logically contradictory, it is false by definition. You should not be proud of believing false things. You should strive to believe truth, right? Regardless of how good it makes you feel, okay? So there's a difference between a mystery and a contradiction, all right? When I say that God cannot give you free will, um, this is a, there are positive limitations of God, right? There are plenty of things that God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot create another God. He cannot make a square circle, so on and so forth, right? So I'm not saying God can't do this thing because he's not powerful enough, right? That would be a negative limitation. Negative limitation would be, well, since God's not God, he can't do it. Positive limitations are things that God cannot do precisely because he is God. And that is the, that is the uh, category of the, of the claim that I am making when I say that God cannot give you free will. So my initial accusation against the free will position from the very start with the verses I've quoted is how can you admit that God is upholding your existence um, at all times and yet also maintain a position that says that you are free from him, right? This idea of free will. This is a logical contradiction. It is logically contradictory for you to believe that God is upholding your existence moment by moment, that in God you live and move and have your being, that your entire existence as a finite created thing relies upon the power of God for continued existence. That is a logical contradiction to then claiming that God can create you as a self-sustained, self-powered, self-determined, self-caused entity. This is a logical contradiction. And what needs to be recognized is, when I make my claim that God can't give you free will, I'm spending over an hour, probably close to two here in just this episode, on all sorts of logical reasons why he can't do that. I am justifying my claim. I'm not just throwing it out there. Not just saying God can't do it, and then when you question me, give some sort of ridiculous answer, like, well, God's God, and, you know, don't question it, and this sort of things. I'm actually giving perfectly logical and scriptural reasons why God can't do that. Your claim is God can. As a free will proponent, you believe God can give you free will, and I am asking for justification for that claim. What often happens is people fast forward past the claims, and they start arguing about all sorts of other fun stuff. And it's all fun and great, and it has its place. Don't get me wrong. But we fat, let's, let's rewind backwards to the, just the simple claim to begin with that God can even give you free will to, to begin with. It's one thing to start talking about why free will doesn't make sense here, or doesn't make sense there, or doesn't answer that question, or that's going to happen eventually, right? I want justification for the basic claim that God can give you free will in the first place, right? And I am showing, from my view, um why it cannot be the case, right? I don't expect you to just accept it, but you need to recognize that I'm giving logically valid justifications for my claim that it is impossible for God to give you free will. This is why I'm bringing up things like the omni-attributes of God, for example, since my claim is based upon the fact that since God is God, he can't do this or that, right? Since God is God, he cannot be anything other than omnipresent, right? And if I were to say that, well, God's God and he can do it, God can be omnipresent and yet not present in your bathroom because he's God and he can do it. And if you can't, if you don't accept that, your imagination is not big enough, right? That's not me forming an argument. That's not me being rational. That is not me being a good Christian. That is just me wanting to hold to two contradictory things. 
And then when you point out the fact that it's contradictory, uh, making ridiculous comments, right? This doesn't get us anywhere, okay? And this is my point. If you were going to say that it is possible for God to give you free will and dig below that on-the-fly basic claim and actually address how that plays out with defi proper definitions of free will, like freedom from God, self-causation, self-determination, um, if you're going to say that God can do that, how could you argue against me when I say things like God can not be present in your bathroom or that God can choose not to know certain things or that God can choose to not exert power over things but still be all-powerful? How are you going to argue against anything if, if you cannot, if, if you accept throwing out a claim without justification, right? And so this is the point. If you're going to say that God can give you free will, you might as well say that it's possible for God to violate all sorts of other logical things, right? And we should not be doing that. That's the point here. Um, you need to be justifying your claims, which I'm trying to justify mine, obviously. And I want to quickly clear up this. I, this is a false assumption that if, if determinism is true, if what I'm saying is true, if God is in control of all things, if he's determined everything we're going to do and then brings it to pass that determinism equals this idea that you are forced to do things. And the problem with this assumption is it, it is not listening to what is being said. If I say that God controls all things, and you conclude from that God forces you to do things, you have not considered the simple statement, God is in control of all things, right? Including your desires, right? So the idea of force implies that there is an aspect of you that is still not under the control of God, so that he has to force you to do what you don't want to do. And the fact of the matter is that the worldview I'm presenting has God in control of all things, which would include the fact that you want to do it. And so the idea of force simply evaporates in, and is, is uh, exposed as a false assumption. Force implies that God is only in control of one part of you, not all of you. Okay, so you're not listening to the worldview that you're trying to critique when you raise that false accusation or that 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 objection. And the funny thing about that is, the objection stems once again. I hate to be so repetitive, but the objection stems from an assumed, this ingrained in us assumption of a semi-deistic worldview, where you are your own self-powered thing that God, if He wants to control, has to come along and exert power over you. But if you, again, reject the, the semi-ideistic idea and understand that I have said that you are God is in control of you from the start at all times, you are fully reliant upon his power, then everything about your, your existence, including what you do, why you do it, the fact that you want to do it, it is all under his control. And so God doesn't need to force you to do anything, right? Um, and, the, and the ironic fact is that um, you are actually far less free from God than if he were to force you. If God were forcing you to do stuff, there would be a part of you that was still free from him that he would need to exert power over. And so the reality is that you are far less free from God than if you were forced by him because he is in control of absolutely everything. And this goes to show that force as a, as a concept, as a term, is not strong enough to describe the level of control that God has over you. Force implies there's a part of you that he is not in control of. Therefore, he needs to exert force, exert power. I'm telling you that he is in control of absolutely every part of you. And so the idea of force is too weak of a term to describe the true reality. 
Now, force as a term is something we use a lot because we, well, this is part of the problem is we try to relate things to us. So we say, well, if God is going to control something, then that would be the exact same thing as me trying to control something. And it just so happens that as a finite creature, if I try to control something that I did not create, that I do not uphold by the existence by my power, so on and so forth, that I am not in complete control of already, if I go and try to quote unquote control that thing, then I need to exert force. Well, that's obvious, but it's obvious for the reason I'm getting at. Force implies there's something about it that you are not in control of. If you, if you instead try to relate to the fact that if you somehow had the ability to create something and every moment of that something's existence relied upon your power so that you had to be exerting power every single moment to keep it in existence, then you would understand that that thing that you are quote unquote controlling is not being forced by you. You're not forcing anything about it. Everything about it exists by your will, by your choice, by your power, every moment of its existence. And this is the view I'm trying to get across to people, is that God is not exerting power over things that are self-sustained. Semideism needs to be rejected. Instead, God has created all things. He upholds all things. The idea of force when it comes to God is rather absurd. It is not as though you are a, a power and God is a power. And so for God to control you, he needs to exert more power. And so he's, he has more power than you. And so his power wins. And so you just do what he wants you to do. And, you know, woe is you. You are not a power in and of yourself. Any power that you have comes from God to begin with. You are completely reliant upon him. And this false understanding, this false assumption that you are a self-sustained thing, that God from the outside needs to come and control and exert power over is what gives rise to all these false um, false arguments and false attacks that say that, well, if God's going to determine or control everything about me, then that makes me just a puppet or a robot or, or something like that. Once again, can you see the problem with, with those comparisons yet? It is some, taking something that we experientially control, puppets and robots, and trying to equate that to the way God controls things. I can absolutely assure you that God has 99.9999, 100 billion nines percent more control over you than you could ever have over a puppet or a robot. Because you did not create the puppet or robot. You do not uphold the puppet or robot's existence moment by moment, right? So the idea of relating something that you're controlling to the way that God controls you is laughable. It is logically fallacious. It, it, I hope you can see the problem with it by now, okay? So... The idea of puppets and robots, once again, not strong enough. Not strong enough. Right? God is in far more control over you than you ever could be over a puppet. And that's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. Because by affirming that, we deny the idea of deism. And I just want to make it very clear that if at this point you are sitting there saying, wow, this guy is one of those extreme Calvinists who says that God is in meticulous, absolute control that God is the metaphysical cause of all things that come to pass. Congratulations, you are properly understanding the things I'm getting across. That is exactly what I am saying. God is the cause of anything and everything that comes to pass. There is not one thing that has ever occurred in this universe that has occurred by a power other than God's. And if you think that there has, this is my point. You are committing semi-deism, in the sense of some form of deism, because you're saying that there was 
a self-sustained power out there somewhere doing something that was not by the power of God, and you are committing the idea of dualism and saying that ultimately there are more than one ultimate power at work. Now, you can sit there and talk about how God is infinitely more powerful than that other power, but it's still dualism, right? It's still the idea that there was another power out there at work in the universe, ultimately. And this is the point, is ultimately speaking, when we look out and we see quote-unquote powers, we see causes and effects, we see the sun burning, stars exploding, we see volcanoes going off, we see animals living, breathing, we're making choices, we're thinking thoughts, all of these things, we, we view them as causes and effects, we ascribe these ideas of natural laws to them so that we can make sense of them, understand them. Um, the universe is a giant web of interconnected causes and effects. And my point is that God is the cause of all of those things every step along the way. Because Hebrews 1.3 is true. God upholds the universe by the word of his power. The verse is true all the time, moment by moment by moment. And this is why I'd like to bring up um, a very common way that most most Calvinists would start to talk about the idea of the control of God. You might you might hear them start talking about direct and indirect causes. And I need to be careful when I go down this road because I'm not accusing most Calvinists of, of being wrong. I think they're half wrong. They're, they're half wrong and half right when they start talking about direct and indirect causes. And I, I want to expound on this quickly in terms of what I've been saying. When I was first a Calvinist, I argued very strongly for the idea that God was the indirect cause of, all, of, of evil. Um, he's obviously direct, the direct cause of bringing things into existence, and so a lot of Calvinists will talk about God setting up dominoes. So he sets up all the dominoes so that they'll fall exactly how he wants them to fall, but then he starts the first domino, that's the direct cause, and then every other, he's, therefore he's the indirect cause of every other domino falling, so that when those evil dominoes come about, um, God isn't the direct cause of them, and so we're somehow saving God from being the cause of evil, and on and on and on, and this is brought about by the false assumption that God needs to be distanced from evil in the first place, which I do not think that he does, metaphysically, which we'll get to. But um, if you notice, bringing up the idea of semi-deism, that, that is semi-deistic, in a sense. And that's the way I thought for a long time. Because if God is, if the dominoes, if, if some of the dominoes are falling not by God's power, but by the power of other dominoes, then that's semi-deistic dualism, Right? that there's more than one power at work in the universe. My point is that, yes, dominoes are falling. Yes, we're observing causes and effects. Yes, we can draw connections from one domino to the next. But it is God's power. Those, those dominoes are not powers in and of themselves. It is God's power which keeps the dominoes in existence and causes them to interact the way they interact to begin with. So when I say that most Calvinists are half right about direct and indirect causes— the only way in which direct and indirect causes makes any sense is when you're focused in on that dotted line and you're just saying, what is my relationship to something else in creation? When you're talking about connecting the dots and the way that these causes and effects play out, you can point to something over there and then something over there and say, okay, so there's a direct cause, there's an indirect cause, so on and so forth. But when you're going to talk about how God fits into that picture, God is never the indirect cause of anything. He is always the direct cause of everything. Because, again, you've got the dotted line, and then the God's solid line of sustaining power, which underlies it all. God is in a transcendent position. God is not stuck down in with the dots, so that sometimes it's the, the God dot causing things, and other time it's the you dot causing things. This is the point I'm trying to get across. God transcends creation. He created it all. He upholds it all. His causation, quote-unquote, 
is of a different metaphysical nature than our causation. I can be said to be causing things, yet my causing of those things is horizontally ascribed to me, but vertically ascribed to the power of God. God is the power behind all causes and effects. It is his power which makes them causes and effects to begin with. They are not powers in and of themselves. This is how we avoid deism. This is how we avoid dualism. This is how we maintain a consistent Christian worldview with verses like, God upholds the universe, in God all things consist, in God we live and move and have our being. Um, it's a very consistent view. So I just wanted to point out that most Calvinists, in my opinion, should not be talking about direct and indirect causes when it comes to God. They should be ascribing all things to the direct power and control and causation of God. So now we're going to transition into the idea of choice. Uh, and we're going to start talking about things like determinism, self-determinism. We're going to start talking about, once again, this is the outplay of what we've already covered, right? Do we have free will? Can we have free will? Uh, is God in control of all things? What is God's metaphysical relationship to things? How does that, what does that look like in time? How do we experience it, right? It's not just this simple, God snaps his fingers and something happens. There's an outplay of it. There's a working of it. And, and as we're going to see... We're going to start talking about choice and choice for God versus choice for us. What does it mean to make choice choices in a finite realm? Do you have to have free will for a choice to be choice? These sorts of questions, we're going to address that as we transition into the idea of determinism and self-determinism. So when we consider the idea of us making choices and whether or not those choices are determined or self-determined, these two terms become extremely important. Very briefly, there's actually a third term called indeterminism, but indeterminism is literally randomness. It is it is the idea that th things are happening for no reason, and it doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, everybody denies the idea of indeterminism, okay? Nobody believes in, in, in randomness, okay? Um, we believe either something is determined by God or it is determined by man, and that is the argument we're having. There is no such thing as undetermined things, okay? So let's, let's take indeterminism and just completely re reject it, throw it aside. We're not even going to discuss it anymore. All we care about is the idea of determinism and self-determinism. So these two terms, in the context of you making choices, let's very simply and briefly define what's going on. Determinism would teach that, yes, you make choices. It's not a denial that we make choices, but determinism teaches that your choice is part of a determinative chain of causes and effects. It's part of the chain. It does not transcend the chain. That is what determinism would teach. So, you choose what you choose, and then you can insert and follow a determinative chain as to why you chose what you chose. You can start talking about, well, you wanted to do it. Well, why did you want to do it? And then you can start talking about current state of mind. What is this, this situation? How much do you know? You know, your, your, your state of knowledge. You can talk about past experience. You can talk about what mood you're in, there are all sorts of what we would call determinative things that, that are part of that chain that end up determining what you do. And so the point, the main point to get across is that your choice is part of the chain. Now when you contrast that with self-determinism, self-determinism is the idea that you make choices um, not that are not determined by things external uh, to you, but rather that you determine from within yourself, somehow, uh, to do what you do. And so what self-determinism does is it, it makes it so that you actually transcend that determinative causes and effects chain 
and you become your own starting point, so to speak, right? Your choice starts with you, is what self-determinism would teach. Now, for those of you who would say, yes, that's exactly right. That's the point I'm trying to get across. Free will is us as the starting point of our own choices. God is not the determiner. Our surrounding circumstances are not the determiner. Our past experiences are not the determiner. Our current state of mind is not the determiner. On and on and on. All these determinative things that I would point to are denied. You are the self-determined cause of your choices. This is the free will position. And if you... If you would shy away from any aspect of that, I can pull up quotes and sound bites of, of free will proponents in public debate coming out and saying blatantly that free will means that we create out of nothing our choices. I'll say that again. Free will means we create out of nothing our choices. Self-determinism. That is what is being taught by the free will position. Now, what I'd like to do is consider the idea of determinism and self-determinism with regards to God in the eternal realm and man in the finite realm. And what I'd like to show is that everybody agrees God has free will. Everybody agrees that self-determinism is true of God. Where we disagree is whether or not man can have that same nature of existence. So when we consider God in the eternal realm, there is nothing prior to a creation, there is nothing outside of God that could have moved him to create. Right? So determinism is logically impossible in the eternal realm. God is self-sufficient. He's self-sustained. Um, when he went to create, when he made that choice, that choice was an active choice, and it was made from within himself, self-deterministically. Okay? So in God, with God, in the infinite realm, determinism is impossible, and self-determinism self is not just possible, but necessary. So determinism, logically impossible for God, Self-determinism, logically necessary for God. Now, on the flip side of that, when you consider a finite realm, a realm which completely relies on God for its existence, a realm of which when we look out around us, all we see is a constant and continual demonstration of the idea of determinism, one thing leading to the next thing, leading to the next thing, then I would, I would claim that the opposite is true. So in the finite realm, determinism is logically necessary, right? Determinism is logically necessary of a finite realm, and therefore self-determinism is logically impossible. And so obviously you're disagreeing with what I'm saying here if you're a proponent of free will. But the next best place to go in this discussion is to start talking about what the nature of choice is in a finite realm. What does it mean for us? Let's put God aside for a moment. What does it mean for us to make choices in a finite realm? And what I'd like to point out is that it is falsely assumed that choice is only possible if free will is true. I would actually argue just the opposite, that in a finite realm, choice is only possible if determinism is true. And the reason for that is when you consider what it means to make a choice, choice, again, putting God aside, we'll come back to him, but, but choice for us is different than choice for God. Choice for God is active. Since nothing outside of God is moving or determining what he does, since self-determinism is true of God, self-determinism means that it is an active choice. Okay, But in a finite realm, our choices are reactive. We are presented with, by sources outside of our control, we are presented with options, A, B, C, D. And in order for us to make a choice between A, B, C, and D, our will needs to move from a state of indifference to preference. We need to, we need to prefer 
one choice over the other in order for a choice to be made. Because if you're indifferent, where there's indifference, there's no choice. Choice necessitates that you prefer one over the other. Now, the question that needs to be asked is, what is it that moves our will to prefer one choice over the other? Now, a free will position would say that we move ourselves. Again, self-causation, self-determinism would say that we move ourselves to prefer one choice over the other. But what I'd like to get you to do is step back and realize that in, in a finite realm, and in fact the reality we observe around us, that this is a circular answer that never provides an actual answer to why you're doing what you're doing. So we need to recognize that what contributes or goes into us making a final choice. And again, some choices are entirely instinctive. Let's put those aside for now because those are hard to argue from a free will position anyways. That would be clearly a deterministic idea. Let's talk about the idea of thought process and deliberation for a moment. I think it's fair to say that when we make what we feel feel to be real genuine choices, it involves thought process and deliberation. But you need to stop and realize something very interesting is that thought process and deliberation are only possible because determinism is true. Okay? You could not think logically. You could not think. You could not have a thought process if one thought didn't lead to the next thought leads to the next thought leads to the next thought. If if there was not a determinative connection between your thoughts, then then thought process would not even be possible. And therefore deliberation would also not be possible. Uh, and, and what we need to realize next is that our thought process and deliberation is determined by many factors as well, right? You're not just having random thoughts. You are having thoughts for specific reasons. You are deliberating in particular ways for specific reasons. And there's a very long list of things that can contribute to the way you deliberate or think the way that you think. Just some examples of determinative factors include past experience, current state of mind, the knowledge of the situations and the things involved in the choice that you're making. And, and when you f begin to flesh these things out, I want to make it clear that I am not saying that this topic is a simple topic. I am not saying that there cannot be a large number of things at many times unknown to us that are, that are contributing and determining the choices that we make. But us not knowing all the details does not ch remove the fact that there are deterministic reasons behind why we're doing what we're doing. And again, none of this makes any sense if determinism is not true. Of course, it is true, and that is why you can't just talk about generic situations where, well, in this cho in this way I chose A, in that sense I chose B, and so since I did one A and one B, I prove I have free will. No, all you've proven is that in situation A, given those circumstances, you acted the way that you acted, and in situation B, given a different set of circumstances, which could include the, the past experience of A, you made a different choice, but none, it is nonetheless a determined choice. And a very important point needs to be made quickly here, and that is that choice for God being different than choice for man, when you consider God before creation, there is nothing, it is not as though God woke up one morning and was presented with options, and now he gets to go, hmm, I'm going to choose between A and Z, right? There, there, God did not find himself in a situation and then make a choice. But that is exactly what we experience in time in a finite existence. We are never the starting point of our choice when you stop and think about it logically. I know it feels that way, but stop for a moment and think logically. You 
are making choices that are reactions to and responses to the situations that you find yourself in. And those situations that you find yourself in are presented to you by things that are outside of your control. This is an obvious reality. You are presented with options. And now, yes, you're choosing amongst those options. And I'm already tied those, I've already been tying that into the idea of determinism and why you're choosing what you're choosing. That's a separate issue. I just want to address this idea that God, choice for God, is active, right? Nothing outside of God. He was not presented with options. He was not influenced by surrounding circumstances, right? He didn't wake up one morning and find himself surrounded by options and circumstances which could have determined or moved him to do what he did, God actively chose to create and God actively chose to plan things the way that he did. When you contrast that with the idea of man and the nature of existence of creation and us us in that creation, we are finding ourselves in situations. We are making choices that are reactions to and responses to situations and options that are presented to us. So you cannot ignore those important distinctions between us making choices and God making choices. So don't get confused when I say that determinism is impossible for God. I'm not I'm not saying that that means he can't interact with a deterministic creation. The whole point here is that God in his eternal state by his own by his own nature determinism determinism is impossible for him in the sense that it is not an aspect of his real, his eternal reality his 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 eternal nature. Determinism by definition is the necessary aspect of a finite reality. It is, by definition, the necessary aspect of a reality that God creates, right? And this is the problem, is when you... This is what free will does. Free will says that you can reach up and grab self-determinism. You can reach up into the eternal realm where where only self-determinism is possible. Bring self-determinism down into the finite realm and give it to yourself and mix the two together. And somehow you can have a coherent view of reality. And what what I'm saying is that this is, in fact, not possible. You need to distinguish and show that the concept of self-determinism, true freedom, true free will, is only possible for an eternal being. It is only possible for God in the eternal realm. And just as soon as you begin considering a finite realm, where determinism, determinism is the outplay of the control of God of all things. Determinism is how we view God working all things, right? It is, it is a description of what we view God doing, and it is a description of a finite realm. You cannot take self-determinism and fit it into that realm. That is the overall point I'm trying to get across. When I distinguish between self-determinism and free will being only possible for God, and determinism and, and, and a denial of free will for man in a finite reality, This is why when you try to fit the idea of self-determinism, which is only possible for God in in the infinite realm, when you try to fit that into a finite realm where determinism is true and try to mix the two together and say that determinism and self-determinism can somehow coexist, um, what you end up doing is self-determinism always results in circularity and illogic. So... Again, if you're going to disconnect your choices from all the surrounding circumstances and all the, uh, the factors we listed off, like state of mind, past experience, um, all those things, you're going to disconnect your choices from those things and say that whenever you make a choice, those things are not determinative, then you're always going to end in circularity. Because you can't actually give a list going backwards of determinative causes and effects leading up to that choice. When I ask you why you did something, the best you can say is, because I did it. That's your answer, right? You could you could try to go one step and say, well, because I wanted to do it, but that's just restating that you that you did it. Obviously, if you did it, 
you wanted to do it. I'm asking you why you did it. Same thing as I'm asking you why you wanted to do it. And you would have to circle back. So why did you do it? Because I wanted to do it. Well, why did you want to do it? Because I chose to want to do it. Well, why did you choose to want to do it? Because I wanted to choose to want to do it. All the way back through infinity, you're just running in circles, logically speaking. And the funny thing is that you know that if you give a reason as to why you ever did something, then you're admitting determinism, right? Anytime that you're going to give a determinative reason as to why you did something, you're admitting determinism, you're refuting free will in the same breath, and this is why this makes no real-world practical sense. This only comes up when we start talking, uh, coincidentally, about theology and the, our relationship to God and whether, you know, how we get saved and whatnot. But if you stop and think about it, when have you ever in your life, ever in your life, in a, just a regular day situation, when somebody asked you why you did something, did you just say, well, because I've got free will? Or, well, I just did it because I did it. You might say, I don't know why I did it. I've said that quite a bit about my own choices, but you not knowing determinative reasons behind why you did something doesn't mean those determinative reasons weren't there. In, in practicality, when someone asks you, for example, why you ordered your steak the way you ordered it, you might say, well, it tastes good to me, right? Well, well, why does it taste good to you? Now, you might hit a brick wall in your understanding of, I don't know why it tastes good to me. Maybe it's in my genetics. Maybe it's how I was brought up. Maybe my parents always cooked steak for me in this way. I grew up that way. But notice you're, you're admitting determinism when you go down that road and you are refuting free will at the same time. And this goes for any choice you've ever made in the history of ever. Either you can, I'm not saying you can know all the exact reasons. Once again, it's a very complicated process, but either you can point to determinative reasons and admit determinism, or you can say, I don't know, which also admits determinism because you're just admitting something determined it. I just don't know what it was. Or you can say, I had free will and expect that somehow to be an answer, which of course the, the whole point here is it is not an answer to why you did what you did just want to circle back to the idea of ordering steak a particular way. Um, those of you who might be saying, well, uh, yeah, but I can order steak any way that I want. I would agree. The, the key there is what do you want? And why did you want what you wanted at that particular moment in time, right? It's wrong to look backwards in time and say, well, I ordered steak one way and I can go down in the future and order steak a different way. So see, I prove I have free will because I did one way in the past and I'm going to do a different way in the future. The problem is those are two different circumstances. In the past, the idea of ordering steak differently apparently probably never entered your mind, right? Uh, you ordered the steak the way you wanted it to, the way you always do, and that's that. Nobody introduced even the thought into your head about ordering steak differently. If they had, then maybe that situation would have been different. Maybe you would have considered ordering a steak differently. But once again, you're proving determinism as you go down that road because you're admitting that the only reason you would have done things differently is if the situation had been different. So when you look into the future and say, for example, I can go order my steak differently right now and I'm going to prove that I have free will. You're not proving you have free will. Ironically, you're proving determinism because you're ordering your steak differently because your desire to prove you have free will is now what is uh, determining your choice, right? There's a difference in the situation. Now, uh, the idea of proving free will has entered the scenario and that is causing you to choose differently than you would normally choose, right? So this is very important when it comes to this idea of dissecting and examining particular situations for you to have done differently the situation would have been different had to have been different right of course you can do what you want the question is why did you want to do what you want why did you want what you wanted right and there has to be deterministic answers that flow backwards and lead up to why you wanted what you wanted and why you did what you did that's the only point that's being made here 
And so this is why I come back once again to address this this foundational issue of choice being different for God than it is for us, the nature of choice, because the nature of choice directly relates to the nature of existence. And I can already hear people screaming, wait a minute, you say that choice is only possible if determinism is true. And you said that determinism is impossible for God, but God makes choices too. So you're contradicting yourself. I said that choice in a finite realm, key phrase, in a finite realm, choice in a finite realm is only possible if determinism is true. That's what I said. And so you need to recognize that choice for God is different for choi- different than choice for us. And it's so different, in fact, that we can only begin to conceptually consider it, and it's hard to put words to it, but it is not something that we can relate to. Again, the idea of choice for God, the idea of self-determinism, if you want to call it that, is the idea that you did something, you chose to do something, not because of outside factors, but only because of something from within yourself. This is not something we can relate to. Because as I said, every choice you have ever made included options presented to you by an outside source. So already, we are talking about a different nature of existence between God and you. So this is why you have to be extremely careful when you're going to come along and say, well, God makes choices. And I make choices, so if God has free will, I must have free will. That is a logically fal- logically fallacious um, way of thinking. Because the natures of existence behind God's choices is not the same as the nature of existence behind your choices. God's choices are active, your choices are reactive. They're both choices. They have something in common in the fact that they're choices, but the nature of them is completely different. Just take take this consideration all the way down the line. God exists and you exist. Hey, you've got something in common with God, right? You both exist. Congratulations. Does that mean that you're eternal? Does that mean that you're self-sustained? Does that mean that you're self-powered or self-determined? Right? You want to deny most of those things, but you want to claim self-determinism for yourself. And the obvious fact is the nature of God's existence is completely different than the nature of your existence. God's nature, self-sustained, self-determined, self-caused, self-powered, blah, 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 eternal. Your nature, finite, reliant upon God, determined, not deter- not self-determined, right? Relies upon God's power, not self-powered. And you can take that exact same concept all the way down the line when we start talking about our, our similarities with God. So I say all that to summarize the fact that you do not get to come along and just discard everything I've been saying by saying, well, God makes choices too. So basically what this boils down to is God has free will, so so can I. That's the argument, and it's it's very it's very shallow, very weak, very um, there's 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 nothing to it, and it's it, and I'm I'm picking it apart and showing how it operates upon a false uh, comparison between you're assuming that the nature of existence for you is the same as God's nature of existence, and it's just not true. Okay, so do not dismiss the things that I'm saying by simply saying, well, God God can do it, and so can I, or God has it, and so do I. These sorts of things are, are not always true, and something that God has is not identical to what you have, or something that God is is not identical to what you are. And that should be very obvious. And I know I'm being repetitive on, on this particular point, but it is one of the most difficult things to get across, and it's an extremely important point. When I'm sitting here talking about choice for God is different than choice for man, the nature of God's choice and the nature of man's choice, God's choices are active, man's choices are reactive, 
I'm talking specifically about God's choices that he made in planning creation in eternity past. It is the choices he made in the planning of creation. It is not, I'm not referring to the choices that God makes in time. Because it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, unless you're an open theist, which we'll get to later, 99% of Christians, whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, whether you believe in free will or not, you, you do not believe that God is making choices in time, reacting to you on the fly. He's not sitting around waiting for you to do something, and then at that point, reacting to you, right? So even you would agree, as a free will proponent, that the choices that you see God making in time are the outplay of the choices that God made in eternity past. So let's put what plays out in time off to the side for a moment and address what is happening in eternity past. And once again, the contrast is that the free will position believes that God reacted to you in his own mind in eternity past, so that the choices that God planned to make in time were reactions to what you would do in time. Whereas the Calvinists would say that God determined what you would do in time so that he could do what he would do in time. And so when it comes to God making choices in time, God not only chose what you would choose as the divine author, we're going back to the divine author again, God chose what you would choose, and that's not a contradiction because God is the divine author, God also chose what he would choose. How's that? That sounds like a contradiction too. No, it's not, because one is the active eternity past choice of God, and one is the in-time, time-bound, reactive choice of God. But the point is that the Calvinists are saying that God actively chose what he would reactively choose in time. All of the things that come to pass in time, including the choices of God, are actively planned and purposed by God. And so that is what I mean when I say that determinism is not applicable to God's eternal state, that God's choices are active. I'm referring to his planning of the universe. I am not referring to the choices he makes in time. So for those of you who are tempted to say, wait a minute, I can refute what you're saying by pointing to the Bible where God says, if you do this, I'll do that. Or because you've done this, I will do that. Look at God being reactive. Look at God making choices based on what people do, this, that, and the other. That's all true. But even those reactive choices of God were actively planned and purposed by him in the past. In the exact same way that you would think up a story, again, we go back to the author example, you would think up a story and you would say, I'm also going to write myself into the story and I'm going to interact with the characters I've created. But you would notice that you're thinking those things up, you're quote unquote creating those things, you're planning those things must all be active. You would not be saying, well, since my character is going to do this, I will do that. The only reason you know your character is going to do what they're going to do is because you've already actively planned that they will do it, right? So you might say, I'm going to plan that my character will do this so that I can, in that story, write myself in and, and reactively do that. But notice, that is all active. Both what your characters do and the ways you react to them in time is all actively planned. So that would be the Calvinist view. The, Ar the uh, Arminian or free will view would actually say that God was reacting not just in time, but God is reacting in eternity past as well. When he went to plan creation, he looks into the future. He somehow sees what you're going to do, and even in his eternal planning of creation is reacting to you, so that you are somehow on that ultimate level with him, making choices, and he is reacting to, reacting to you. So I'm saying all this to say this is a very important difference uh, between a Calvinist view of God's eternal planning and the free will view of God's eternal planning. So I'd like to point out now that you've, if you've followed these issues for any length of time, you'll, you'll often hear Calvinists say, Calvinists like myself, we will say that you're, you're always choosing according to your greatest desire, right? And that is because we, we properly recognize that 
you need to assign a deterministic reason behind why you chose what you chose. When you have A and B in front of you, you need to be able to answer the question why you chose B. Why did you choose B? And when you say the obvious answer that we all give most of the time when we're talking about choices, what we would consider, you know, genuine choices of not, not just instinctive reactions, but genuine choices where we deliberated, contemplated, and we came to a conclusion, came to a choice. When I ask you why you chose B, you're going to say because you wanted to, right? Completely, perfectly fine answer. But then when I ask you why you wanted to, why did you want to choose B? Why didn't you want to choose A? And you come back and say, well, actually, I did want to choose A, but uh, I decided on B. What you're really saying is, yes, there are there can be more than one desire involved. And I'm not denying that. When I say you choose according to your greatest desire, that key word greatest implies that there can be multiple desires. It's just that one of them, at the end of all these deterministic chains, one of them ends up being the greatest. That's all that's being said. And this is what we have accurately reflecting reality when we make choices. So yeah, you might have wanted ice cream, A, but you also wanted to not gain weight, B. And on that particular day, in that particular circumstance, with those particular factors, you deterministically, whether whether it felt like deterministically or not, again, never mind your feelings, you deterministically ended up wanting to not gain weight, choosing B, over wanting ice cream, A, right? So why did you choose B? Because you wanted to choose B. Why did you choose want why did you want to choose B? Insert the factor there. You didn't want to gain weight, right? Now it's important to point out that desires, these are not universal, static, unchangeable things, right? So if your if your greatest desire yesterday was to not gain weight and so you didn't get ice cream, that doesn't mean that today you won't want ice cream more than not gaining weight. Desires can change. The reason they change is because of deterministic factors as well. Because every situation, every circumstance of every choice is not identical, right? So on most days of the week, I might not, I might want to not gain weight more than I want ice cream. But maybe in the past, I have decided and, and wanted to have a quote unquote cheat day. Maybe that, maybe on that cheat day, since I've decided to have a cheat day, I wanted ice cream more than I wanted to not gain weight. And so I had ice cream. And this can feel like you're making free will, autonomous, self-determined choices, but recognize that all of these choices are grounded in desires, and all of these desires were determined by things that came before them as well. They're specific to the circumstances involved. So it needs to be very clear that I'm not saying that your greatest desire will always be the greatest desire in every time. You're always just going to not choose or you're always going to choose ice cream. What I am saying is that when you dissect and ask questions about each individual choice, you're going to follow a deterministic chain, either backwards or forwards, depending on where you start, that's always going to end up with you choosing what you wanted most in that circumstance, right? So since we're on the topic of choosing according to your greatest desire, I'd like to address a very common um, argument against that, and that is that free will will be phrased um, as this idea and ability to do or choose amongst competing desires. So free will is the ability to choose amongst competing desires. And the reason that this particular definition sounds so good to people and resonates with people is it is what it feels like is going on when we make decisions. After all, we walk into the donut shop and there's 101 different donuts there and we want them all because they all look great, right? So we've got 101 different desires and they're all competing. But at the end of the day, our free will comes along and makes a choice 
and chooses amongst those desires. Sounds wonderful. The problem is that when you dissect it and compare it to what's actually going on in reality, you see a number of problems here. And what is actually going on is a bit of sleight of hand in terms of the definition. So first and foremost, what's going on is you're reversing the logical order of what is actually happening. Remember, why did you choose something? Because you wanted to, not the other way around. You didn't choose what you wanted. So to say that you're choosing amongst competing desires places the choice before desires. It reverses the logical order of reality, right? And it is never, in fact, um, an answer that you would give. You always say, I wanted to do something, right? The want becomes comes before the doing. The want comes before the choosing. And so to introduce a second layer of choice is this sleight of hand that I'm talking about. And remember, it's, it's necessary of the free will position to do this because they cannot admit that something other than your choice was determinative, right? And this commits the circular infinite regress, a logical fallacy that I mentioned earlier, where why did you choose something? Because you wanted to. And why did you want to? Because you chose to want to. And then if I ask why you chose to want to, you're going to say because you wanted to choose to want to, and then you chose to want to choose to want to. And you just keep backing up the choice, inserting more and more ideas of choice there so that you can keep free will and control. The problem is it's illogical and it does not reflect reality, right? Um, when, when you hit that, why did you want to question, you need to be pointing to other things. You can't just circle back to because you chose to. That doesn't work. And so that's why this particular definition sounds great, but it's sleight of hand. Now, the reason that this definition sounds great is because it is pretending to take into account all these other things that I've mentioned so far, past experience, current state of mind, current mood, knowledge involved, all these other factors. And in this case, particular desires, it's pretending to acknowledge the reality of those things. But at the end of the day, when you come along and say, but your free will is still what's determinative and that those things are not determinative then you're complete, you're making those things completely meaningless and irrelevant. So you're pretending to make an account for them. You're pretending to include them in your viewpoint, but you're at the end of the day declaring them completely meaningless, right? So, um, for example, to, to call these desires competing desires, why, why, why doesn't, why are you calling them competing? If at the end of the day, your free will chooses the winner, right? Then, then why even talk about them as competing? Shouldn't they just be desires and then your free will just chooses amongst desires? Why talk about them as being competing if there's not a winner, right? And what's the point of mentioning a competition or a battle of desires? What's the point of ranking desires from greatest to least if at the end of the day your will is going to be the determiner of which is greatest? And this is the problem, is it's once again reversing the order. Our desires determine our will, not the other way around, right? And when you declare these things not determinative, then at the end of the day, you're making them irrelevant. And, and you know that you have to do this when you're talking about free will, because if you admit that desires or any other factor I've mentioned are determinative of your choice, then you lose the debate. Free will is disproven. Free will is refuted. Okay. And, and just remember, when you ask why you did something, your answer is never free will in real practical life. It's never free will. It's always a determinative reason because I wanted to right? Or back to the instance, uh, the example of 101 different donuts, why that donut over all the others, because you wanted that donut more than all the others, right? That's your answer. Your answer is not because free will. Then when I keep asking why, 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 right? The most important question, why did you want that donut over all the others? Again, your answer is not free will. It's not because you chose to want it more, right? That would be illogical. It doesn't make sense. You've never given that answer. The answer would be a determinative reason. It tasted better, 
right? And with these simplistic examples, eventually you're going to hit brick wall, especially when it comes to things like tastes and what we're accustomed to. And you're eventually just going to throw up your hands and say, I don't know. I just like that donut the most, right? But that's not proving free will. That's just admitting there are determinative things going on behind the scenes, genetics, how you were raised, what, what donut you ate as a kid. The list can go on and on. It's all determinative stuff. And just because you don't understand all, everything that's going into it does not mean that it is not determinative. It does not mean that you have this magical thing called free will. And this is why at the end of the day, this is the most difficult thing to get across to people is to have them stop and instead of considering free will on the fly and how it feels and, and this, that, and the other, to actually consider and dissect each particular choice. And, and this is a thought experiment you can do on yourself. Just think over yesterday's choices. Just start asking questions. Why did I choose it? Because I wanted to. Well, why did I want to? And really think about what went into your thought process and deliberation and the reasons behind why you chose what you chose. And it doesn't matter what the choice is. It doesn't matter what the situation was. As you begin to dissect those things, you're going to be forced to admit that it was never just, I chose it because I chose it. There are determinative reasons behind why you chose what you chose. There are determinative reasons behind why you wanted what you wanted. And it's very hard to get this across to people because everything about free will is just considered on the fly. It's just how it feels, right? Somebody might come along and say, I, I had 101 different donuts. I wanted them all. But you know what? My free will, I overcame all 101 of those desires. And I said, no, I'm not going to eat donuts at all today. So see, I prove I have free will. I didn't give in to any of those desires. Well, ironically, again, all you proved was your greatest desire was to prove you had free will in this instance. Or in another instance, maybe you didn't want to gain weight. So now your, your, your desire to not gain weight is greater than your desire for any of those particular donuts at that, at that point in time with those circumstances involved. But the point is, guys, it's all determinative stuff. There's all reasons for it. There are logical, reality-based reasons behind why all of these things happen. Whether it's the choice at the start, why you wanted to do it, the thought process behind it, right? Your past experience, current state of mind, what mood you're in, all of these things contribute to it. And for free will to come along, it has to do what that very fancy sleight of hand, so sounding so good definition did. We choose amongst competing desires. That's free will. Free will is the ability to choose amongst competing desires. Sounds so great. But all you've done is make all of those other reality-based, obvious, determinative things completely irrelevant. You're pretending to take them into account because they're there. You have to recognize them. But when you, at the end of the day, declare them in, not determinative, and that at the end of the day, it's your free will. You're going to end in circularity each and every single time. And at the end of the day, to summarize that, that infinite regress, you did it because you wanted to, and you chose to want to do it. You wanted to choose to want to do it. You chose amongst competing desires to choose amongst competing desires to choose amongst competing desires to finally make a choice. At the end of the day, you chose it because you chose it. That's all free will has to offer. And this is not reality. This is not the answer we give in everyday life. Now, I'd like to talk about this idea of being able to do otherwise. Uh, this is a very common um, definition that people like to throw around. You'll often hear the, the phrase, the power of contrary choice, things like this. And this is very loosely and lazily thrown around and just assumed to be this sort of definition of free will. But we're going to examine it for a moment and you'll see that there's actually two different senses in which you could have done otherwise or can do otherwise in the sense of making choices. And that is you have to consider, uh, you can't avoid the ultimate sense versus 
the hypothetical sense. So let's start with the ultimate sense. Ultimately speaking, right? We'll start with those of you who believe that God knows the future. God knows what you're going to do tomorrow, and you can't do other than what God knows you'll do. If you could, then he couldn't know what you would do, right? God's foreknowledge must be concrete. It must be 100% um, for all sorts of reasons, which we can get into later. But for obvious reasons, um, if you could do other than what he knows you're going to do, then he doesn't actually know what you're going to do, does he? He just has a very good guess, perhaps. But this is, of course, not what Christians believe. Christians believe that God knows what you will do tomorrow, and you cannot do otherwise. And if you're going to admit that, that there is an ultimate sense in which you can't do otherwise, but you still believe in free will, then this is actually not a valid definition of free will, is it? There, there is no sense in which you could have done otherwise when it comes to specific situations, right? It's only hypothetical. It's only when you look back, yeah, I could have done that if I had wanted to, if um, the situation had been different. Uh, when you look back at those things, you're, you're basically admitting determinism when you point out that the, there needed to be differences in those situations. One of the best ways to demonstrate this is a little thought experiment. And just consider for a moment that if God were to pause the universe right when you're about to make a choice. He pauses the universe, he makes a, crop, a copy, a direct copy, and he presses the play button, right? Are those two universes going to proceed in the exact same way? So when it comes down to you making a choice, in the exact same situation with the exact same circumstances, the exact same factors involved, are you going to choose the same way each and every single time? Now, I believe the obvious answer has to be yes. It's the only way we can make any sense out of reality. If you're going to say no, if you're going to say that God could copy the universe and press play and you could choose A in one and B in the other, then you're disconnecting, completely disconnecting your choice from those realities, those universes. In other words, you cannot point to the state or reality or the factors involved in those universes and say, that's why I chose what I chose. Or in this case, talking about the future, I will choose what I will choose. You're completely disconnecting those things and basically making them meaningless. And this is not, in fact, how we view reality. This is not our day-to-day, everyday. When we look back on things, we say things like, wow, if I had known better, if only I had known better. Well, you're admitting determinism when you say that, right? You're admitting that your lack of knowledge determined that you made a, I don't know, stupid choice, an uninformed choice. And oh, if only you had known better, you would have done otherwise. Well, the situation would have been different for you had to have done otherwise. And you're proving my point when you, when you talk about those things. A lot of times when we make bad decisions, we say, oh, well, I was in a bad mood. I was having a bad day, right? Even in the idea of us making excuses. Again, notice, you're never just saying, well, I did it because I have free will. You're giving determinative reasons. You're pointing to the situation, the factors involved, the, the state of the reality in that given time, and you're pointing at things and saying, look there, that's why I did what I did. You're admitting determinism. You're denying free will when you do that, whether you realize it or not. Okay? And this is very important. But... It's, this is also important to realize. So in the ultimate sense, you're admitting that in order for you to have done otherwise, it's not just this simple, I could have done otherwise. There's reasons that need, would have needed to have been different for you to have done otherwise. And you're, you're affirming that and pointing to deterministic things when you admit that. But you would, you would always look back at things and say, hypothetically, uh, hypothetically, you could have done otherwise, right? Oh, well, I could have chosen this or that because I had the physical means to do so, right? Um, if it comes down to maybe I was buying something, I could have bought the other things there, but I had the money, so, so on and so forth. They were within my reach, my grasp. There was nothing forcing me to chose, choose what I chose. I chose what I wanted, all these things. But all those things can be true, whether or not determinism is true. That's a separate discussion. The point here is that you doing otherwise is strictly hypothetical. The other important thing to point out is that 
If you're going to say that God pausing the universe, making two copies, and pressing play can result in different universes, then how in the world could God know the future, um, given the fact that you're disconnecting uh, your choices from the circumstances involved? How could God know the future? Wouldn't God have to wait until you chose what you chose before he actually knew what you were going to do? Right? Otherwise, um, you're, you're not grounding God's foreknowledge in anything that comes before it. God doesn't know what you're going to do tomorrow because he knows what leads up to what you'll do tomorrow. You're just turning it into this very, basically, mysterious, magical, what I would call illogical uh, view of, oh, well, just God just knows. He's God and he knows. And uh, we don't need to explain any of it. Um, God just knows. So... Um, you need to make a very important decision when it comes to this idea of being able to do otherwise. Are you going to commit fully to the, f the fact that you're going to disconnect your choices completely from the situations that surround them? Yes, you could have done otherwise. This is why open theism exists. This is why people deny that God knows the future. Because if, you, if you're going to actually say that you have the power to do otherwise, God cannot know what you're going to do for all the reasons I've already listed. Right? God would have to wait until you did what you did before he knew. Because he couldn't base his knowledge on anything involved in the situation. He couldn't look at a specific situation and say, because of these factors, this is what this person will do. Ultimately speaking, the power of contrary choice makes no sense. To give an example of this, um, I walk into the store and I buy, walk straight to the back and I buy Coca-Cola. I don't buy Pepsi, I buy Coca-Cola. Now, could I have chosen Pepsi over Coke? Well, it depends on how you're asking that, once again. Looking backwards into the past, given the specific circumstance, I walked straight back, I wanted Coke, I came there to buy Coke, Pepsi didn't even enter my mind, and so even though hypothetically it was a legitimate option, um, I chose Coke, couldn't have chosen otherwise, and that's that. Now, is it valid for me to say that, well, I can go down to the store right now and choose Pepsi over Coke, and therefore see I prove I have free will? No. The reason that doesn't prove you have free will is because it's a different circumstance at a different time with different factors. Now, I'm going down to the store for the express purpose of proving I have free will, and it's causing me to choose something I don't normally choose. So notice, you, in, in an attempt to prove free will, you actually prove determinism. You, in an attempt to prove that you have free will by choosing something you wouldn't normally choose, you're ascribing your choice to a different circumstance with a different a different set of circumstances with a different determining factor and this goes back to the idea of desire you're going to choose according to your greatest desire so in the past i look back and at those times my greatest desire was just coca-cola because i preferred over pepsi i want that's what i wanted at the time given those circumstances but going into the future if i'm going to go down to the store to try to prove i have free will and buy pepsi now my desire to prove that I have free will is greater than my desire for the taste of Coke. And so I sacrifice the taste of Coke for the disgustingness of Pepsi because my desire to prove that I have free will in that particular instance was greater than my desire for Coke. So this is why, once again, when you look at specific instances, you can never look back and say you could have done otherwise. It's logically impossible to say that. And going into the future and trying to say you can prove free will by doing other than what you did in the past is also fallacious because the future circumstance is going to be of a different nature, different circumstances, different determining factors. And so this is why no matter how you try to look at things, fitting free will into these types of choices is fallacious. It's, it's logically fallacious. So uh, going back to the idea of being able to do otherwise, again, I chose Coke over Pepsi.
could I have done otherwise? I could have physically picked up the Pepsi. I could have bought the Pepsi. I had the money. I could have, hypothetically speaking, there was nothing preventing me, quote unquote, preventing me from choosing Pepsi, except my desire. My desire was the ultimate determining factor. And if my desire had been different, then that which determined my desire would also have to have been different. And since nothing in that circumstance determined that I choose Pepsi, I chose Coke. Going into the future, there can be different circumstances um, that might determine that I choose Pepsi over Coke, but it's important to recognize that those circumstances are different. And this is why, once again, our choices are determined by our desires. Our desires are determined by many other factors. To say that you choose your desires is, once again, circular reasoning. Why did you do it? Because I wanted to do it. Why did you want to do it? Because you chose to want to do it. Why did you choose to want to do it? Because you wanted to choose to want to do it. Infinite regress. Illogical, fallacious, doesn't work. Doesn't work in a finite existence. And uh, it always ends in circularity. So after considering all the things that go into us making choices and recognizing that it is our choices are just another part of this deterministic reality that God has created, um, I think it's safe for me to say, as a Calvinist, I would claim that free will is an illusion. I'll say that again. You can quote me on it. Free will is an illusion. It is something that you think you have that you do not have. And the reason that you think you have it is because you lack the information required to fully understand what is going into and the reasons behind why you're doing what you're doing and choosing what you're choosing. And this is, this is what we see with magic tricks and illusion, for example. Uh, there have been people who have lived and died believing that magic is a real thing. They've claimed to have seen it done in front of them, and they saw one thing, they believed one thing, because they lacked the information necessary to fully understand what was going on. And so they believed that magic was a thing and a concept that was real. Uh, the, th the same thing goes with the idea of luck and gambling. That word luck is thrown around um, most of the time very loosely, right? Most of the time people aren't actually believing in this mystical, magical thing called luck. But there are people who, trust me, having worked in the casino industry, there are people who believe that luck is a thing. Good luck, bad luck, you're born with it, you karma, right? These sorts of things. And it, the reason they believe those things is because they lack the information required to fully understand what is going on around them. When you walk into a casino and you press a button on that slot machine, you're not casting a magic spell. You're not summoning the, the powers of luck from, from the far reaches of the universe to come and do your bidding. There's a computer in there that takes the closest millisecond on the, from the clock and uses a, a, a seed a seed generator and I don't know exactly how it all works, but there's a computer and it does its best to seem random, but it is not random because there is no such thing as random, right? No Christian should ever believe in indeterminism, randomness. Uh, and so the idea of luck is once again, this very lazy, it's like a filler. It's a filler that you inject into all the areas that you don't fully understand. When you walk into a casino and you pick up the dice and throw them down the table, you think you're Again, you're not casting a magic spell. Um, if you could throw those dice exactly the same way, with the exact same force, with the exact same air conditions, hitting the exact same angle, all conditions being the same, those dice would come up exactly the same way every time because there's no such thing as randomness. And that's what free will is. Free will is a filler. It is a concept that you use to inject into all the areas that you do not fully understand when it comes to you making choices. And it can feel very real, you can really think you have free will. You can feel like you have free will, just like people can feel lucky. 
Um, just like people can feel like magic is a real thing. But in the end, um, these things are in fact false. And again, to tie this in biblically, when you look in the Bible and you will see that it says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We're not quite sure what lots were, but we know it was the ancient form of, of dice, some sort of dice, things that they used to seem random or gamble. Um, the Bible says that those things are determined by God. Now, there's only two ways to understand that, two ways. You can believe that when you throw the dice down the table, God casts a magic spell, and he needs it to come up a certain way so that that verse can be true. And so he casts a magic spell midair, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and so every decision of the dice is from God. And so, yay, the Bible gets to be true. Which is a ridiculous way of understanding that, of course. The only other way to understand that verse, if that verse is always to be true, that the lot is cast into the lap, everything that seems random to us is from the Lord. The only possible way to understand that is if all the foundational things I've laid out, including the fact that God is in control of all things, is true. Every step along the way. How hard you throw the dice. The con air conditions. How they bounce, what they hit. And, and that's just one example of randomness dice. Take every other example that you look around and you th see as appearing to be random. The Bible says that all of that, the decision is from the Lord. Okay? So, you can take a semi-deistic view that God is constantly zapping magic spells around so that all the randomness can be his choice, so that the Bible can be true. Or, you can understand that he is just in control of all things from the start, and so that the things that appear random to us are in fact all under his control, because everything that leads up to and involves and determines those things is under his control. Okay? And when you tie this whole idea of n there is no such thing as randomness back into the discussion we're talking about earlier with choices and thought process and deliberation, it is a very good thing that there is no such thing as randomness. Because if there were, again, you could not make sense out of reality. We couldn't do science because things would not be repeatable. One day gravity would affect one way and the next day gravity would be different and cause and effect would really be meaningless because things are happening for no reason to begin with because it's random. So it's a very good thing that there is no such thing as randomness. It's a very good thing that God is in control of all things and that he regularly operates the universe in particular ways. And when we tie that into our thought process and del deliberation, we better be very happy that there's no such thing as random thoughts. I know you're driving down the road and you think you had a random thought and you go tell your friends later on, hey, I was driving down the road and I had a random thought, dot, dot, dot. But there is no such thing as a random thought. Okay? Again, it is this illusion that you have because you lack the information required to fully understand why you had that thought. There was something that happened either around you or in your brain that caused you to have the thought that you had. You saw something subconsciously, this, that. Again, this is a comp. I'm not pretending. I'm trying to simplify it for conceptual understanding, but I understand it's a very complex uh, situation when you're dealing with the human brain, human thought process, choices, so on and so forth. To, so to summarize this entire section... The point is not that it's a simple process. The point is that it is a determined process. Okay? That's all, the, that's all I'm getting at. We can't always fully understand why we do what we do. That does not mean that there are not determinative reasons why we did what we did, or thought what we thought, or felt what we felt, or wanted what we wanted, or just insert anything you want in there. And again, if you begin to introduce this idea 
that you are disconnecting yourself from the determinative things that surround and lead up to those other things, then you're going to introduce a very strange view of reality that no one really, when, when you're honest about it, when you step back and look at it and look back over your life and the way you've answered questions and this and that, you've never utilized this idea of free will in a self-deterministic sense. The only way you've ever utilized a quote-unquote free will concept in regular day, daily life is just this idea that, well, I wasn't forced to do something. I did it because I wanted to. But again, when we go back to the beginning of this entire episode, the point is, what's the reference point for freedom? And if your reference point for freedom is merely the fact that you wanted to do something, that works perfectly fine in a deterministic worldview as well, because even what you want to do is also part of the deterministic chain. So this is why it's important to be careful how we define free will. You can't just be lazy about it and say, well, I, I'm making choices and I'm doing what I want to do. That's true if free will is true or not. That can be true with free will not being true as well. What matters is, are you, like God, self-determined? Are you a self-determined entity? Are your choices welled up, created out of nothing from within yourself and, and brought into existence by you, irrespective and irregardless of what is going on around you? That is the ultimate question. And I just want to warn you that you need to be very careful when you start taking properties of eternality and abilities of God and claiming them for yourself. I want to make it very clear that my attitude um, on the topic of free will is not one of condescension or, or looking down on people and saying, how could you possibly believe these, these, this thing called free will? I completely understand why people believe in free will. I did for many years. The vast majority of mankind has. And so... I hope people don't misunderstand. I am not saying that people are stupid or insane or crazy or anything like that, right? There, there are plenty of things that can happen around us or to us that can cause us to believe things that aren't true. And it's not because we're stupid. It's because of the particular way we experienced them or what we saw or this and that and the other. My point, however, is that those of you who slow down, stop and begin to consider these things seriously when you think these things through and you study the arguments and you study the, the the verses the scriptures i i think that you should uh you should stop believing in the idea of free will i think that people who study um these issues seriously do not have much ground to stand on in support of the idea of free will right and so it's understandable for example i used to do close-up magic it's a lot of fun Right. So if somebody came running over to me and said, hey, man, this guy just performed this card trick and I have no idea how it's done. In fact, it was so good. I am now convinced that magic is a real thing. And I would say, OK, uh, you know, either show it to me or tell me what he did. And then I say, oh, yeah, you know, I wouldn't do this because magicians aren't supposed to reveal secrets anyways. But for the point, purpose of this example, I say, oh, yeah, well, did he, he flip this card this way, and then you saw this and that, and that happened, and you're going, yeah, 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 that's exactly what happened. And I said, well, that's how it's done. And most people would say, oh, okay, well, then in that case, now that I know what goes on behind the scenes and how it's done, and that there are perfectly logical, valid reasons for why things were happening and why I was seeing what I was seeing, okay, magic's not a real thing, but that's still pretty cool, right? Still pretty uh, interesting and entertaining, and if I saw it again, it'd still be fun to watch right? 
So it's not denying the reality or anything. It's just, okay, well, magic's not a real thing. What I thought I saw, I wasn't seeing. Well, unfortunately, this is, in my opinion, exactly what is happening with the idea of free will. On the fly, free will seems real to us. It seems like it's what we're experiencing. It seems like what we, um, it's what we feel to be true, right? But that is because we have not stopped to consider decision-making, action, thought process. It's so much a part of just basic nature of who and what we are that we don't stop to consider the intricacies of what is going on behind the scenes, right? And so when someone like me comes along and points out, you know what, no, when you made that decision, that actually wasn't free will. There are perfectly de logically determinative reasons behind why you did what you did and wanted to do what you, do, what you did. Um, and I start talking about past experience and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Um, what you should do is what the person who has explained the magic trick did. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I guess I thought I had free will, but now it makes perfect sense that I don't. And it's still a lot of interesting stuff there, blah, blah, blah. And life goes on, right? Unfortunately, this isn't the case. Even after people are explained all the deterministic, determinative, obvious, reality-based reasons behind why they did what they did, they want to shut their eyes to it, push it aside, declare it not determinative, and, and, and still hold on to this idea of free will. And that's the equivalent of someone who has shown how a magic trick is done, step by step, and says, you know what? Yeah, all that stuff was there, but I refuse to accept the fact that that's what was really going on because I really want to believe in, in, uh, in magic. And so they just continue to believe in what makes them feel good. Okay? So I completely understand why people believe in free will, but it's very hard for me to understand how people who seriously consider the issues and are shown why free will does not exist continue to believe that it does. Right? And at this point, I'd just like to point out and come out and say that free will is found nowhere in the Bible. The concept of free will is always assumed into whatever is being read. It's always an assumption. It is a, a foundational assumption, a false assumption, but it is never actually established as a foundation anywhere in Scripture. If you notice the three verses that I quoted, that is a foundation that is established in Scripture. God's metaphysical relationship to the things he's been, that he has created is a foundational established fact of scripture but you find nowhere in scripture that lays out this idea that god gave you free will that free will is a thing that you can have that that your choices are somehow independent of cause and effect determine uh, causative factors that you're free from god in any sense this is never found in scripture so when you ask people to prove free will from the bible all you're ever going to get are lots and lots and lots of verses where people are doing stuff. They're choosing this or rejecting that. They're believing this or not believing that. They're repenting or not repenting or accepting or rejecting or they're just doing stuff. They're, they're making choices, but notice the assumption. That verse says nothing about whether that choice was determined or was a free will choice. So that verse actually doesn't answer the question, right? I can, you can look at that verse and say, you could bring up a thousand verses in the Bible where people are doing things and say, look at all the free will. Right, And I can look at those th thousand verses and say, no, 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 there's a thousand verses, look at all the determinism going on there. And you would look back at me and go, what on earth are you talking about? Those verses say nothing about determinism. You're, there goes your Calvinism again, you're reading these verses through your Calvinistic lens. But you don't realize that those verses do not say anything about determinism, you're right, but they also don't say anything about free will. And so you are looking at those verses through your free will lens. So lenses are not the problem, the problem is which lens is right, right? So 
We look at verses where people are doing stuff. You say it's free will. I say it's determined. Who's right? And it just so happens that when you look at the Bible to try to answer the question, do people do things because of free will or do people do things because of determinism, there are zero verses that support the idea of free will and there are countless verses that support the idea of cause and effect determinism. Whether it's explicit things where God is working things or talking about our nature, um, determining slavery to sin, nature determining sin, this, this, that, and the other, um, people hating God, loving God, all of these reasons behind why we do what we do, free will is never a reason that's given in Scripture, right? So there's zero verses for free will. There are many verses for determinism. So how in the world can you actually comfortably sit on the free will side of the aisle and say, yes, all these thousands of verses where people are doing stuff, they prove free will when they don't prove free will. They don't prove free will. They don't prove determinism. They're just descriptions of actions. So there are not actually verses that prove anything. We have to go to the verses that prove our foundational assumptions by which we are reading those verses through. And it just so happens, once again, zero verses for free will, many verses for determinism. So let's jump into um, the problem of evil as briefly as possible. I'm going to lay out my answer from a Calvinistic standpoint first, and then we'll jump into why I, in my opinion, free will is not an answer, and in fact raises more questions than it answers when it comes to the idea of evil. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to be providing a lot more scriptures and and explanations to the problem of evil in my in my next episode where I defend the idea of divine determinism more fully. But after laying these foundations and making these claims, it is at least uh, proper that I give a a, a very brief defense. So notice that I am not coming out and saying that God is the cause of all things, including evil, because it's fun or popular or that it sounds good. Obviously, these these raise problems in our mind, and that's very, very natural. The question is, is the Bible forcing us to ask these questions and answer them? And I believe with the three verses that I've quoted before, the answer is yes. It is forcing us down this road and we need to man up and actually address these issues because we need to ask the question, if, if it is always true that God is upholding our existence, how do we reconcile that with the fact that he is upholding our existence even while we're sinning? This is a very important question. I mentioned it briefly earlier, but now I'd like to, like to flush it out. God is exerting power and upholding your existence even while you're sinning against him. Now, if all of you are minions, if your heads explode and you flip out and you can't stand the thought of the mere suggestion from a Calvinist that God might have determined that an evil take place someday in the future. That is so unthinkable to you. Here you have God upholding the existence of a sinner by his power, even while he's sinning. Now, I'm not sure how much more, how much closer you can get metaphysically to the idea of sin than being the one whose power upholds the sinner while they sin. And so if you have no moral issue with that, because the Bible clearly teaches it, if there's no moral issue, if, if God upholding the existence of a sinner, well, the sinner sins against him, if that doesn't make God a sinner, if that doesn't mean that God can't hold the sinner responsible, yada, 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 then why would you, on, upon what basis do you object to all the, the very weak general suggestions that God merely determines that sin take place for a good purpose? If Why is that so offensive to you, but God upholding the existence of a sinner while they sin is not? Okay, and this is where consistency needs to come into play, and we need to actually start addressing these issues. How is it, if you agree, 
God can uphold the existence of a sinner while he sins and not be guilty of that sin and still hold that sinner responsible. That sinner could not even be sinning in the first place if God's power did not make it possible. How, how is God, quote-unquote, not to blame? How is God getting off the, off the hook, so to speak? These are questions that, that, that both sides need to address. But if you admit, it, you, you can't just chalk it up to mystery and say, well, those verses say God upholds everything, and so, yeah, he upholds the sinners while they sin, and we don't really understand it, but it's just a mystery, and it must not be blah, blah. Why, can't, why couldn't every Calvinist just say that about all of their claims, right? If you flip out when he says God predestines sin, why can't we just say, well, it's a mystery, get over it. When you flip out that, that how can God hold us responsible for something he predestined that we do, if we just say it's a mystery, get over it, that doesn't get us anywhere. So we need to actually ask the question, how can God metaphysically be related to sin in the sense that he is, up, he is upholding the existence of a sinner even while they sin and not be held responsible? And the answer from a Calvinistic standpoint is that we need to understand the nature of what evil is in the first place. Evil is not a substance. It does not have ontological existence like matter or energy. This, this is where a lot of people go wrong. People think that evil is this icky, nasty substance that the good and holy God can't quote-unquote touch. It's not about touching. Metaphysically, God is touching everything. He has hands on everything. He is in control of everything. He is exerting power over everything. Nothing he is exerting power over is in, its, in and of itself evil, right? God created it all, and he continues to uphold it all. None of that is evil. What is evil then? Evil is a description of disobedience to the law of God. Evil is sin. Sin is evil. They're interchangeable terms. Biblically speaking, sin is breaking the law of God. So it is a description of the actions of human beings. Now, it's important to notice that then to, to cause, on God's part, to cause sin and to commit sin would be two different things, right? Causing sin deals with metaphysics. Committing sin deals with laws, right? The reason we can commit sin is because there are laws that God gave to us, right? The reason animals can't commit sin is because God didn't give them any laws. The reason God can't commit sin is because nobody gave God any laws, right? And so the only way that to say God causing sin would be God sinning is if there was a law that said, God, thou shalt not cause sin. But there is no law, right? So this is, this is the fundamental answer to the problem of evil and why evil is actually not a problem in the first place. Because evil is a description of disobedience to the law of God. Evil is something that only humans can do. God can't sin. And the only way God would be sinning and causing sin is if there was a law, if God was breaking a law that said, you shall not cause sin. Okay? This is a very short, brief, summarized answer to the problem of evil. And I could, in depth, go into the Bible and show example after example after example, which I will in my next episode, on God clearly causing sin, clearly being involved in sin, metaphysically speaking, and yet he is not held responsible because, first of all, there's nobody he answers to. There's nobody he... There's nobody who gave him any laws, and and so this is this is the consistent answer to, to how God can be metaphysically causing things that involve sin and not be a sinner. And so a very important question along these same lines is, what does it mean to say that God cannot sin? Every Christian says it, but how do you explain it? How, what is that? What is the logical reasons behind why God cannot sin? Most people just say, well, God can't sin because he's good. It's a true answer, but it doesn't actually explain what, what, what we mean when we say God can't sin. If you recognize the proper definition of sin that I have given, 
and that it is the breaking of the law of God, sin deals with laws and breaking laws, then you recognize that the reason God can't sin is because nobody gave him any laws. Right? When you have laws, you have a lawgiver and a receiver. God is the lawgiver. We are the law, the law receiver. Right? God gave us his law. And if you look at it and you actually dissect it, interestingly enough, if we just take, for example, the Ten Commandments, the most simple things, they're all applicable specifically to creation. They're not applicable to God. Right? Love your father and your mother. That doesn't apply to God. That applies to this creation and the way God has set things up. God didn't have to make humanity male and female, mother and father. He didn't have to, but he chose to. And after choosing to do that, he chose to give us a law according to that. Honor your father and mother. All right, don't have any other gods before me. Not applicable to God. You can go all the way to don't steal. Everything belongs to God to begin with. He can't steal, right? Don't kill. He's the one who gives life. He can take it away. Don't murder. Or I should say don't murder. God can't murder, right? God can kill anybody anytime he wants because he, we start off our existence owing our life to God. He's the one who gives it to us to begin with. He can take it away anytime he wants, and he's not sinning when he does that. So the law of God given by God is actually not applicable to God. If you To try to say, well, could God sin? Could God break his own law? It's, it's not about, well, he's good, and or he would just never want to. He can't. The law is only applicable to us. It's not applicable to him. So again, God doesn't have any laws. Nobody, nobody stands above God and gave him laws. The law of God was given by God. It is specific to this creation. The law of God is not this static thing, that's this standard that stands next to God. That he, that it's not like the law of God is rules that God has to play by too. Um, they are rules that cannot even apply to him. And this is an extremely important answer to why God can't sin and how God can control all things, including our sin, and not be a sinner. Right? It, it's... It's a logical answer to the reality of what is going on. And that ties directly into the idea of God being quote-unquote responsible. What do you mean God is responsible? Well, if God determined that I sin, he's responsible for it. I don't understand that statement. Responsible to who? In order for responsibility to be a thing, you need to be held responsible to someone. We are responsible to God because he's our creator. He's the rule maker. He makes the rules he determines what's right and wrong. He determines whether or not we'll be punished. He determines if we are punished, what that punishment will be. That's all up to him because he's the lawmaker. He's the lawgiver. He's the creator. He is the one who does all these things. But when you say, well, God would be responsible for, for this, that, or the other, responsible to who? I don't even understand that statement. Responsible to who? You're, you're making a moral statement, right? You obviously aren't just saying, well, he's responsible in the sense that He's God and he created all things and that's true no matter which side of the aisle you're on, right? God is responsible for sin just in the simple fact of having something to do with it. That's undeniable. In the same way a tornado is responsible for destroying the house. That's not a moral statement. That's just a responsible in the sense of having something to do with. But you're making a moral statement and saying that, well, God would be responsible. But to who? This is the whole point is there are no laws that God is, that were given to God that he has to conduct creation by. There's no law that says, God, thou shalt not determine sin. There's no law that says, God, thou shalt not control sin. There's no law that says, God shall not plan or purpose sin in his creation. There's no law that says, God, if you're going to create man and you want to hold him responsible, you have to give him free will. None of these things are true. These are all assumptions that you're making. And, and 
and I hope you are slowly beginning to see the problems with this, this whole concept of applying humanistic relational things to God and making God quote-unquote responsible. God is not responsible to anyone. He does not have a list of rules that he has to play by. The, the very idea of God being able to sin is logically fallacious. God is good, and therefore everything he does is good. He is what determines what is good, right? A lot of Christians think that God is good, and therefore he will only do good, meaning there's this standard of good that is actually separate from God. It's a list of rules that God has to play by, and since God is good, he will play by those rules. He will never sin and break the, the law. I guess the law of God is also a law for God in that viewpoint. I used to think that way, but that's completely logical. God is good, and so he'll never break the law of God. No, the law of God was given by God. He makes the rules. God is good, and therefore everything he does is good. So this is why people will say, well, so you're saying God determined sin, and that was, a good, that was good for God to do that? That's precisely right. It was good for God to determine sin, because he had a good purpose in it. And even the idea of a good purpose, it's his purpose. That's why it's good, right? God is good, and therefore everything that he does is good by definition, okay? And again, going back to the idea, well, that means that God could murder, and it wouldn't be murder? No, he can't murder. It's impossible, right? There, God can't take innocent life. Nobody stands innocent before him, even in an innocent state, right? Pretend you never sinned. You still start off your existence owing your life to God. He can take it away, and it's not murder. Oh, so God could steal, and it wouldn't be it wouldn't it wouldn't be stealing, wouldn't be sin. He can't steal. It all belongs to him to begin with. He can't have another god before himself. It's impossible. He can't have a he can't honor his father and mother. He doesn't have one. He doesn't have a father and mother. Go all the way down the line. Um the law of God was given by him. He he made it. The law of God is not an eternal thing that he has to also that is also determining what he can and can't do. What God does is good by definition. That's the whole point. And so this is why when we tie this into the idea of God being in control of all things, God planning and purposing all things is good. It was good for God to do that. It was good for God to plan and purpose sin. He had a good purpose in it. It is not sinful for God to plan and purpose sin. It would only be sinful if there was a law that said he cannot do that. So I think I've spent enough time on this. This should be introducing new thoughts into your mind, things to consider, things that a particular angle that maybe you haven't looked at before. The law of God is not it is not a list of things that, that God also has to play by. The law of God was given by God to us. It is applicable to us. God is not a sinner. God cannot be a sinner. And even when he's controlling our sin, he is doing so for good purposes. And everything that God does is good by definition. Now, as a follow-up to the idea that God, number one, is not this one sinning, we are. And number two, cannot be the one sinning because there are no laws uh, that God can break to begin with. Um, the idea of God causing, determining sin, bringing it about, there's no law that says that God cannot do that. Uh, causation deals with metaphysics, sin deals with laws, we just covered all that. Um, I'd like to address the idea of God being the author of sin. Most, most Calvinists will shy away from that and say, no, 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 God's not the author of sin. 
because they've bought into the false assumption that God needs to be distanced from sin. I say, yeah, God is the author of sin. He's the author of all things, including sin. And author just simply means planner, determiner, and purposer, right? He's laid it all out. He's planned it. He's purposed it, right? How he's bringing it about um, wouldn't change whether or not he's the author of it. I think um, I think a, even a free will position where God knows the future would have a very hard time arguing against God being the author of sin. He's still working it into his plan, right? So, again, if God could stop sin, he would stop it if he didn't want it to happen. But it does happen, which means he obviously wants it to happen because it's part of his plan. I don't even see how free will can work around that. But if you're stopping and saying, well, no, that's because author of sin means God's a sinner, I've already disproven that. God is not a sinner. He cannot be a sinner, okay? So author of sin simply means God is the planner, purposer, and determiner of all things, including sin. I have no problem with the phrase. I welcome the phrase, and I encourage Calvinists um, to not just throw it out there without explanation, because it's a very emotional topic, and it's an, it can cause a lot of false things to spark in people's minds, but throw it out there with the proper explanation. Question what people mean. Oh, I make God the author of sin? Well, why is that a problem? And then answer the questions. What do you mean by author of sin? Then when they give a definition, address the definition. Flush out the false assumptions and the false definitions, and what you'll be left with is an obvious fact. Every Christian is forced, logically speaking, forced into the idea that God is the author of all things that come to pass, even if you hold to free will, if you think it through. And hopefully as this episode progresses, we're going to start launching into, in a minute here, all sorts of questions for free will. Free will does not get around... It does not answer the questions you think most people think that it answers. Free will has a lot of questions that need answering, as you'll see in a moment. People always like to bring up extreme examples of evil, raise people's emotions, and use those sorts of emotional arguments to try to shed a, a negative light on uh, and cloud people's thinking. They're not really trying to get people to think logically and answer particular questions. They're just trying to raise the emotions to the point to where people boil over and say, well... That just can't be the case, right? I'm not even going to consider it. I'm just going to move on and ignore it. And I really I really can't stand this type of... It's hard to call it argumentation because it's really not. But but this idea that, well, let's think up the worst things we can think of, right? Hitler, um, child abuse, rape, torture, all these terrible things. Calvinists believe that God determined all that, and that's just terrible, so they can't possibly be right because that just it just cannot be the case. Well... Never mind all that for a moment. I'd like to, once again, this is questions for free will position. I want you to be able to account for, for these same evils. You believe that God chose. He saw it coming. Child, child abuse, torture, rape, Hitler, genocide. He saw all these things coming, and he chose not to stop it. How does that not make God evil? Can you answer that? Not only that, but when you're going to give an account to the three foundational verses I gave, I brought up, right? you're forced to admit that God, by his power, upheld the existence of the people involved in those terrible things. Not just the person, not just the victim. God actually exerted power. Think about this for a moment. And he didn't have to. The same God that you say doesn't want those things to happen, never wanted those things to happen, wasn't part of his plan, chose not, not just chose not to stop it, that's 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 enough of a, a point. He not only chose not to stop it, he chose to willingly exert the power necessary so that those terrible evils could come to pass. How do you address that from a free will position? 
God chose willingly to uphold the existence of the person committing the murder, the Hitler doing the genocide, the rapist doing the rape, the parent doing the child abuse. He upholded their existence every moment of those while those crimes were being committed. How does that not make God evil? Can you explain that? He also chose, willingly chose, to uphold the existence of the victims. The, the Jews in the gas chamber, the child being abused, the woman being raped, the person being murdered. He upheld their existence as well while those things were occurring. How does that not make God evil? He could have stopped it. He could have taken them out of existence. He could have 101 million different ways he could have stopped it. And yet they come to pass. God chooses to bring these things about, provide the sustaining power by which they can happen. What is your answer? How dare you sit there and think that Calvinists are the only ones that need to address the, the problem of evil and say that, well, our view makes God evil. How does these things not make your view, in your view, make God evil? So free will comes along as an attempted answer to the problem of evil. And this is the vast the way that the vast majority of Christians would would answer the problem of evil. So the first the, the most basic question to ask is, God created a universe in which sin comes to pass. Why is he not responsible for the results of his own action, right? Why is God not responsible for evil when evil is coming about as a result of his own creation? And people try to introduce this idea of free will into that. And I just this is why laying the foundations are so important, because once again, the only way for you to do that and effectively do it the way you're, you think you are doing it in the sense of disconnecting God causally from the, th the evil that is being committed is to say that free will is this thing that this power that you have to be self-determined, self-caused, create your choices out of nothing, total disconnect from God, and it is embracing um, at a very minimum some form of deism. And it is once again a violation of the three verses. How can you maintain that God is upholding your existence by his power and yet you are also, by your power, creating and self-causing out of nothing your own choices, which happen to be evil. This is something you need to explain. It's one thing to say it um, and throw it out there as, as an attempted answer, but you need to be able to justify that on a logical basis. And that's the entire point of this video, is it is very illogical to say that. It is very illogical to say that, yes, God upholds my existence even while I'm sinning, but... I am sinning by my own power um, and creating my, causing my own actions and choices and thoughts. It is very illogical and it just doesn't make any sense. On top of that, I never understood how this idea of God giving free will absolves him of responsibility anyways. Let's just pretend for a moment that you could disconnect God causally. Let's, let's just pretend there is no causal relationship between God, his creation of you, and then later on your commission of a particular evil act. There's no causal relationships. You have free will. You have this thing that God gave you. And let's just pretend it's all true. Why does that... What, in, in other words, what does cause, causation have to do with responsibility in this sense? Because God, God gave you something, you could call it a tool, and you misused it, right? Isn't that the general claim? Well, God gave us free will and then we misused it. Well, well he knew that would happen, right? And so, by giving you free will, knowing that you were going to misuse it, how does that, whether or not it's, there's a causal relationship or not, how does that uh, re remove his responsibility? I mean, if, if I were to give my friend a, a tool 
knowing that he was going to misuse that tool and commit a crime instead of what using the tool properly, I would be completely complicit in his crime because I knew what he was going to do with it when I gave it to him, and I gave it to him anyways. So God knows if he gives you free will, you're going to sin, and he gives it to you anyways. I want you to explain to me how that removes, magically removes the responsibility from God. There's really only one answer that you can give, and we all know what it is. It's a mystery. Our imagination isn't big enough. It just, it is what it is. God's God. All those things are true, but God's not evil, and it's just a mystery. And uh, we shouldn't even be asking these questions. How dare we even ask these questions? And notice, I had the answer. I just gave it, right? God is in metaphysical control of all things. There's no law that says that God can't cause sin. Uh, I gave all the answers. You don't get to give that answer, right? That's my answer. If you give that same answer, then you forfeit the debate. You lose the debate. It's over. It's game over. You can you cannot object to Calvinism in any possible way if you attempt to answer the question of how those things, even in your own view, don't make God evil. So this is the problem that the free will position faces. They falsely assumed, right, through theological and intellectual laziness, they have assumed that free will is just the answer. It's the magic wand you wave and it all goes away. And when someone like me comes along and points out it does not go away, you are stuck answering the exact same problems and questions that the Calvinists have to answer. You've got to answer the same questions. And at the end of the day, you can either give the only possible answer, which is the answer Calvinists give, or uh, you can appeal to mystery. And since 99.99% of you uh, recognize that by giving the Calvinistic answer, you forfeit the debate, you admit Calvinism's right, you, you can't object anymore, you lose the debate, it's game over. Since 99.99% of you recognize that, you can't take that same answer, the only other thing you can do is appeal to mystery. Right? And once again, if you consider that to be a sufficient answer to these types of problems, then you can never be proven wrong in your own mind. This is something that you need to talk to do to battle with yourself, right? You might think you're an idle spectator sitting there watching these people debate and, oh, I'll just take this and take a little bit of that. And at the end of the day, none of this matters. Never mind all that. You need to decide for yourself what is your worldview. You need to be able to answer these questions for yourself. And if you accept appeal to mystery to be uh, a valid answer, to these types of important questions, which I have demonstrated to have legitimate, logical, and scriptural answers, right? It's one thing to appeal to mystery on, mis on, on true mysteries that the Bible does not address. But when the Bible answers these questions, and they're just not giving the answers you like, so you want to ignore them, that is not a valid way to appeal to mystery. And if you consider appeal to mystery to be a valid way of, of answering questions, then again, you can never be proven wrong. There's, there's nothing I could ever say, there's nothing the Bible could ever say to convince you of these particular things. You're just going to believe what you want to believe, and when you're challenged, appeal to mystery. And I think that that's sad. I know that's going to be offensive to a lot of you, but I'm saying that in, in a bit of a loving way. I'm trying to get you to wake up. You need to think these things through. You need to study these things. You need to give answers. You need to be consistent within your worldview. It is, it is, it is a very good thing to do to pursue to pursue truth to pursue consistency and to have a worldview that is logically consistent that's not a bad thing it's a very good thing so now i'd like to consider a, a claim that is made by the free will side very commonly 
And that is the idea that God, quote unquote, permits sin or evil. God permits evil. There's a very interesting line of questioning that results from that, and it is once again very rarely considered. And part of my, my purpose here is to bring these things to light. So the first question I would like to ask is, if you admit that God is permitting something, how can you then also say that he is unwilling that it happen? Isn't unwilling permission a contradiction in terms? If you're admitting that God is permitting something, you're also admitting that he has the absolute power to stop it. That it can, the only way it's occurring is that he has chosen to allow it to occur. So how then can you say that he has chosen to allow it, but he is unwilling that it happen? This is an important question I would like an answer to. I also find it interesting that if you're going to say, well, God, God permits evil so that he does not violate free will, why is it okay for us to violate free will in the, when, when we're going to prevent somebody else from committing an act of evil? It's not, just, it's not just morally acceptable that we violate their free will to prevent evil. It's expected of us. If we do not violate their free will to prevent them from committing evil, we ourselves are, can be viewed as committing a particular evil or being an, an accomplice to whatever crime it is that we have allowed to happen. Why does that same logic not also apply to God? Um, I'm not even guaranteed a success when I set out to attempt to stop somebody from committing evil. God is absolutely guaranteed success. So why is it then that God is not morally obligated to violate free will to prevent evil? We are. Why isn't God? Why is it, God, why is it wrong for God to violate free will to prevent evil, but it's not wrong for us to do so? If I were to stand before a judge... And the judge were to say, why did you not stop this man from assaulting this woman when you could have stopped it? And I were to just say, well, obviously, judge, it's because I didn't want to violate their free will. Is, is that judge going to say, oh, yeah, silly me. Right? That's, that's the ultimate rule of the universe here. Can't violate free will. So, okay, you're excused. Of course not. Why then do free will proponents find this to be an acceptable line of thinking when it comes to God? That this do not violate free will rule um, is some rule that God has to play by. And so it's suddenly now okay for God to allow all sorts of unbelievably terrible evil things that God could have stopped because he didn't want to, inter he didn't want to violate free will. It just doesn't make much sense. Um, if you tried to say that, well, well, if you admit actually that God has at times or does at times violate free will, well, that introduces a new line of questioning, because how is that fair? How is it fair that God violates the free will of one person, but not another person? Right? You're, you're always talking about fairness and, and, and this and that when it comes to the way God interacts with people. When, when, when somebody comes and tries to kill me, they want to murder me, their free will is that I die. My free will is that I live. Why is it okay for God to prefer the free will of the person killing me over my free will to live? And I just want to briefly point out, again, this is why free will sounds good in a vacuum. It sounds good when God just throws you down here on earth, you're all by yourself, and it's just you and him, right? And you get the chance to accept Jesus, and you use your free will to either accept it or reject it, and you go to heaven or hell, and that's the end of the story. The problem is that when you zoom out and address the idea of free will and how it looks in real life with other people and their free will coming and clashing with your free will, um, it turns into a very ugly, ugly place. 
And so we're talking about this idea of someone can come along and want to murder me. I find it very ironic that people can't stand when Calvinism says God determines that people end up in hell. But you're perfectly okay with the free will view in which another finite creature standing next to me can determine my eternal destiny by murdering me before I've heard the gospel. Or maybe I heard the gospel, but I was having a bad day, so I rejected it. And, uh, you know, if I hadn't been murdered then, maybe I would have gone on to be saved. But another person with their free will can come along and determine my eternal destiny by murdering me in an unsafe state. So you have a problem with God, the creator, determining your eternal destiny, but your, or my eternal destiny in this, in this example. You have a problem with God, the creator, determining eternal destinies of men. That's just morally unbelievably insane and reprehensible. But you're perfectly okay with other people's free will determining other people's destiny. And God lets it happen. God lets it happen. He could stop it. He could stop that person from murdering me so that I could go on later on to hear the gospel and be saved. But God willingly lets people murder other people in unsafe states and with their free will determine the eternal destinies of other people. And God just stands by and lets it happen. And that is supposed to be a, a, a more acceptable view. Not only that, but when you go down the road of admitting that God has the absolute power to stop a particular sin, such as someone murdering me, but he chooses not to stop it, when it comes to the ultimate being of God having full power and potential in your in your particular position and viewpoint, potential control of things if he wants to control them, um, how is that not God determining that something happened? If, if sin, and for example, someone murdering me, if that murder can only ultimately happen if God allows it, how is he not, by allowing it, determining that it happens? So a video on this topic would not be complete without addressing the idea of responsibility. Everybody seems to always say that re uh, responsibility presupposes freedom. But again, as we've asked multiple times in this episode, you need to clarify what you mean by freedom. What is the reference point for freedom? Okay. Are you talking about merely freedom from coercion? The idea that you are being forced to do something you don't want to do? Is the reference point for freedom merely the fact that you're doing what you want? Again, this works perfectly fine in a deterministic worldview, which includes the fact that you want to do what you're doing. So if, the, if doing what you want is your reference point for freedom, right? Escaping the idea of coercion or, or, or force against your will, um, it works just fine, right? In a deterministic worldview as well. But this is, of course, not what you mean, right? We all know that when you talk about responsibility presupposing freedom, you mean freedom from God. You must mean that because it's the only reference point that matters once again. But here's the problem with that. Just stop and think about it. it. Sounds great on the fly, like most free will things do. But when you think about it for a moment, if you were truly free from God, then God would have no right over you to hold you responsible in the first place, right? So on this particular instance, responsibility actually, actually presupposes the opposite of freedom. Responsibility presupposes that the person holding you responsible has the right over you to do so in the first place. Okay, so in the simple sense of freedom from God, this uh, definition actually blows up in your face, because if you were truly free from God, um, if you were tr truly autonomous, I haven't used that word yet, but it is a very common phrase, autonomous free will. Autonomous literally means a law unto yourself. That's what the word means. So if you think that you have this freedom from God, this autonomous free will, then you would not even need to play by God's laws in the first place. So it's very ironic that you're going to talk about responsibility presupposing the very thing that violates the idea of being able to be held responsible in the first place. And this is why God is the only truly 
free will, autonomous being. God is the only being in existence who is a law unto himself. There is nobody outside of him who gave him any laws. There is nobody outside of him who has the right to hold him responsible for anything in the first place. It's what it means to be autonomous. It's what it means to be free. It's what it means to have true free will, and only God has it. This also ties directly into the answer we've been talking about, which is why God can't ever be held responsible for evil in the first place. People always say, well, if Calvinism's true, uh, then God's responsible for evil. They use that word. But what do you... If, if by responsible, right, you simply mean that he had something to do with it, well, of course he did. He's the creator. At a bare minimum, he created the universe in which it exists. And as I would go on to say, um, he is actually determining and planning the fact that things are coming to pass, and by his sustaining power, carrying them out. But this is not what you mean when you say God's responsible for evil. You're talking about a moral responsibility, right? You mean morally responsible, but to who? I, it, I always laugh out loud when I hear people say, if God determines sin, if God causes sin, he'd be responsible. Responsible to who? To you? He's certainly not responsible to you or me. And there's no other gods out there. There's nobody above God or outside God who would hold him responsible. What do you mean he'd be responsible? Right? And again, we don't give God laws, right? We don't get to falsely assume, well, God, if you're going to hold me responsible, you must give me free will. Or if you're going to hold somebody else responsible, you can't determine what they're going to do. Right? These are false assumptions. This is you actually trying to hold God responsible to you. You're the one trying to make the rules and give them to God, and it's absurd. It's obviously absurd. God is in a transcendent category, right? Um, and, and again, when it, sin, deal, sin and evil deals with laws. There is no law that says God cannot cause sin. So, moving on, if at this point you're starting to shout, no, 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 you're missing the whole point here. We're not simply talking about the right to hold somebody responsible, right? You would obviously claim that even though God gives you free will and you're free from him in certain instances— he still has the right because he's your creator, which I still think is a logical contradiction based on what I laid out. But you're going to say, no, no, you missed the point. God can't hold you responsible for something he determines that you do. First of all, where's that rule laid out? I've never seen it. You're claiming, again, responsibility presupposes. You're making a lot of presuppositions here that aren't actually foundationally laid out in scripture or in logic. All right. And so this is why we falsely assume that the way in which we interact with other people who are existing on our level, metaphysically, they, ex they are, we're all created by God. We all exist. So I don't have the actual right over another human being to kill them or to give them commands or to determine that they do anything, right? Because I'm not their creator. But God does, in fact, have the right over every one of us to do with us as he sees fit. The Bible says this in several instances, and just because we don't like it doesn't mean it's not true, right? He is the divine author who transcends creation, he has, it, he has laid it all out, which includes the fact that we will exist, we will be given commands, we will obey or disobey those commands, and be held responsible for those commands. He's laid it all out. And, and who are you to say he has, he has no right to do it that way? Right? I mean, again, go just put yourself in the sense of you're going to be an author, you're going to make up a story. It would obviously include all of those things. You would create, you would think up characters, you would plan what they would do, you would plan whether or not what they were doing was right or wrong, and what would the reference point for right or wrong be? You would have to determine that as the author, you would have to be the one who gave the laws, and you would also determine what the punishment or the rewards for obeying or disobeying those laws would be. Those would all be aspects of your quote-unquote creation, your story. Which brings me to my next point. Human responsibility is part of creation, right? It would not exist unless creation exists. Right? It's not like before God created, he's sitting there and he's, man, I'm going to plan out creation, I'm going to create humans, but there's this, this rule in place that I need to play by, right? This human responsibility rule. No. Right? 
human responsibility does not transcend creation. And this is the problem is when you consider that the free will position assumes that when it comes to you making choices, you're on God's level, not literally that you're God. I'm not saying that, but when it comes to you making choices, it's either you or God. Again, you falsely assume it can't be both. It can't be God as divine author and you as the created character, right? You are responsible to God because God has chosen to hold you responsible. You're part of his creation. He has chosen to make it this way. He's chosen that you'll exist, that there'll be commands, and that you'll be held responsible. That's the simple answer. You don't need to go any further than that, right? You're not held, you're not responsible to God because some sort of other law that God has to play by says that God is allowed to hold you responsible, right? There's no law that, that there's no, there's no law that looks down on God and says, all right, God, I see you're about to create now. Just remember, if you want to hold people responsible, you have to give them free will. This is falsely assumed on your part, and it's ridiculous. And so a lot of a lot of arguments that come against Calvinism stem from the falsely assumed idea that you can take rules that are applicable or standards that are applicable to human beings from one human being to another on our horizontal relationship. The fact that we're all creations of God, we don't have the right over one another to do these sorts of things. And so, for example, we're on the topic the topic of commands, right? If I were to come up to you and say, "I command you to love me, worship me, serve me." do this, don't do that, here's what you can and can't do, and just lay out all these commands, you would look at me like I was insane, right? And why is that? Because I don't have the right over you to do that in the first place, do I? Right? I don't have that right. We're both on the same level ontologically. We're both creations of God. I didn't create you. You didn't create me. You don't rely on, I don't, you know, you don't rely on me for your existence. I don't have that right over you. You would look at me like I was insane if I came up to you and started giving you those, those types of commands. So why doesn't your, you view me as insane for doing that? Why don't you view God as insane for doing the same thing? God creates people without asking them first, just creates them, and basically forces them to be placed into a position where he is now giving them commands. He creates them, throws them on on earth and says, you're going to, you need to love me, worship me, serve me. Here's what you can and can't do. And on and on and on. Why isn't God insane for doing the very same thing that you view me as insane for doing? And the answer is obvious. It's because he is in a transcendent ultimate position as creator. He has every right to do that. He's the one who makes the rules. He has the right to determine what is right, what is wrong, what we can and can't do. It's not up to us. It's up to him, right? So you can see how you take a humanistic example where I would be viewed as insane. When you try to apply the exact same thing to God, it completely evaporates and everything's perfectly fine because God is God. He's in a transcendent position. He is not on our level. It is not us and him side by side in this existence, um, and and we start making all sorts of false assumptions about how he can or can't hold us responsible if he's determining what we're doing. So take that same example about the idea of responsibility. If I were to determine that you did something and then tried to hold you responsible, you would call that ridiculous, right? Illogical, unfair, maybe even insane. But you, you, when you take that and apply it to God, instead of it evaporating like the other example did of giving commands, instead of just saying, well, well, now that we're talking about God, he is in a transcendent position, he's the author of all things, he has the right to do that. He has a right to determine what people do and still hold them responsible. All of a sudden, you want to hold on to that rule and apply that rule to God. And I just want to know, this is just one example of many examples where this is done. You draw humanistic analogies make assumptions, make rules, make standards, and then try to apply those to God as if he's on our level. And there's just many instances where 
ontolo- the, the entire point is the, the ontological difference between God and us is he has the right over us to do these things in the first place because he is the divine creator, author, so on and so forth. And so to briefly, hopefully briefly summarize the entire point here, responsibility presupposes freedom. If all you mean by that is you're doing what you want, then there's no problem. Calvinism has plenty of room for you being for you doing what you want and being held responsible. You're not forced by God. He's determined all things, including the fact that you're doing what you want, quote-unquote freely in that sense. But if you mean responsibility presupposes that you are free from God when you make choices, then I've laid out all the logical problems with this and why it is a rule that you are falsely assuming into this discussion. You need to prove that rule from somewhere, right? There's nothing that logically necessitates the rule, and there's nothing in Scripture that lays out the rule, that God can only hold you responsible if he somehow gives you this free will and lets you be free from him. It's just one, it's one of the biggest false assumptions in this entire discussion, to be quite frank about it. So now what I'd like to do is sort of shift gears. Um, I've been, I have included some questions for the free will side along the way so far, but what I've been doing most, mostly is laying a foundation, what I believe to be the necessary biblical logical foundation of God's metaphysical relationship to his creation and so that that is there. It's set in stone. It's always there to be to look back to. I can always point back to it. But what I want to do is shift gears and turn this into an all-out assault on the idea of free will from a simple, almost idle spectator standpoint. These are just questions that anybody who isn't even involved in this theological discussion would, would or should ask you. Um, and that you need to be able to answer if you're going to support the idea of free will. So let's shift gears and pretend, let's just pretend that everything I've said so far can be ignored. Let's pretend that you can find a way out of everything I've, all the logical problems I've pointed out. Let's just pretend that semi-deism is false and we all, we all, we still have free will. Let's pretend that somehow God is always upholding your existence, but you are also a self-determined entity somehow. Let's just pretend you find ways out of all of that. What we're going to do now is go through a long list of topics and questions and problems that the free will position has and needs to answer. And what I've noticed in my experience, and I don't have much experience doing this podcasting sort of thing, but I do have a lot of experience in in the sense of listening, reading. I used to engage in a lot of debate online. Um, and in my experience, Calvinists like myself spend most of our time on the defensive. It is always the Arminians asking, well, if this is true, then what about this? If that's true, what about that? How do you answer this? How do you answer that? What about this verse? What about that verse? And don't get me wrong. It's very fun to be on the defensive and to provide answers and to be able to provide answers to a lot of different questions. That's a very fun thing. But what people need to recognize is if you cannot turn, it's not enough to defend. You have to be able to counterattack. Because if you're playing chess, for example... You might provide the best defense possible. You might provide such a good defense that that the only thing left is the opponent's king. But as long as that king is not in checkmate, he can be up top wiggling back and forth, thinking he's still in the game, thinking that his his theological positions and his theological viewpoints are still alive and strong and valid. You have to counterattack and deliver checkmate in order for the other side to realize that they are not sitting in a very pretty position. And that is the primary, if I could 
name one purpose for this episode, this entire episode titled Free Will is Logically Impossible for us. The entire point of this episode is to get you people who believe in free will to realize that you are not sitting in as pretty of a position as you think you are. In my experience, people who hold to free will think that it is this magic wand that they can just wave around and make all of the, the, the world's theological problems go away, while at the same time demanding concise, logical, con, you know, consistent answers from the other side. And it's, it's like very rarely are the tables turned and are the free will people put on the defensive. They're always on the attack. They're rarely on the defensive. So what I'm going to do now is shift gears and ask a very long line of questioning. And these are questions which, most of which, I have never heard an answer, a legitimate answer to, in my experience. Um, most of the the ways these questions are addressed is appeal to mystery. There's a lot of appeal to mystery when it comes to defending free will, in my experience. Again, part of the point of this episode is, please prove me wrong. Write in the comments, write me the messages, make the video responses, whatever you want to do. I want to hear answers to these questions. So the first line of questioning I want to go through relates to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, the foreknowledge of God is by far my favorite topic because, in my opinion, it is the absolute death knell to the free will position. And it by itself is the death knell in the sense that you could actually forget all the foundational things and all the logical problems I've pointed out so far. You could put them aside. You could pretend like you've been able to answer them. Somehow, deism is false and we have free will. Somehow, God always upholds my existence, but I have free will. Somehow God is always exerting power over me, but I have free will. Let's pretend you can get away from all those things. You still have to face the problem of the free, the, the foreknowledge of God. Now, I'm going to assume for the sake of this episode that we all agree that God knows the future. I'm aware that there is a camp known as open theism, which teaches that God does not know the future. They are very crafty in the way they go about saying that, they will say that God knows all things, but since the future, he, he only knows what is knowable. Since the future is not knowable, he doesn't know the future, but he still knows all things. Now, I'll make, I'll make a video on open theism in the future and uh, show that it's just highly unbiblical. Um, that's why it's an extreme minority view. The reason open theism exists, by the way, is precisely because of what we're pointing out here. Open theists are at least attempting to be consistent. If free will is to be true, God cannot know the future. That is the entire purpose of the existence of the open theist movement and position. Okay, so I have a little bit of respect for them in the sense that they're at least trying to to uh, consistently address issues. The problem is that they're abandoning what is biblical for the sake of what is unbiblical. That's the sad truth. Um, and what you have with the majority of cases, which is the majority of you free will proponents, is you don't abandon the biblical, thankfully, but you still want to hold on to the unbiblical, free will. So you have this clash of logical contradiction and problems where God knows the future and you have free will, and most of the time you're just going to appeal to mystery um, or, or pretend like free will in and of itself is just the answer to everything. But as we're going to show, um, there is a long, long, very long list of, of questions that you need to be answering um, to support, to logically support and uphold your idea of free will in light of the fact that God knows the future. There is also another camp on the free will side known as Molinism. Molinism is gaining in popularity, I believe, because it is at least putting out the effort of attempting to logically address these issues. So once again, I highly respect that. I will do episodes on Molinism in the future, I assure you. 
Um, in my opinion, it is very easy to point out logical problems with Molinism. They, they are trying to be logical, but in doing so, they tie themselves in knots, to make a long story short. Um, but the purpose of this video is not to focus on Molinism. The purpose of this video is to address the, the majority view, a simple foreknowledge view, for lack of a better term, where God knows the future. Um, a more full discussion on the foreknowledge of God is better saved for future episodes. Um, and we can get into all those other issues, open theism, Molinism, so on and so forth. But for this particular episode, we're going to proceed through a line of questioning that just assumes a general idea that God knows the future. So the first and most important question that I could ever ask, and I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say that I have never, ever heard an adequate or sufficient answer to the question that I'm about to ask. So I'm putting what I consider to be the most important question at the very at the very start. And it is it belongs at the start, not just for that reason, but for the reason that it is going to provide a a branch of subsets of question of lines of questioning, as you'll see. Um, so it's good to start here, and it just deals with man's eternal destiny and God's foreknowledge. So Calvinists are constantly criticized as having a a horrible, terrible, how could anybody believe that? such type of view where God is actually predestining people to hell and it's not up to them and that's just terrible apparently now of course Calvinists believe that and I'm here to tell you that any theistic system Christian or not any theistic system that believes that God knows the future is stuck with that quote-unquote problem now I don't see it as a problem I think the Bible teaches it I think it's logically necessary I don't see any problem with it at all, other than it raises your emotions and it's not something that you like. I'm not going to pretend I particularly like it either, but me liking or not liking something is not what determines what I should or shouldn't believe. And so this idea that God is e determining eternal destinies of men is something that any theistic system that has God knowing the future is stuck with. And so this is the basis of my first question. I've worded this question very carefully. Um, and I'm going to read it twice, not because I question anybody's intelligence, but just to make sure I get the point across. The question is, if God knows that by creating you, you will end up in hell, how has God not determined that you end up in hell by creating you? Okay, say it one more time. If God knows that by creating you, you will end up in hell, and nothing can change what he knows, how has God not determined that you end up in hell by creating you? Now, the most common way that this particular question is usually addressed from the free will side is that they will say, well, just because God knows that something will happen does not mean that he determined it to happen, right? Just because God foreknows that something will happen does not mean that he determined that it will happen. And this, again, sounds great on the fly, but when you stop for even half a second, you realize that this is why I worded the question that I asked so, so carefully, because you'll notice something. If God knows that by creating you, his knowledge is grounded in his own action, right? So the only way that the statement that if God foreknows something doesn't mean he determined it would, would be true is if the thing he's foreknowing is not traceable to him. In other words, he has nothing to do with, absolutely nothing to do with whatever it is he's foreknowing. And the reason that this ridiculous idea would even enter people's minds to begin with is because we always try to draw humanistic analogies and make things relatable to us. And, we, and unfortunately, this can result in a lot of false analogies. So people will say things like, well, 
I can foreknow things, right? Let's 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 pretend I can, well I can't with full accuracy foreknow things. Let's pretend that I could though. I now have the magical thing called foreknowledge. I foreknow that tomorrow on the other side of the planet, X, Y, and Z are going to happen, but I had nothing to do with those things. So see, I prove my point. I can foreknow X, Y, and Z even though I had nothing to do with them. Okay. The problem with that is the reason you have nothing to do with X, Y, and Z is because you didn't create X, Y, and Z. You're not upholding X, Y, and Z by your power, so on and so forth. The, the, there's, a, there's all the difference in the world between you and what is happening around you and God and what is happening in the, in the universe he created, right? So God has absolutely everything to do with everything because he's the creator of it all at a bare minimum. That's a bare minimum. We're just talking about God bringing stuff into existence, right? Or in the case of my question, we're just talking about God bringing you into existence, right? So already we would have to change that humanistic analogy from I foreknow on the other side of the planet X, Y, and Z to I foreknow that if I do something X, Y, and Z. Now the analogy is more accurate, right? Because we are grounding our foreknowledge in our own action. And this is what makes all the difference in the world. This is what invalidates the statement. Just because God foreknows something doesn't mean he caused it, right? God's foreknowledge is grounded in his own actions. God knows if I create this universe, X, Y, and Z will happen. Therefore, by taking that action, he is ensuring that X, Y, and Z will come about. By taking the action, you ensure that what you foreknow will result from that action will come about. It's perfectly logically uh, valid. And the, the, the idea that you're foreknowing things that you have nothing to do with, uh, trying to apply that to God, is invalid. So if, we, if, if I just give a quick example, you could give a billion examples if you had the magical thing called foreknowledge. You could say, well, if I foreknow that by letting my friend use my car, he's going to get in an accident and die, then by taking that action and letting my friend use my car, I am determining that he dies, period. There's no way around that, right? And I'm not raising any sort of moral question or whatever, obviously. I'm just making the simple point that you are determining what you foreknow will come to pass by taking the action upon which that foreknowledge is grounded. So going back to the question, if God foreknows that by creating you, you will end up in hell, right? His own action comes logically first in the order of what he is foreknowing. God can't foreknow anything about you unless he first foreknows that he's going to make you, right? Logically speaking, you want to sit there and just talk about this basic idea that God foreknows what you're going to do. Before he can foreknow what you're going to do, he has to foreknow that you're going to exist. And who is it that's responsible for your existence? It's God. It's not you. You didn't bring yourself into existence, right? That would be absurd. And yet that's the only way in which your ridiculous statement, God foreknowing the future doesn't mean he determined it, would be true. Is if you brought yourself into existence, you popped yourself into existence, and now God foreknows you're going to end up in hell. Now your statement's true. Now you have an argument. But this is not reality. Reality is God brought you into existence, and everything he foreknew about your future was first grounded in and is the result of his action to bring you into existence. So I'm talking in circles now. Um, I'm just repeating myself over and over and over. The point is very basic. I'm just trying to cover it from different angles so people can see it. I'm not trying to be dramatic. That, that answer is one of the worst answers in all my theological studies I've ever come across. Just because God foreknows something doesn't mean he determined it. Absolutely ridiculous. It is unavoidable that you're missing the point that God's foreknowledge is grounded first in his own action, right? And again, if you foreknow that by doing something, X, Y, and Z will happen, if you take that action and you do that something, 
you are determining that X, Y, and Z will happen, right? So this is unavoidable. And this is unavoidable not just from the creation of you or the creation of the universe. It's unavoidable from all angles when it comes to God, because whether it's God creating the universe, whether it's God creating you, whether it's God taking action in time and interacting with people, God foreknows the results of his own actions every step of the way, and therefore, by taking those actions, he is determining the future of those actions, period, okay? And I challenge anybody to refute what I'm saying without appealing to mystery. I can already hear those of you shouting, ah, but you're missing the point, because your entire argument as a free will proponent is that you are somehow metaphysically disconnecting yourself from God, right? So that he's foreknowing choices that are not actually traceable metaphysically to his act of creating you. They are self-caused, self-determined, you're your own first mover, so on and so forth. Now, on again, the very surface level of that, I don't know how you can say that with a straight face. That you are literally proposing that you're metaphysically disconnecting yourself from God, and yet Hebrews 1.3 is still true. God upholds your existence by his power. At all times, at all moments, moment by moment by moment. How can that verse be true, and your position that you're metaphysically disconnected from God also be true? It can't. Good luck explaining that. Let's pretend it could be, though. Let's pretend you could explain it. Now I want you to explain how you can metaphysically disconnect yourself from God, deny the connection between God's action to create you and your own actions. In this case, you're ending up in hell. You're going to completely disconnect those two things so that your ridiculous statement, God foreknows what I'm going to do, but he didn't determine it, is true. How can God then foreknow what, what you're going to do? How can God for this is why open theism exists, it's why it's logically consistent, there's a reason behind it. If you're going to make that disconnection, then how could God know what you're going to do? If my question is, if God, for, if God foreknows that by creating you, XYZ, you're going to say that his creating of you does not determine XYZ, then the statement, if God knows by creating you, is also irrelevant, Right? God is now not foreknowing the results of his own action. He's just foreknowing, um, I don't know, right? Foreknowledge is always based upon um, antecedent things. Even the simple idea, I mean, we can't have full foreknowledge, right? But we can make predictions. We make predictions and we say, huh, I bet you that's going to happen, or I really think this is going to happen. What are those thoughts based upon? It's not just out of the blue, right? We're not just saying, I foreknow that's going to happen because I foreknow it. Our predictions are based on information. The more information we have, the more we know about the state of the existence of particular things, the more accurate our predictions can be. Now, obviously, God knows all things, and so God's quote-unquote predictions um, are 100%, right? Uh, you, those of you who believe that God is looking into the future, foreknowing the future by look, you know, looking at, he, he has to know everything that's leading up to that future, right? Logically speaking. And and so the more information you have, the more accurate your prediction is, even on a finite level. Uh, but what you're, what you're admitting there is you're, de you're admitting determinism. You're admitting a deterministic connection between what is being predicted, or in God's case, foreknown. You're admitting a deterministic connection of what leads up to what is being predicted, or what leads up to what is being foreknown, when you go down that road. And to try to say that God can or is foreknowing things that are not determinatively connected to what comes before them, I hope people can see how illogical that is. So this is why you tie yourself in knots when you try to go down this road. If you want to metaphysically disconnect yourself from God, then God could not know your future. He could not know what you're going to do because there's no basis upon which to know it. 
He can't say, I foreknow that tomorrow you're going to do this because here's what's going to lead up to that. He can't know that, right? Because you're disconnecting your, your choices from what comes before those choices. And this is the giant conundrum that the free will position finds itself in. It is denying all of logic. It is denying all of reality. It, it just takes it all and throws it out and says, nope, I've got free will. I'm self-determined. I'm self-caused. I'm my own first mover. And we want to be nice, good little Christians and, and believe the Bible. So God knows the future too. And don't question it. It's a mystery. Uh, we don't know how. We just know that. Your imagination is not big enough. And how dare you question what God can do. And that's, that is the summation of the free will position. And I want to point out very briefly, for those of you who would say, that it, it is possible for God to foreknow what you will do, foreknow things about your life that have nothing to do with the fact that he created you. Right? Basically, I've heard people say, the Bible teaches that God foreknows the future, but it doesn't teach us how God foreknows the future. I call baloney on this. There are numerous verses that teach this, right? The most explicit verse in the entire Bible that completely summarizes the logical concept that God knows everything he knows about you because he's the one who creates you, when and where and how he creates you. He is the one who determines everything about your life is Psalm 139.16. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. So clearly, this is teaching that God knows everything about your life, every detail of your life, before you exist, before you're born. Right? These details are written in his book. Now, this is poetic. There's not a literal book, obviously. But the point is, God knows every one of them, the days that are formed for you before, the, before they happen. Now, the question is, who wrote the book and who formed the days? The days that were formed for me. You didn't form your own days, and yet that's precisely what a free will position would teach. God foreknows your days. God foreknows what you will do because you, with your free will, determined what you would do. You wrote your own book. You formed your own days. And God merely foreknows it. This is a violation, not of just the logical things I just brought up. This is a violation of the verse. God wrote the book. God formed your days for you. This verse is one of my favorite verses to completely destroy the idea of free will. And uphold this ridiculous claim that, well, the Bible teaches that God knows the future. It doesn't teach how he knows the future. This verse says it does. He knows your days because he formed them for you, not because he just somehow magically foreknew it, right? The next sub-question that branches off of this is just sort of the obvious flow of what would go through most people's minds. Because if you're admitting, or claiming, I should say, if you're going to claim that God doesn't want anybody in hell, that if God could have it his way, nobody would end up in hell, that everybody would go to heaven then why would God create anybody that he knows will end up in hell? That doesn't make much sense to me. God doesn't want anybody in hell, so why not only create the people he knows will end up in heaven? Right? And this question applies not just to ultimate destinies of heaven and hell. This question can apply to major events and major people throughout history as well. If God didn't want Hitler to do the things that Hitler did, why did he create Hitler? Why not not create Hitler and save a lot of lives? God's the one who is, he wasn't forced to create Hitler, right? He wasn't forced to create anybody that's going to end up in hell. God is in control of these things. So this is a logical question that needs to be asked. If God, if it is up to God whether or not 
people exist or not exist? How can you say that the results of his act to create them are, are not something that he actually wanted to come to pass? Now, when we start talking about emotional things like Hitler and other terrible things that people do to other people, um, we need to understand that there is a big difference, categorically speaking, from a command of God, which represents what is right and what is wrong, and what God wants to come to pass. Because I don't know how you can read the Bible and come to the conclusion that God never wants something to come to pass that is a violation of his command, right? I don't know how you can get three steps through the Bible without realizing that there are many times in which God wants something to come to pass that is a violation of one of his commands, right? And of course, the reason he wants it to come to pass is because he has a purpose in it, right? And that's obvious. But just a few quick, really obvious scriptural examples. The first one that Calvinists always bring up, and rightly so, is the crucifixion, right? God says, thou shalt not murder, and yet he predestined, according to Acts, he predestined the murder of his son, he predestined all the actions of all the people involved in the crucifixion. It literally says that. It uses the word. They gathered together to do what your hand and purpose predestined to occur. So here you have, God says thou shalt not murder, but God predestines murder. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. Because there's a difference between a mere command, which represents what's right and wrong, and what God wants to come to pass in time. We can boil this back down to the very beginning, and you're going to say, if you're going to say that God does not want sin, period, ever to come to pass, why did he create a universe in which sin comes to pass? Basic question. Please answer it. If God does not want sin to come to pass, why did he create a universe which, in which he knew sin would come to pass? Can you answer that? Then when we move into specific examples, it becomes even more difficult for you. If God, doesn't want, if God never wants murder to occur, why did he predestine the murder of his son? Now, the, the obvious Christian biblical answer is obvious. God had a purpose in the murder of his son, the greatest purpose in all of creation, I might add. The very apex of the reason this universe exists was so that he could save sinners from their sin in Jesus Christ, demonstrate his grace and his mercy, right? Guess what? He can only do that if there's sin and if his son is murdered. So isn't it, isn't it a little ironic that the only way, if God, the universe doesn't exist yet, God wants to demonstrate, I am a merciful God, I am a gracious God, I am a powerful Savior. Isn't it a little interesting that people don't stop to realize the only way he can create something and demonstrate those things is if sin exists in that universe? So how can you possibly say this general statement, God never wants sin to come to pass? It's absurd. Of course he does, right? I'm not saying the sin becomes good. I'm not saying that God predestined the murder of his son, therefore the people who murdered his son were doing a good thing. That is irrationally, illogically, an avoiding of the, of the primary point that I'm trying to make. And I'm not even going to entertain people who try to draw those sorts of connections. Of course, sin is sin. God says don't do it. It's bad if you do it. That does not uh, mean that we get to falsely assume that God, who is in control of all things, therefore never wants those things to come to pass. A few other quick biblical examples is Pharaoh. In the same sentence, God says, Go to Pharaoh, tell him to let the people go, but I will harden his heart so that he won't. Well, which is it? Does he want Pharaoh to let the people go? If you assume that his command represents what he wants to come to pass, your answer is yes. So there must be a contradiction. I want Pharaoh to let the people go, but I'll harden his heart so that he won't. No, it's not a contradiction. One is a command, and what is one is what God wants to come to pass in time. Very simple. Okay, And again, you can't read 
The case of Pharaoh, you can't read Romans 9, which summarizes it and says that Pharaoh was raised up for the purpose of destruction, demonstrating God's power, making his name known throughout the world, right? There was 101 million different other ways God could have gotten his people out of Egypt without destroying Pharaoh. He chose to go that route. He chose to destroy Pharaoh. He chose to do things for specific reasons. Joseph's brothers. Genesis 50 literally says, God meant it for good. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Their actions still evil, and yet God wanted their evil action to come to pass because he had a good purpose in it. Very simple. Not a contradiction, right? And all the little ways in which Arminians think they're quote-unquote answering these verses, we can talk about those verses all day long. We can argue them later. The point still stands, that God can command one thing and yet want to come to pass another thing. And it's not a contradiction, right? And so... You're the one that needs to be able to explain your claim. God never wants people in hell, and yet he creates people knowing they'll go there. God never wants people to sin, and yet he creates people knowing that they will sin. God is the one who could stop all of these things. From the from the bare minimum of not creating them in the first place, right? He could have stopped Hitler by just not creating Hitler. So why did he create Hitler? Can somebody explain that? Was he forced to create Hitler? Yes or no? If no, then how can you say that he didn't want Hitler doing the things he did as coming to pass in time, that God didn't have any purpose in any of that, why create Hitler then? Why not create Hitler differently? Couldn't he have created Hitler in such a way, different parents, different country, different time, three centuries later, right? Now Hitler's not doing the things that Hitler would have done, right? God's in control of that. These are questions that need to be answered. The next logical question to ask is, could God have created you differently? in a different time, in a different place, to different parents, different circumstances, could God have created people differently, right? Now, the obvious answer is yes. If you're going to say no, then you're, you're somehow saying that God was forced to create people when and where he did, which I think is absurd. I don't think anybody's going to affirm that, because you would be denying God's freedom, and, and nobody's going to do that. So what you're forced to admit is yes, in fact, God could have created people differently. And the next question is, would your choices have then been different? I don't think there's any denying that if God had created you in a different time, in a different place, different circumstances, different parents, that your entire life and all your choices would have been completely different, right? If God knows someone's going to end up in hell, if they're created in this way, can God create them in such a way that they will end up in heaven? Different time, different place, different parents, different location, maybe more gospel exposure, so on and so forth. If your answer is, yes, he could have created them differently, but no, they still would have always ended up in hell. Well, first of all, I think that's that's just very interesting, if you want to claim that. I, I, I don't know how you would logically be able to justify that. That out of all the millions of possible ways that God could have created somebody, they always would have ended up in hell. That sort of violates the whole concept of free will to begin with, doesn't it? As you're not really that free if no matter what way God creates you, you're going to end up, going to end up in hell. So you, you sort of self-implode at that point. But again, I just loop back to the question of what, then why create you? If God knows that no matter no matter how I create, I've got trillions of ways I could put create this person, they're always going to end up in hell. It's so frustrating. Well, then just don't create them. If you don't want them in hell, don't create them, right? And, and not only that, but wouldn't non-existence be preferable to eternity in hell? I mean, if God, I jokingly said earlier, God didn't check with you first, but if God could... Somehow, let's just pretend that God could check with people first and say, hey, I'm going to create you and you're going to end up in hell. You want to be created? 
I think all of them would say, no, thanks. I'd prefer to just not exist, right? Or if he were to say, hey, dude, I, I've, I've looked into the future of all the trillions of ways I could create you, and you're always going to end up in hell. Um, would you like to be created? I think everybody would say no. That, not, that, that non-existence is preferable than eternity in hell. So again, why does God create anybody he knows will end up there? I just want an answer to that question, please. And that now let's flip over to the, the other possible answer, and that is, yes, God could have created you differently, and yes, God could have created you in such a way that you would, end up, you would have ended up in heaven. Well, then why not do that? If God doesn't want anybody in hell, why not create everybody in such a way that they all end up in heaven? Are you going to say that that is something that, it, that the, the all-wise, all-powerful God of the universe cannot do? That, that Molinist would say that. Molinist would say there is no possible world in which everybody's saved. And they, we, we'll have that discussion later. But I just want to ask as a general question to people who believe that God knows the future, that God is the one who is in control of whether or not you exist, could God have created the people differently so that instead of ending up in hell, they would have ended up in heaven? You, these are things you need to answer yes or no to, and then answer the, the logical things that flow out of that. And so if you say yes, this is why this is very important and why this ties directly into whether or not you can have this thing called free will to begin with. If you notice something, if you come all the way down this line of questioning, yes, God is the one who is responsible for whether or not you exist. Yes, God uh, could have created me differently. And yes, um, he could have created me in such a way that I would have ended up in heaven. Then you're admitting that God is, in fact, the ultimate determiner of everything about your life. If you admit that God could have created you in a different way, and everything about your life would have been different, then he's the one who chooses which of those lives you have. Every, every, every detail and aspect of, 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 of those lives, he's the one who determines when and where and how you're created. So you're admitting that God is the ultimate determiner of everything about your life, based upon when, where, and how he creates you, so how can you fit free will into that? The only way you can do it is, like I said, in, in a vacuum. You can fast forward into time and start talking about a choice you made, isolate that choice, rip it out of the context of everything that surrounds it and reality and everything else. Forget about the fact that God created you, when and where and how he did. You have to disconnect all of those things from that choice and try to say that you are making free will choices. When in fact, I think everything we're talking about so far is a refutation of, of that possibility. God is the ultimate determiner of everything about your life. You are admitting that when you admit that God is the one in control of when, where, and how you are created. So at this point, people will, will scoff and mockingly say that, well, if this is true, then God is the chooser of our choices. And I just say, yeah, that's the entire point. That's just another way of saying that God is the determiner of your choices. If you are going to admit that everything about your existence, including your choices, is ultimately tied to and related to when and where and how God creates you, how else can it be said than that God is the chooser of your choices? If he has a million different ways he can create you, and a million different ways that you'll be making choices and existing and doing and, and, and choosing, and it's up to God which of those million ways he creates you, how can you not say that your choices are not up to God? I, I just want to I want to answer that question, and to say to to to, to say that uh, 
that you are somehow the, the chooser of your choices. Again, God being the chooser of your choices, that's a true statement because he is in an ultimate position. He transcends creation. He's, he's not a part of creation. He transcends it. So when you say you're the chooser of your choices, I don't really understand that statement. Your choices happen in time. You make choices. But to say that you chose the choices is like a circular type of, I don't really understand that. Because you're mixing categories of ultimate and immediate. You're mixing the, the eternal with the temporal. And you're somehow saying that if you're choosing your choices, you are somehow transcending reality and 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 choosing what you will choose. It just doesn't make any sense. You're adding an extra layer there that, that doesn't make any logical sense at all. So if, if you didn't choose to be created, then you also didn't ultimately, and ultimately is the key word here, we can't leave that word out. If you didn't choose to be created, then you didn't ultimately choose anything else about your life as well. That was ultimately all up to God. And this is my point. This is not just something Calvinists say, and, and we're not, quote-unquote, stuck with it. This is something that all theistic systems are stuck with, right? Uh, you didn't pre-exist your own existence. Again, you didn't sit there and, and say, ooh, I'll choose that choice there, and then that choice there, and then that choice there, so that you're the chooser of your choices, and then, okay, God, I'm ready to be created. Let's set it in action. That didn't happen. <laughs> but that's the only way that what you're saying, choose, I'm the chooser of my choices, would make any sense. And this is why it is, is logically invalid. God is, of course, the chooser of everything about our lives, including our choices. And all I'm asking is, can you prove me wrong? Logically explain how I am wrong. What does it mean that you're the chooser of your choices? How can it not be that God is not the chooser of your choices if all of these things are true? And I'd like to once again, when we're talking about God choosing our choices... You might think that sounds terrible, but I bring up once again the idea of God being the divine author. He stands in an ultimate position that transcends creation, right? If you were to think up or create or plan a story, right? And in that story, you're going to plan everything about your characters, including what they do, right? This is what authors do. Uh, and yet, it can be said logically, it's not a contradiction to say that you as the author chose their choices. They make choices in time, just as we do. Our choices are real. They happen. They occur. We are the ones making choices. And yet, because God stands in the ultimate position, or you, in the case of the author example, you are authoring or choosing their choices. It's not a contradiction, right? It might seem like a contradiction when you just say it, well, God chose my choices, but it's not a contradiction. It's only a contradiction if, once again, you lower, whether you're intending to or not, you lower God down from that ultimate transcendent position and put you side by side with him which I know you don't admit to doing. You don't. I'm not accusing you of doing it. I'm just getting you to tr trying to get you to recognize that this is what your view does, whether you like it or not. It lowers God down to your level, puts you on par with Him when it comes to making choices, and says that it's got to be you or God. It can't be both. And I'm telling you, it can be both, and it is both. God is the author of whatsoever comes to pass, including your choices. Just as if you were to author a story, you would be authoring everything that came to pass in your story, including the choices of your characters. You would be the chooser of their choices, and yet as that story unfolds, they're making those choices. It's the exact same thing that's going on in creation when we talk about God choosing our choices. It's not a contradiction, and I hope it's very clear by now. And by the way, again, those of you who might say, okay, well, that, that whole divine author thing sounds interesting, but where do you find that in the Bible? You remember Psalm 139.16, which I quoted just a little bit ago? I don't know how much more word-for-word word you can get than the idea that 
in God's book were written, every one of them the days that were formed for you, when there was none. The idea that God is the divine author, of course that's poetic language, but it is almost word for word, conceptually, with the idea of God being an author with a book, forming days, it is conceptually proving the precise point that God formed our days for us and wrote them in his book, right? Now, of course, as, 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 as we, are, we are born, right, we, we, live, we live the days God formed for us, we make choices, we think thoughts, we take actions, we live out the days that God formed for us as our divine author. And yet, because God is transcendent, both of those things are true. God formed our days, we live them out. Notice, the fact that God formed our days does not make those days meaningless or fake or robotic or anything like that. All these false assumptions that fly against Calvinism and say, well, if God's in control, if God determined it all, blah, 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 how does that, how does that follow? How do you square your false assumptions of all those things with Psalm 139, 16? God formed our days and wrote them in our book. We live out those days and they are absolutely real. They are absolutely meaningful. God is the creator. He is the only one who can ultimately give meaning to anything, right? God doesn't need to give you free will so that you can give meaning to your own life. Anything that happens to you, everything about your life is given meaning by God, your creator. And so for those of you who, again, where's that taught in the Bible? This whole divine author thing? Isn't this just another Calvinistic theological concoction, right? Sitting in the high tower, thinking too far, going too far? No, it's right there in the Bible. God wrote in his book the days that he formed for us. And those days play out in time. We live, we move, we have our being in God. And that's the point is God is not just the author, but he brings his book, his creation to life. By his power, he brings it into existence. And by his power, he carries out the very days that he has planned and determined for us. And he's the one that gives it all meaning. He's the one that gives it all purpose. He's the one that brings it all about. This is his story, right? I'd also like to readdress the idea of uh, if free will is not true, we must be robots. I want to flip that around, actually. I, I've, I haven't heard this done, and it, it always pops into my mind. I would like to flip that around and say that if free will is true, if you have free will, then your free will makes God into a robot. That's my claim. So your claim is if you don't have free will, you're a robot. My claim is if you have free will, God's a robot. What do I mean by that? Robot or computer, as you'll see. What do I mean by that? Well... If your claim is that you have free will and God is reacting to your choices, then you're setting yourself up first in the logical order. You're the one who's free to start, right? You're the one who's free and God is going to react. Now, God is God, right? He's all powerful, all knowing. He has a million, trillion, billion, gazillion ways he could react to your choice, right? But since he's God, he's always going to react in the best possible way, isn't he? Wouldn't a perfect God always react in the best possible way? I think that's pretty logically obvious. And so if he's got a hundred billion trillion ways to react to you, but there's one best way, God's always going to choose the best way to react to you. So you think you have God being really free by pointing out that he's got all these ways he can react to you, but since he's God, since he's perfect, he's always going to react in the best possible way. You actually end up with God being determined by your actions. God is the one who has turned into a robot because you're the one who's free in, in the logical order. You start with your freedom and then God is basically forced by his nature of being perfect to react to you in the best possible way each and every time. So your actions 
are determining God's actions. And I just find this absolutely hilarious because you find the idea of God, your creator, you find the idea of God determining your actions to be morally reprehensible. It's appalling. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. How could you possibly believe that? But you are perfectly okay with your choices determining God's choices. And a lot of you guys haven't thought these things through, no offense, so you, ha you haven't seen the ramifications of what you're saying. You have a problem with God determining your choices, but you're perfectly okay with you determining God's choices. And I want you to, I want somebody to explain to me how you escape that logical fact that if you have free will, if you start with you having free will, you make God into a robot, into a computer who runs the numbers and is always going to respond in the best possible way. Even if you could establish that God could react in any of those trillion possible ways, and so yay, God's free, all of those trillion possible ways were still determined by you. And that's my ultimate point, right? Even if you could escape the necessity that God is reacting in the best possible way, and therefore he's a robot, you still don't establish the freedom of God to do what he wants, because what if what he wanted was not included in those trillions and billions of possible ways that he could have responded to you, right? You think you're granting God all sorts of freedom and saying, look at God, look how powerful God is, he can respond in all these ways. But those responses, those possible responses were determined by you because you're the one whose free will choice determined the way that God could respond. And again, I just find that really, really, really bad on a, on a theological point. Again, you're okay with you're okay with determining God's choices, but when I come along as a Calvinist and say that the creator of the universe determines your choices, you think that that's somehow the morally reprehensible view. And And really quickly, I suspect that the vast majority of people, once again, who have not thought these issues through, your answer to what I just said about God being a robot will be, of course he's not, and it, well, how does it work? It's just a mystery. You won't be able to actually address the logical things I brought up. You'll just basically have to say, I've got free will, and God has free will, and there's no contradiction, and he can respond to me in 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 this way and that way, and it's still him being free, and it's just a mystery. But I want to point out that those who are forced to think logically about these issues, I keep bringing up Molinism, even though this is not the point of this video, the leading Molinist, William Lane Craig, has just openly said that God has to deal with the cards he's been dealt. So stop and think about that for a moment. If God has to deal with the cards he's been dealt in this universe, number one, he did not determine the, the poker hands. Somebody else did. That's you with your free will. You determined what God has to deal with. And number two, are you going to dare suggest that God is going to deal with cards in a less than perfect way, in a less than optimal, best possible way? I don't think you're going to. So once again, how do you not have God being a robot? If God has to deal with the cards he's been dealt, and he is always going to deal with those cards in the best possible way, how is God free at all? Please explain to me how God is free at all when He's not the determiner of the cards. He's dealing with the cards he's been dealt, and he's always going to deal with them in the best possible way, which is why Molinists say that what this, this world we have is the best possible world. Where is God's freedom in any of that? Where was God free in any of that? And the answer is he wasn't. He's a robot. He's a computer. He, you have placed your free will as, as the most important thing. You've started with your free will, and therefore everything that follows is God being determined, God being the robot. And this is inescapable. And I just so I just wanted to point out, you're either going to appeal to mystery, you're just going to say, oh, you're, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? Everything I've said is just wrong because I say so and it's a mystery. Or if you try to say that this is not, this is somehow a misrepresentation of the free will view, Molinists openly say 
this is the best possible world, right? And God would not have chosen a less than best possible world. So all the worlds, all the possible worlds that God was presented with were determined by, not by him, but by free will. He's got to deal with the cards he's been dealt, and he's always going to choose the best possible world, which is what we have. How was God free in any of that? The answer is he wasn't. He was a robot. He was a computer, right? So you need to make a choice. Either you determine God's actions and choices, you determine everything about what God does in this universe with your free will, or God, with his free will, determines everything about the universe. God, with his free will, determines everything you do in this universe. You need to make a choice. And to conclude this idea of free will making God a robot, the conclusion, therefore, in my opinion, is that Calvinism is the, is the only viewpoint that grants God true, true freedom, right? Because you have to start with God as having free will and everything else being determined. Otherwise, you have God basically settling for less than the best, right? In other words, if free will is true, then the idea that if God could have had it his way, things would have been different must also be true, right? So God, God must have the best possible view in mind. But because free will is true, that best possible view must not always be coming to pass. So what is God stuck with? He's stuck with choosing from among other various second, third, fourth, best possible scenarios. And you have already limited God's freedom when you've done this. So Calvinists would say that all of creation, right? All of creation is exactly the way that God wanted it to be because he was free to make it that way, right? Because we start with God. Free will would have to say that there's all sorts of things that happen in creation that if God had it his way would not be happening or would have happened differently. And I just, I just have to wonder, how is that a more um, God-glorifying view when you're so focused upon man getting his freedom that you're sacrificing the freedom of God whether you realize it or not? I've also heard people respond to the idea of God, if, if free will's true, that God's not getting what he wants by saying, oh, but giving us free will is what God wanted. So God's getting what he wants because he's giving a, he wanted to give us free will, and so that's what he did. But then that would also mean that everything that results from him giving you free will is what he wanted, right? And if you say no, then what you're, what you're saying is basically a contradiction. You're saying that God wanted to not get what he wants, most of the time, in fact. Most of the time, since free will is true, God doesn't get what he wants. He has to settle for second, third, fourth best. Right? He could have the best, best scenario in mind, but your free will is going to limit his options. Right? So to come along and say, but, but that's okay, God's getting what he wants because he wanted to give us free will. All you're saying is that God wanted to not get what he wants most of the time, which is a contradiction. It, it, I'm sorry, it turns God into a, a schizophrenic. Um, not trying to be uh, too offensive there, but I don't know how else to view that. He wants to not get what he wants? Doesn't make any sense. So with these sorts of uh, questions being asked and foundations being laid, let's just consider a very quick biblical example, and let's see how, how well free will answers a, a couple tough questions. Let's take the disobedience of Adam, for example, the fall of Adam, and just ask some simple questions. For example, if God knew that Adam would disobey, are we really to believe that there was no, no possible way for the God of the universe to have prevented his disobedience? He could not have given him a heads up and said, hey, you know what? Satan's going to come along. Don't fall for it. Um, there's, there's, there's just no way that God, he couldn't, have, he couldn't have given him like visions. Like, if you do this, 
this apocalypse this fall will happen and look at all the look at all the terrible things you're going to cause if you disobey me he couldn't have done that or something like that to prevent the disobedience of adam i'd like somebody to answer that question because i think it's it's pretty obvious that god could have and if he if he could have and didn't then that raises the point that maybe just maybe the fall was part of god's plan right plan a not plan b a lot of people like to uh, to shift the blame or to say that, well, the reason Adam fell was because of Satan and his deception and Eve and, and so on and so forth. Well, then we could also ask, without, without Satan, with Satan out of the picture, would the fall still have happened, right? If you say no, then why did God create Satan, right? If God could have prevented the fall by not creating Satan, why not not create Satan, if you say yes, the fall still would have happened even without Satan, then that's an interesting reality. Was it then just a matter of time? Right? Given enough time, will free will always fail? I think that's an important question to ask. And that leads us to the question, why has there never been a sinless human? Apart from Jesus, who happened to be God. Why has there, if free will is true... I can answer why there's never been a sinless human from a deterministic standpoint. The fact that God is in control of all things and has a purpose and plan in all things. But if free will is true, why has there never been a sinless human being? Um, it doesn't really seem like free will is such a wonderful thing if, if its track record of success is 0%. Um, and even if it weren't 0%, even if you could say that you could point to a sinless human for a short period of time, once again we circle back and ask, is it just a matter of time before free will uh, fails and is used to commit evil? And if this is the case, uh, where does our sense of security lie? If, if, if free will is this wonderful thing that needs to be praised and is necessary for, I guess, meaningful relationships with God, so on and so forth, then... If it's always failing and nobody can ever be sinless, why is it such a wonderful thing to begin with? Um, this brings me to the next point. People like to say that free will is necessary and required for a true relationship with God to be possible. But this is so easily refuted by two, two things. The first thing is we, we're talking about Adam, so we just have to ask, what was the state of Adam prior to God placing the tree and giving the command? Right? He obviously wasn't a, a morally neutral zombie, right? lumbering around the garden, brain dead. God created him. He was, everything was good. Right? And are you going to say that Adam did not have a relationship, a true loving relationship with God, prior to God placing the tree and giving the command? And if your answer is, well, no, he did have a true relationship with God prior to the, the placing the tree and giving the, the command, then your, your claim that the possibility, that free will and the possibility of sin is required in order for a true relationship to be true is, is just refuted right on the spot. Because we can just ask the question, why did God place the tree there to begin with? Now, a lot of free will people say that God had to for this very reason. God had to place the tree there so that the possibility of evil was there, so that a true relationship could be there. But again, what was the state of the relationship of Adam and God prior to the tree? <laughs> and it's pretty obvious that it wasn't some zombie state, it wasn't meaningless, it wasn't robotic or, 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 or anything like that. 
it was a true loving relationship, regardless of whether or not a command was given, regardless of whether or not the possibility of evil was there. And the second and, and even more obvious way of refuting the claim that the possibility of sin is required for a true relationship is to look forward to our glorified state in heaven for all eternity, where the Bible clearly says that the, the possibility of sin will be done away with. It's very interesting. I've never heard an adequate answer to, do we have free will in heaven? If free will is the, the idea of the possibility of sin, then will we have free will in heaven where we cannot sin? And if your answer to that question is yes, then why didn't God just create it all like that in the first place? If there exists a possible state of being where you can have this thing called free will and yet not be able to sin, why didn't God just create everybody like that from the start? Why didn't God just create everybody in a glorified state, unable to sin, but yet we all have free will and everybody lives happily ever after from the start? It's obviously possible in the future. Why wasn't it possible from the start? And this is why I find it very ironic that Christians will praise this idea of free will and say it's so necessary. And this idea of being able to sin, as terrible as it is, this idea of being able to sin is necessary for some sort of true relationship. And yet, those same Christians look forward to and hope for an eternal state where they will not be able to sin. And yet, their relationship with God will still be valid and true and loving and wonderful. I just find that very ironic, that the same people who think that the idea of being able to sin is, is absolutely necessary to some sort of relationship with God, look forward to a state where they will not be able to sin. So you just want to have the, the best of both worlds. <laughs> you want to have God not in control when it's convenient for you, but in control when it's convenient for you. It's, it's just, it's really, really funny to consider these things. It's important to notice that when you begin to answer the question why there's never been a sinless human, the only possible answers that you could ever give to that are deterministic answers. They are not free will answers. Because if free will as a concept were true, there should be the possibility of a sinless human. We should see at least, you know, number-wise, I would expect 50-50. We're at 0% sinless humans. I would expect 50-50 if free will were true. But even 1%? There's not even 1% of humanity that's been sinlessly perfect, and yet free will is true? I find that I'd like some explaining. Can somebody explain to me why that's true? And it's funny because if you notice... Anybody who has set down the road, start down the road of beginning to explain why there's never been a sinless human is going to have to say what the Bible says, and it's all deterministic things. Sinful nature, fall of Adam, right? Host Romans 8, mind set on the flesh, hostile to God, does not submit to the law of God, cannot submit to the law of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Everything done without faith is sin. All of these answers that you're going to give are going to be deterministic answers that free will has no place with, or that has no place for free will, I should say. I also have a brief question that on the uh, idea of eternal security, because I have I've never heard an adequate, consistent answer to how eternal security fits into a uh, a free will position. In other words, why is it that with my free will I can wake up one day, choose to believe the gospel, choose to love God? choose to follow Christ, so on and so forth. But I can't wake up the next day and change my mind. I've got free will, right? Why can't I wake up the next day and choose to not follow Christ, not believe God, reject the gospel, 
take everything back, so on and so forth. And what's funny is, uh, once again, when free will people begin to answer this question, why is it that once you're saved, you can't get unsaved? They go down a deterministic road. Again, they start talking about, well, your nature's been changed. Your desires have been changed. The Holy Spirit is working in you. On and on and on. And they give all sorts of deterministic reasons, which completely violate their entire worldview concept of free will, in order to hold on to the idea of eternal security. So once again, you want the best of both worlds. You want to... You want free will when it when it when it sounds good, but you want God in deterministic control when it sounds good, and it's just very inconsistent. There is no consistent application of free will across the board, and the idea of eternal security is just one more example. So please, I've been waiting a long time. Uh, I've listened, read, watched debates. Can somebody on the free will side please explain to me how free will and eternal security are are not contradictory concepts. I'd also like to ask the free will position about the many angles in which the idea of people getting saved makes sense. In other words, when we're going to start talking about the gospel, sending the gospel, people, you know, bringing the gospel to the far reaches of the earth, so on and so forth, if free will is true, number one, God seems very dependent upon the free will of man for anybody to get saved, right? God is basically sitting up there. Uh, he's given the gospel and he's given the command, take the gospel out. But what credit are you giving God for that gospel ever getting anywhere? Right? Why are you, how are you giving God any credit when it's up to the free will of man to choose to actually get up and go do it? Right? And so I wonder how many people God wanted to save ended up not saved because man's free will didn't bring the gospel to them. Right? It's a very interesting question to ask. Right? Seems like God is very dependent. He, he, he's given the command and he's just hoping for the best. It, it really makes me question how much credit you can ascribe to God when it comes to people getting the gospel and getting saved. How can God even be said to be sending the gospel if it's, if it's up to the free will of man? See, this makes perfect sense in a Calvinistic worldview. God can be said to be sending the gospel because he's in control of all things. He can be said to be saving people, whether or not they're believing it, because he's in control of all things. God gets all the credit for all that stuff in the Calvinistic worldview. But if free will is true, how does man not get some of the credit? And how much control does God actually have over whether or not people are getting saved? Because man has to bring the gospel by their free will uh, to other people. Now, along the lines of, of God sending the gospel, us bringing the gospel to people, in a free will worldview, I would like to ask the question, once again, God knows the future. He knows that by He knows if I send this, if I send the gospel to this person, they're going to reject it, right? And it doesn't matter even if doesn't matter how many times I send this person the gospel. Once again, we're boiling this all back to I ask if God knows that if He creates you, you're going to end up in hell. This includes the outplay of that, which is God knows that no matter how many times He sends you the gospel, you're going to reject it with your quote unquote free will. So why would God send the gospel to someone He knows will reject it? Because isn't rejection of the gospel a sin? Obviously, yes. So wouldn't rejecting the gospel increase someone's condemnation? Obviously, yes. So if God knows somebody's going to end up in hell ultimately, why would God willingly choose to increase their condemnation to make their time in hell even worse uh, by sending them the gospel he knows they will reject? I think it's a fair question. 
It's some. It's a question that's rarely considered, but it's just one of the tiny branches off of this primary question from earlier. And um, again, we'll talk about Molinism later. But but some Molinists would actually suggest that that people who are there is no possible world in which everybody's saved, first of all. And so people, God will create people in the remote parts of the world. The people who are in the remote parts of the world who rarely or in, maybe even never hear the gospel are the people who in no possible world could have been saved to begin with. And so God creates them off in the edges of the world so that at least their condemnation is started reduced. So again, a slight, slight bit of respect to the Molinists for at least trying to make a logical application of, of this question to their worldview. But once again... Um, why send the gospel to people he knows will reject it? Why increase the condemnation of people uh, he knows will end up in hell? And this, again, you could just circle back and ask then, if, if he knows they're going to reject the gospel, he knows they're going to end up in hell, no matter what, why create them in the first place? There, there's, there really seems to be this assumption, again, because the question is rarely asked, but there seems to be this assumption that God is forced to create people. And... uh I just never quite understood that, the idea that God is forced to create people. I don't think people really believe that, but it seems to be this assumption because, once again, God could have created people differently, so on and so forth. And so why create people who are going to end up in hell? Why create people? Why send the gospel to people who are going to reject it? Um, this is just one one extra question to be asked along these lines. And since we're on the topic of God creating you and uh, and whose choice it is, um, something that's very rarely asked or discussed, but I find uh, I find it to be a very interesting topic is just understanding why you exist in the first place. So, if I were to ask you why you exist, every Christian is going to say because God created us, and that's true. But in a free will worldview, don't you also exist because of the free will choices of your parents to come together and have you? Right in a free will worldview, that must also be true. And so, which of those choices—God's choice or your parents' choice, free will choice—which of those choices has logical, um, has the logical priority, so to speak? In other words, does God's choice to create, does God's choice and plan to create you come logically prior to uh, your parents' choice, and therefore your parents' choice is the deterministic means by which God brings you into this world, or is it the other way around? Is it your free your parents' free will choices comes logically first, and therefore God's choice to create you is a reaction to and a response to the free will choices of your parents? And I think if free will proponents were to be logically consistent with the way they address almost every other topic when it comes to the choices of men, once again, this idea God works all things over the counsel of his will to the free will position, that is, well, God just takes the things that man does and works them, God is just responding to the things that man does. So your existence, in a free will viewpoint, wouldn't your existence just be nothing more than a reaction of God to the free will choices of your parents? That seems a little dismal to me, a little impersonal. I mean, sure, God can, after God looks into the future, he foresees your parents are going to make this choice, and so he creates you in a response to that, and then he can also look and see all the wonderful things he can plan for your life and blah, blah, blah. That all sounds fun. But ultimately speaking... Um, which is more biblical, that God just reacted to your parents and created you, or that God actively planned and purposed your creation from the start, and therefore the choices of your parents is the deterministic means by which God brings you into this world. And I think biblically speaking, um, it's unavoidable that the creation of, hum of, of, of all, all people, 
Uh, God makes it clear he makes all people for his glory. Even the wicked have a purpose for the day of evil. I'll give all these verses in my defense video, but I just think it's a very interesting topic to ask of the free will position. How do you understand God's choice to create you? Was he forced to create you? Yes or no? If no, how do you square uh, his creation of you with the free will choices of your parents? I think it's just a fair and legitimate question to ask, and I think when you reflect upon it, you'll see that my side gives far more meaning and purpose to the existence of people than the free will side does. Because on the free will side, God is re responding and reacting to the free will choices of men. And so this is why, um, this is why, by the way, an open theist position is so... It's hard for me not to speak with very strong terms against open theism. I can't, I can't stand the position. Open theism teaches God doesn't know the future. God experiences time moment by moment as we do. Since the future hasn't happened yet, God can't know it. This is the open theist position. And so that means that when God created the world, God did not know that you would exist. Just stop and think about that for a moment. When God created the world, he did not know that you would exist. This is a very impersonal, impersonal, dismal view, worldview. I hope people don't go down that road. But for those of you who do believe that God knew the future, how do you square his choice to create you with his the way you, the all the other ways you think he interacts with uh, free will choices. I just think it's a legitimate question to ask. Is your existence nothing more than a response of God to the free will choices of your parents? Um, it's a fair question. I also find it slightly amusing when I hear free will proponents say things like, Lord willing, Lord willing we will do this, or Lord willing that will happen. What do you mean, Lord willing? You're the one with free will, right? Just go ahead and do it. Um, Lord willing doesn't make any sense in a free will position. God's, God can give you commands and suggest things to you and provide opportunities and wish you all the best, but at the end of the day, it's your willing, not God willing, right? So I just find it very inconsistent for people to talk that way. Now, it's very Christian to talk that way, right? In Acts, we read one of the clearest uh, examples of this. When in Acts it says you will go into a city and buy and sell and do this and that. And it's basically saying you're going to li go live your life uh, tomorrow. But what you ought to pray as a Christian, what you ought to pray is, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. So you, as a Christian, you mentally recognize and you ascend to the fact that God is in control of all things. And that is the sense in which you can say, Lord willing. Yes, you make choices. Yes, you, you buy and sell and live your life. And you make lots and lots of choices. But ultimately speaking, those things are only happening by the will of God. That is the Christian um, understanding and Christian worldview. How does that fit into a free will position? Your entire position is built upon the fact that ultimately speaking, it is your will whether or not things are done. It is your will whether or not you buy and sell and how you live your life. God can hope for the best. He can be a nice cheerleader. He can give you lots of open doors and opportunities. But at the end of the day, it's you willing, not him willing. God can be willing that you do all sorts of things, but if you're not willing, God's will doesn't matter. And so I would just like to, once again, boil that back down and ask a free will proponent to explain how the idea of quote-unquote Lord willing fits into your worldview. And sadly, if free will were true, it would not be if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. It would be reversed. It would be if man wills, God will do this or that. That would be the logical conclusion if free will were true. 
And this is, in fact, what is reflected in the worldview as a whole when you have God being the, the great responder, um, the, the masterful chess player, right? Uh, he can have all sorts of plans in mind. But if you are not willing with your free will, then God needs to adapt. God needs to ad adjust. Uh, God very rarely has it his way. And, um, it, you know, God should be saying, if man wills, I will do this and that. Because he's the one that's just responding to you most of the time. I'd also like to briefly mention the idea of prayer um, as it relates to the Arminian free will position as well, because I find a lot of the ways in which Arminians pray to be biblically consistent, but inconsistent with their free will position. Now, we mentioned some things a little earlier. I asked why you would thank God for your food when you're the one who bought it and prepared it and so on and so forth. He didn't airdrop it down out of heaven. I gave the consistent Calvinistic answer to why we thank God for our food. Um, I'd like to get an answer as to how, why you would thank God for your food and free will pos uh, position. It seems to me like a lot of prayers, thanking God for things, once again, in a free will worldview, is just thanking God for the possibility of them, or it's just thanking God for setting them up that way in the start. For example, you're not really thanking God for your food or your job or anything really after you're born. You're just sort of thinking, well, thank you for... Thanks, God, for being born in America and having all these opportunities and everything and blah, blah, blah. But coming back to the idea of prayer really briefly, let's talk about prayer and salvation. Can you, as a free will person, ask God to save somebody? Yes or no? Now, that sounds like a simple question at first, and every Christian will say, of course. Of course we can ask God to save somebody. But if you stop and think about it, in a free will position, you're not really asking God to save them. You're asking God to... I mean, he, according to you, he, he, he's made them savable already. They're savable. So what exactly are you asking God to do? Right? Since you believe in free will, you wouldn't be asking God to change their hearts. You're, you're basically just asking God to try really hard. I guess send the gospel a lot, like maybe more than once if they reject it. Um, ask, you can't even ask really ask God to cause other people to work in their lives more either because that would be God violating their the other people's free will too and it's just a really confusing sort of sort of view it's very easy to say and sound like a good little Christian oh God please save somebody but how do you consistently apply a prayer like that to a free will position and there's all sorts of questions I could branch off and ask about that but instead of wasting time I'm just going to ask the simple question what role does God play in a person's salvation and and what then are you praying and asking God to do because it seems to me that he's done everything he needs to do already. He makes them savable by, by dying for them, and he sends them the gospel. Again, how does he send them the gospel? I guess without violating other people's free will, he gives a command and hopes for the best. So let's fast forward to the point where the gospel has reached them. At that point, it's up to their free will whether or not they accept the gospel, right? God's not going to change their heart. He's not going to violate their free will. He's not going to cause them to believe. It's up to their free will. So how can you consistently pray that God save a person? How can you consistently pray that God change people's hearts? I've heard free will people pray that way. I just find it to be very inconsistent. So maybe somebody could lay out for me a consistent prayer life of an Arminian free will proponent. What does that look like? I want to focus on really quickly this idea of fairness, which is often brought up by the free will side. It's just They'll say it's just not fair that God would create people determined to end up in hell. It's just not fair that God would be planning and purposing everything about people, including their choices. It's just not fair. Well, 
both sides have to address the idea of fairness. Because again, God's in the ultimate position. You have to answer the question, how is it fair that God is choosing when and where and how to create people? How is it fair that you are obviously created in a time and a place where you had gospel exposure, and yet millions of people who have lived and died were created by God, chosen to be created by God in specific places and times where they did not have uh, gospel, any gospel exposure at all? How is that fair? What's your answer to that question? Where's the fairness there? Right? And what about this idea... I'll bring up Molinism once again. They think they're answering this question by by saying, well, God's creating, again, it's a numbers game. God's creating the best possible world where the most number of people are saved. But I've always wondered of this of this viewpoint that Molinism has, how is that fair? In other words, if what if in, let's just take me in a hypothetical example. Let's say that I'm not going to be saved in this best possible universe. The universe that God has chosen to create, I'm not going to be saved. But what if in one of the other possible universes, where less people overall are saved, in terms of a number, I would have been saved. Why is it that I have to, God is sacrificing, in a sense, or, or determining that I will be in the universe where I'm not saved so that more other people can be saved? It's just, just a numbers game, right? Why, how is that fair to me when I could have been created in a different universe where I would have been saved? You know, this whole idea, you can't, both sides have to address the idea of quote-unquote fairness, Right? And so once again, these are questions, I've got answers to these questions, I believe, um, but you as free will people need to also be able to answer them. Where is the fairness when it comes to your view? You think free will is answering it and making it fair, but you still have God in an ultimate position that you need to answer questions about. How is it fair when God is creating people when and where and how he will? If Molinism is true, this is the best possible world. Well, how is it fair to those who in this best possible world weren't saved when in less than best possible worlds they would have been saved? How is it fair is my question. And again, going back to the, the first question I asked, the idea of God creating people knowing they're going to end up in hell, even in free will view, how is that fair? God creates people when and where and how he does. He's the one who chooses whether or not people exist, not the people themselves. And so God is choosing to create people he knows will end up in hell. How is that fair? I, one of the most common objections I've ever heard to Calvinism, it's not an argument, it's, it's pure emotion. What I've heard people say against Calvinists is, what you're giving man an excuse. What greater excuse could you possibly have on the day of judgment when you stand before God than to say, God, you determined all these things. You're the one who determined that I would be born, that I would sin, and that I would die, and I would go to hell. You determined all these things. What greater excuse can you give, give a sinner than that? And you know you have a bad argument when your argument is equally applicable to your viewpoint. Because how can you, you're, you have God creating people knowing they're going to end up in hell, so how can those same people not stand before God in the day of judgment and say, God, you created me when and where and how you did, knowing I would end up here, that I would be going to hell? How can they not also, quote unquote, blame God for their, their going to hell? God, why didn't you create me differently? God, you created me in such a way that you knew I would end up in hell. Why didn't you create me differently? That's your fault. Why are you blaming me? Or, as I said before, why, God, why even create me at all? I'd rather just not exist. This is all your fault, God. You didn't ask me if I wanted to be created. <laughs> I mean, what a stupid objection. Seriously. What a stupid objection. And again, when, it, when your objection, which is pure emotion, blows up in your face, when it's equally applicable to your viewpoint, that's when you know you've made a really bad argument. And so you'll notice that the answer to this quote-unquote fairness problem that both sides, as I've pointed out, have to answer, 
the answer is going to be the same from both sides. It's not like Calvin on this issue, Calvinists are, have a specific answer and Armenians have a different answer. The answer is the same. God has the right to do these things. This idea of, well, that's just not fair. God is in the ultimate transcendent position. There is no law or rule that he has to conduct creation by so that he's being fair to you, right? That would be like me, if I were to author a story and you come along and say, hey, you can't, you can't determine that that person will exist and do that and then be punished. How dare you do that? That's not fair to that person. Well, I would look back at you and say, what do you mean fair? This is my story, right? I lay it out. I make the rules. Um, this whole idea of, well, that's just not fair. It's an absurd categorical error to begin with. I've also heard a lot of free will proponents try to claim that their view of God is bigger and better because in the Calvinist view, God has to control everything. And there's nothing impressive about a God who can control everything and get done what he wants to do get done by controlling everything. There's nothing quote unquote impressive or big or grand about that. Our view, our free will view is much bigger because God can give man this magical thing called free will and still get done what he wants to get done. And we don't need to do any explaining about that, which we've been, this entire episode has basically been exposing the problems with that, but let's pretend. Uh, we don't need to talk about any of that. It just is a bigger view of God. Well, this has always made me laugh because by definition, your view limits God. You think that my view is limiting God by saying he must control everything? What, but what you're not realizing is that is the biggest possible view of God there is, Right? The fact that God is exerting power over all things and is in control of all things, you can't get a bigger view of God than that. It seems small to you. It seems less than, it seems not so big to you because you don't get your free will and you don't get to have what you want and it doesn't make you feel good. But your emotions, once again, are not the determiner of what is true. Logically speaking, you can't get a bigger view of God than to have God in control of all things, right? It makes me laugh out loud for you to come along and say that your view, which by definition limits God's power over things, is a bigger view of God. What a face-plantingly bad contradiction for you to sit there and say that. That your view, which literally limits God's power and control over things, namely over you, is a bigger view. That's ridiculous. You, you are in the same sentence, limiting God, but then claiming he's not limited. It's, it's, it's insane. Um, and I hope people are starting to begin to see how insane that is. That goes back to the whole omni-attributes thing. If I were to say that God is so omnipresent that he can choose not to be present in certain places, and my view of God is therefore bigger, you would laugh. You would think that was absurd. No, a view of God which has him omnipresent being literally omnipresent is the biggest possible view you can have. And any view that says that God is not omnipresent or has limited his presence is less than as big as you can possibly have, by definition. And that's exactly what's going on here. But for some reason, it sounds great to people because it, 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 it lets them have what they want, free will, and sound like good little Christians where God's getting done what he wants to get done. But notice, there's never any justification of the claim. It's, once again, a mystery. We have free will, and God still gets to get done what he wants to get done, and there's no contradiction. But as you begin asking questions and you dissect this entire point is, God is not getting done what he wants to get done. He is cleaning up messes. He's doing the best he can, given what you, with your free will, deal to him. You're, he's dealing with the cards that you deal him. And the same thing for the knowledge or foreknowledge of God. Knowledge of God in general, right? 
if 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 you're to say, well, God knows all things because He's God, and He 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 must know all things by nature, you sound wonderfully Christian when you say that, right? Because it's true. But if I'm to come along and say your view of God is is boring and small and not impressive, well, God's just God and He knows all things. Let me tell you a view that's much more impressive about God. God can actually choose to limit His knowledge about certain aspects of the future, so that you can have free will. This is a Jehovah's Witness uh, argument. God can choose to limit or choose to know certain things and not know other things so that you can have free will and so on and so forth. And my view of God is much bigger, much more impressive. Your view is boring. God is just God and he has to know everything. That's not impressive. What's impressive is God can choose what to know and not know, which is self-contradictory if you think about it. But here's the point, guys. That's absurd. That is, by definition, taking the highest possible view of God, that he knows all things, and then trying to limit it, and then declaring that, well, God's still not limited. Because even though he's chosen not to know the certain parts of the future, he's still God, and he can get things done, and it's all a mystery, and your imagination's not big enough if you don't accept all this, and on and on and on. It is so bad that it blows my mind that people people eat it up. Not these two examples, right? Nobody's ever going to deny the omnipresence of God or the, uh, the omniscience of God, for the most part. Um... These these terrible examples are 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 given forth to disprove this idea that you don't get to say that God can limit His control or power over you so that you can have free will, and then say that that's a bigger view of God. That is by definition a lesser, logically contradictory, ridiculous view of God. Okay, and you you, you got to stop thinking this way. That's absurd. To say that God can give you free will, but still get everything done He wants to get done, and He's still God. And to go even further than that and say that that is a bigger view of God than a view which has God in control all the time, that is as absurd as saying that a view where God can limit his presence is a bigger view of God than those who say God is omnipresent. And it is just as absurd as saying that God can choose to limit his knowledge is a bigger view of God than those who believe that God is omniscient. It is absurdly ridiculous to say that that is a bigger view of God. So why do people eat it up and accept it? When the free will side comes along and says, our view of God is bigger because we can limit God's control over us, give us free will, but God still is, I guess, in control and getting things done that he wants to get done. And it's just a mystery. Why do you people accept this sort of thing? And it also amazes me when we're talking about greater or lesser views of God, that for God to be in control of all things as a lesser view, you, you have not even stopped to, you're, you're basing that all on emotion. Well, if God's controlling everything, blah, blah, blah. Stop and think about what that means. Remember, this whole point, a semi-deistic view where God just throws things into existence with natural laws and then just stands by and watches and every once in a while pokes around, that is not a bigger, bigger view of God, right? That is a lesser view of God than a view of God which says that everything that you see in this universe is carried out by the power of God, right? Next time you're on the beach, you're just sitting there and you see the waves crashing over and over and over, right? That's the power of God. Behold the power of God right in front of you, right? Next time you're in a thunderstorm and you see the lightning flashing and the rain falling, that's the power of God, right? Every aspect of life that you that you see and encounter and experience, it's all the power of God because he's in control of it all. And how people can look at that and say that that is a lesser, a less powerful, less impressive, less God-glorifying view than a view which has God just throwing the universe out there, pulling up a chair while he watches what's going on, and then up, 
here comes something, I need to intervene. That is a bigger view of God. You've got to be kidding me. No, of course not. The biggest possible view of God is God is in control of all things. He is exerting power over all things. Everything we see, everything we experience in this universe is the power of God. We are beholding the power of God nonstop, right? It, it's, it's, I, don't, I, I have a very hard time seeing how people can look at that view and say it's a lesser view. The only reason they do it is because it's denying their beloved free will, and that is unacceptable for, for most people. The, the free will is the must-have. Free will is the the unbiblically, falsely assumed foundation upon which every other thing in your worldview must adapt to. Everything, instead of starting with the foundation of God's sovereignty and control, his his power and his control over everything he's created, his his upholding of the universe, instead of starting with that foundation and then building everything else about your life upon that, whether it's making choices, what you experience, everything you see around you, building everything on that foundation, you start with, you must have free will. Free will is the thing that has to start first, and you build everything else about God around that false foundation. And so your entire worldview, sorry to say, is completely poisoned. It's poisoned, and, and, and to call that view a bigger view of God, your view is so much less. It is so faded away. It is so God is thrown into the, the distance. He's thrown off to the side, and he's just this spectator that reacts and keeps things in check and does the best he can to clean up messes. And what on earth are you thinking when you think that that is a, lesser, a, a, more, a greater view of God than a view of God which has God in total power and control of all things? So I'd like to finally bring this to a close with one final point. And I believe this is one of the, this is possibly the most important point because it goes back to the start of the episode when I warned you that if you do not accept the definition of free will that I gave, true freedom from God as what as the only definition that matters, whether you're doing what you want, whether other things are determinative are completely ultimately irrelevant. What matters is is God ultimately the one determining what you do? Yes or no? If you deny that definition, you've lost the debate, and here's why. I have a very simple question. From a free will standpoint, there seems to be this assumption that if God's going to determine what you do, he has to be brute force violating your free will. But I have a, I have a, a very interesting question, that can God actually get you to do what he wants you to do without violating your free will? Is that possible? Can God do something that indirectly determines what you will do. So it's not brute force violation of your free will. But God takes an action in time that will, I know you don't like the word cause, but I don't know what better word to use, cause or determine you to do what you want to do. So that you're doing it freely in the sense of wanting to do it. But it's also what he wants you to do. Right? You could think up really stupid examples, like maybe he makes a tree fall down the road so that you willingly go another way. You know, a very simple concept like that. Can God do that? But notice something, if you admit that he can, then you're violating the definition of free will that I said mattered. Because if you consider that to be free will, you're admitting God can determine what you will do. He can determine that you'll do what he wants you to do, but it's still what you want to do. So your reference point for freedom isn't God. It's just that you're doing what you want. And throughout this entire episode, I have shown that that is an ir- irrelevant, in you know, inadequate definition of free will and you've lost the debate because now you're admitting 
I don't even know how you could argue against Calvinists if you admit that, that he could do that. Because <laughs> this is basically what I've said. I, I have said that God has determined everything, including what you do and the fact that you want to do it. So God can determine what you do. He can determine that you'll be wanting to do it. He's in total control. And yet you're still making choices. You're still living life. Everything's fine. And if you reject that, if you're going to argue against that, the only way you can do that is to say that, no, in fact, God cannot determine anything that I do. God can't determine anything that I do, really, ultimately. And th So this is, this is the final point. This is the ultimate. You have to accept freedom from God as the true definition of free will. And the implications here, the ultimate and final implications of all of this is, if that is your definition, true freedom from God, God could never interact with you, ever. Because any interaction he takes is going to have a determinative effect on your future, and therefore those future choices aren't free will choices, by the definition you are admitting to, freedom from God. If God can take an action that results in you doing something, he's determined it, period. And so the definition of free will is no longer freedom from God, it's just moved the reference point somewhere else. Oh, you're free from, you're, you're doing what you want, right? But God's still in control. And if you admit that God can be in control and you're still doing what you want, then you have no grounds upon which to argue against Calvinists. So in order to adequately argue against Calvinists, you need to accept the definition, free will is freedom from God, but logically speaking, at the end of the day, you forfeit then God being able to do anything. God, how could God possibly get anything done that he wants to get done if any action that he takes is going to have a determinative effect on the future of human beings and their choices? Right? So pick a choice. Zoom in on it. You rip it out of the context of everything that surrounds it. It's a truly self-determined, you made a free will choice. We're going to start with that choice. Then God reacts, and he knows the future results of his own reaction. He knows exactly what it's going to determine and cause you to do if he takes that action. So he takes that action, and you're forced to admit that all of the choices that follow God's action and reaction to your first free will choice, none of those other choices are free will choices. God determined them. He determined them by reacting to your first choice. So now you just have to ask the question, was that first choice that you tried to consider, that you tried to rip out of the context of reality, was that truly a free will choice? Or was that choice also preceded by an action of God? And this is the ultimate point at the end of the day, guys. God is your creator. You can never start with you. Everything is always ultimately traceable to him and his action. God created you knowing everything about your future. Anytime God interacted with you, he did so knowing every, the future results of that interaction. You can't fit true free will, true freedom from God, true self-determined choice into that picture. I'm sorry, you just can't do it. And so I know I'm repeating myself, and this is my, I'm going to repeat the question one last time, and we're done. But really, guys, take this question and think about it. Those of you who believe in free will, can God take an action that will result in you doing what you want to do, but it's also what he wants you to do? Seems like such a simple question. It's like a no-brainer for even the most basic free will Christian. Of course he can. I mean, this is how God gets stuff done, right? There we are. We're running around with free will. God, t God does something, and it results in us doing something that he wants us to do so he can get his purposes accomplished. But it's still what we want to do so we have free will but you're violating the definition. You're admitting you're not free from God. He just determined what you did. 
And now your only definition is you're doing what you want, which is, again, not an adequate definition. So that's probably the most important question I could ask of this whole video. After you've heard everything leading up to it, we've talked about every possible angle that I could think of. Can God take an action that will result in you doing what you want to do, but it's also what he wants you to do? If your answer is yes, you've lost the debate. You have lost all grounds upon which to stand and argue against Calvinists. Because that is basically the ultimate um, overall viewpoint that we're putting forth. That God has determined all things, including what you'll do, and, that, and the fact that you'll want to do it. Right? So, so, I hope you can see the point. Can God take an action that will result in you doing what you want to do, but it's also what He wants you to do? If, you're at, if your answer is yes, free will is not real. I'm sorry. Free will is not real. The true sense of free will. Because you're admitting you're not free from God. He's determining what you're doing. And just the simple fact that you're doing what you want, if that's a good enough definition for, of you for free will, then uh, what's your problem with Calvinism again? I don't understand. <laughs> God's determining what, you, what you'll do and that you'll want to do it. What is your problem with Calvinism? I don't understand. And just, just so you understand very clearly my claim that if your answer to this question, this final important question, if your answer is yes, that God can determine what you will do so that you're doing what you want, but it's also what he wants. If your answer to that question is yes, the reason you lose the debate is because all of the objections that we have covered throughout this episode that come against Calvinism, against the idea that God is in control of all things, including what you'll do, all of them evaporate if you answer yes to that question. We can just go right on down the line. Because all of the false assumptions that you make, all the false standards that you make, and all the arguments you bring against Calvinism is based upon the fact that God is determining what you do. So, the first one, if God determines what I do, he can't hold me responsible. Well, if you admit that God can, in fact, take an action that will result in you doing what he wants you to do, but it's also what you want to do, you're admitting he's determining what you're doing. So, if, if your claim is that if God determines what you do, he can't hold you responsible, why, why wouldn't that equally apply to your view? And if you say, well, it's because I'm doing what I want, again, that works perfectly fine in a, in a deterministic worldview as well. What you want, the fact that you're doing what you want is completely irrelevant to the primary point that all of your objections to Calvinism are grounded in, which is that God is determining what you are doing. That is your primary problem. That is the issue you take with Calvinism. And you're admitting that. If God can take an action that results in you doing what he wants you to do, but it's also what you want to do, if that's your definition of free will, then apparently God can determine what you're going to do and still hold you responsible. So your objection evaporates. It explodes. You forfeited the grounds upon which you argue against Calvinism in the first place. The next one is, if God determines what you'll do, that would make God evil. That's a very common one, right? We covered it. But if you're admitting again, God can determine what you're going to do, but it doesn't make God evil because you're doing what you want. Again, irrelevant, um, irrelevant grounds. That works just fine in a deterministic worldview. God determines what you'll do and that you'll want to do it. And the same thing applies to this final question I've asked. So apparently God can determine what you will do, and it doesn't make him evil, does it? How about if God determines what you do, you'd be a puppet or a robot? And if you say, well, he's determining what I do, but since I'm doing it, I'm, I'm doing what I want, then I'm not a puppet or a robot. Well, again, I've already shown how that works just fine in a deterministic worldview, and that objection also evaporates if you answer yes to this question. And finally, if God determined what you would do, 
he would he would be forcing you to do it. That's the most obviously false one because again, you're going to say just as I've I have said, God is not just determining what you will do. He is determining the fact that you will also want to do it. That is the only quote-unquote free sense in which you're doing things. And if you admit that that's a good enough definition of free will for you, so that you get to have God in control, and you're doing things that you want, I you have completely forfeited all grounds upon which to argue against Calvinism. The idea that God can't hold you responsible, it would make God evil, God's forcing you to do things, and it would make you a puppet or robot, they all evaporate and vanish, if you answer this question yes. So what does that mean then? If you want to hold on to those objections, those only those are the, the primary objections that you, the problems you have with Calvinism, the reason you think it's terrible, all the things that you think logically, you actually think logically that these are objections to Calvinism, you forfeit those objections when you answer the question in this way. So what do you have to do then? You have to, in fact, say, no, God is not determining anything that I do, right? Not that he can't in the sense of being powerful enough. That's not the point here. The point here is set so that your false standards and rules and objections can remain rules and objections, you would have to say that God never determines what you would do. Because if he ever once determined anything that you did, all of these uh, objections you bring about against Calvinism would apply to your position as well. And so this is what I mean when I say that you forfeit the debate. You either, for, you, either, you either say, yes, God can determine what I do so that I'm doing what I want, but it's also what he wants, or, and, and you lose the debate, or you can say, no, actually, God never determines anything that I do. I have this thing called free will, true freedom from God. The primary definition I brought up at the beginning needs to remain true and consistent. And then just stop and think about all the logical like, I appreciate that if you answer no, God doesn't determine what you do. At least you're trying to be consistent with your view. You're trying to hold on to these standards and all these objections. That's great. But think about what that does to God. How can he get things done? Answer these questions. How can God ever get anything done? How can he get any... How can he bring about the things he wants to happen without determining what you or other people are doing? And I don't know how you can read the Bible and come up with the idea that God is not ever determining what people do. It's so blatantly obvious that all throughout the Bible, God is determining what people do. And so I'm very long-witted on this final point, but it is extremely important for you to recognize that you don't get to be wishy-washy. Most people are, and my point is to point out that they're wishy-washy and they think that it's okay because they can just claim mystery and move on and, and everything's fine. But when you're forced to logically address these problems, you need to pick a consistent answer. So when Calvinists say, Either God is in control of everything, or he's in control of nothing. This is what we mean. Logically speaking, it must be this way. You don't get to have the best of both worlds. You don't get to have, the, you don't get to have God being in control and getting what he wants, but you also having free will, freedom from him. You don't get both, okay? You don't get to have both and remain consistent. Either you have free will, God never determines anything that you do, or you don't have free will. God has determined everything about everything in creation, including you and what you'll do, the fact that you want to do it, and he's done, you know, divine author, he's done it all for good purposes, so on and so forth. The, the entire culmination of this episode, I hope, is being brought to light by this final point. That you need to consistently man up and take a position. Does God determine what you will do, yes or no? And if your answer is yes, then you lose the debate. Free will is not true. Um, at least in the, in the sense that matters. Again, you can define free will merely as doing what you want. And you have no grounds upon which to argue against Calvinism at all, ever. All of your objections vanish. 
And that's going to bring us to the end of episode one of the Consistent Calvinism podcast. If you uh, if you enjoyed this particular episode, if you want to hear more along these lines, um, I have a lot of plans going forward. We're going to cover all the topics, all the issues. I'm going to make videos just like this where I, I focus on a particular topic and just really build things up. I'm going to make a lot of response type episodes, which will probably be the most fun, where we take what the other side has to say, play it, and respond to it. Um, I'll, I'll make... I plan to make book review um, episodes and all sorts of things. So if, if you want to keep up and follow along, then search Consistent Calvinism on YouTube. might not show up the top yet, but look through it. You'll find it. Consistent Calvinism on YouTube. You can follow the Twitter, at the letter C Calvinism. At C Calvinism is, is the Twitter. And um, search the podcasts for Consistent Calvinism Podcast. And um, go ahead and subscribe. I just want to say at the very end, I really hope, I don't expect you guys to say, oh man, that was great, and so I just deny free will, and you win, the, the debate's over. I don't expect that. All I ask of you people who believe in free will is to honestly consider the things I've said and ask yourself, can you give adequate, sufficient answers? Because if you find yourself appealing to mystery more often than you're, than you're able to actually give answers, then that is a sign that you just really want to believe what you want to believe despite all the things that are that, that you have going against you. And that's just not a very good position to be in, right? Because if you can just appeal to mystery, I don't think there's anything that anybody could say, including the Bible, that would get you to believe otherwise. You're always going to find ways in your own mind to justify your free will belief. And so my hope is that these that I have provided logical points and questions that have caused you to question your free will worldview going forward, and I certainly don't expect you to just abandon it, but please... I, I, I hope you can at least admit that maybe you've heard a couple things here you haven't heard before. Maybe you've, you've heard a couple questions or a couple points that have really caused you to examine your free will position. And if at the end of the day, you can take an honest view, look at your free will position and come up with answers and justifications and still believe it, then, then great, good job, right? But this is all I'm asking, right? So I hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.